All right, here we are, day three, audiobook slash podcast slash experimental media. <laughs> <laughs> so true, man. Never been done before. So this is, uh, I never do anything like anybody else does it. Yeah, and and, and uh, this is a really fun experience. I hope the listeners enjoying it, just being able to, to talk it out in real time as we read through it. Uh, I find it, it's fun for me and, and uh, keeps it fresh, I think, as well. And it's, uh, it must be kind of a trip for you to hear your life story that you re- wrote read back to you. Oh, it is crazy. I mean, it's, um, you know, I sit back and sometimes I'm speechless and you ask me a question and this is totally, you know, we're having a conversation, me and you, this is off the cuff. This isn't rehearsed. And some of the questions you may ask me, man, I'm sitting back thinking, good God, man, did I really go through that shit? Mm. You know, and, you know, we'll get to all the interviews we had because so many stories we have in here, you know, a lot of people may say, oh, that shit didn't happen or that didn't happen. And we interviewed, what, 30 people? Yeah. Around there? At least that. Yeah. So, you know, we had a lot of people interviewed because every story that's in this book is um, I had to make sure that it was validated. You know? Yeah, and I mean the fact checking was was done, and and every story has been validated. We talked. I mean, you know, I I actually went and visited the the buds compound. <laughs> yep. You yep. know, and speaking with some of your ex uh, platoon uh, mates, and 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 a lot of people who aren't even in the book that we spoke to. Right. You know, we have uh, we have Drew Sheesh that we talked about in the last chapter, yep. or he went in the last chapter. You know, I was kind of brought up Drew Sheets at the very end. And, you know, we talked to him for about two hours yeah. and didn't even use his material because we had so much in here. Yeah, and there's more like like him. Um, before we start uh, getting into Chapter 7, which I think is a really pivotal chapter here because uh, it encapsulates something that I know is extremely important to you just in terms of the mind and how powerful it is and how, how, how many of us don't tap into its full power. And uh, and I know we want to get into that, but you wanted to talk about something else before that. Yeah, the whole big thing I like to talk about, you know, before we get into uh, the mind, is procrastination. And I was just thinking about this morning. I had this guy in the gym. He, you know, he came up to me when I was leaving. He's like, "Hey, are you David Goggins?" I'm like, "Yeah, you know, I'm I'm David Goggins." He goes, "I'm gonna go run a 50 miler one day." I'm going to do a 50 miler one day. And I'm like, hey, man, you know, why don't you go online, you know, Google some 50 milers and sign up for it. He's like, well, you know, I need to, you know, get a big, big training block, maybe put a year of training into it. And I'm sitting there thinking the whole time, man, that's exactly what people do, you know, is they like to have their mind fool them. You know, I need so much preparation. I need so much training. I need so much time. And all that does is he will sit back and he'll start procrastinating on that same idea. So that's what brought the whole, you know, procrastinating thing up. Yeah. Well, you know, as a writer, I know procrastination rather well. <laughs> it's part <laughs> of the deal. Right. But you know, I, I um and and I don't I don't love it. It's 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 definitely something that I that I do uh, indulge in too much sometimes. Uh, sometimes the power of a deadline makes it you know, the deadline is 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 kind of this this hammer that's kind of ready to swing. So you, you, you can't procrastinate when the deadline is kind of breathing down your neck. Right. But there are some people who think 
consider procrastination to be part of the process, certainly in a creative work, where uh, sometimes you're just not ready, it might mean that you're that you're not you haven't really thought out all the beats to a story or to a song, and you do need to kind of uh, mull it over. And, and even if you're not thinking of it consciously, there's an unconscious part of you that's still mulling it over, and it's this natural process that we all. Uh, tap into sometimes but I think the same is also true that that's only true procrastination is only a productive <laughs> process if you eventually produce the material which means getting your ass to work right and you know what happens in you know like I'm during procrastination that that so-called phase that some theorists think that you need is um you start overthinking and then when you start overthinking something man you start going down that serious spiral of, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I shouldn't do it. And the one thing that helped me out so much was I pushed myself so far back in the corner when I was almost 300 pounds. And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go be a Navy SEAL. I have the bright idea to go try to be a Navy SEAL. And when that recruiter told me, hey, you have under three months to lose 106 pounds, I didn't have that, you know, that, that whole phase of procrastination that people say you're supposed to go through. That phase got eliminated. Yes, but you. There was that. I have to push back just to see what you say about this, though, because remember, you 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 did in your mind say, "Well, listen, I'm going to do the ASVAB part of it first. and you did that two weeks before you started to really get into your running routine. Right. You were still on the cockroach duty, and you were doing the ASVAB. That kind of was your little procrastination piece, wasn't it? You know, I, I guess you can call it procrastination, but for me to go back to the ASVAB test. Yeah. I'd rather run 400 million miles yeah. than sit my butt down and start studying for the ASVAB test again. So you were just cramming the whole time. Right. So I was So I was really in. So for me, how my mind works is a lot of us, we are, especially nowadays, people can multitask big time. Yeah. Which to me makes you half-assed at a lot of shit. Yeah. I have to. So my brain, the way it works, if I don't put all of my time and energy to what's in front of me, I have to be hyper-focused and put everything. So I put everything into studying. Mm. Everything had to be into studying because I, if I was half-assed in my studying and then going out and then trying to work out, my mind would have been split into two spots and that wouldn't have been great for me. So I knew that I had to put a lot of time into learning you know, this, this ASVAB book again. And you had that, even though you didn't pass that, that became the base level, which then you were able to kind of supplement as you started to work out hard on the exercise bike. But you already kind of laid a foundation for the supplement supplementing of, of the studying. Exactly. Because without the ASVAB, I could lose 200 pounds. Right. I wasn't getting in the military. No. So that was the first big step. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I just started thinking something. It's like... So many of us are so busy multitasking, we don't do shit. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? You know what? It's a true statement nowadays. These millennials, man, they can, they can multitask their ass off. You know, and that's kind of old school knuckle draggers, man. You know, we're like fixed pointed on one on, on one object and get after it. And there's another thing I want to talk about before we get going in the book is, I'm all about change. I'm really about change. When I had a fixed mindset. A fixed mindset to me is one of the worst mindsets you can possibly have. And we change our life, you know, so, 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 like, so like in our lives, we change our house, we change our car, we change our clothes, we change our hairstyle. Sometimes we change our wives, our husbands, you know, we change so much, but very rarely do we change the way we think. 
And that right there is what I realized throughout this whole book. If I didn't change the way I thought about what was in front of me, about all the obstacles that, you know, whatever put in front of me, God put in front of me, people put in front of me, I put in front of me. If I didn't change the way I thought about, let me see, let me take a step back and figure out how I can go through it or around it or over it versus saying, oh, I see a wall. Let me just stop. Hmm. Now when I see a wall, I look for a door. I look for a window. I look for a way. I look for a little crack to say, maybe I can chip away at that, at that wall to get through it. So that's in my mind now. My mind is not like I see a wall, and obviously the wall is something that we have in our mind that then says, oh, I'm going to stop right here because this is just too much. I'm open-minded to believe that there's a way through that wall. And that's something about, you know, with procrastination, with mindset, with change, we have to change the way we think. And very few of us are willing to do that. Yeah. And what I love about the way you're approaching this is you're not, you're not pointing the finger and saying, you don't do this. I do this. You don't do what I do. No, you've lived through all of this. You've done all of these things. You have procrastinated. You have oh, doubted yourself. Yeah. You have succumbed to self-doubt. Right. You have been backed into the corner that you may, you put yourself in. Exactly. Um, and then you also rose out of it because you were able to uh, systematically shift how you approached your own mind. And you know what? And that's why I talk about it so much, Adam, is I'm not this guy who's like, you know, calling people out, no. judging people. No, man, I know exactly where the hell you're at. If you're going through a problem mentally, nine times out of ten, I've been exactly where you're at, so I'm not judging you. I'm trying to give you tips on how to get through that daggone obstacle, which is your mind. And a lot of people think I'm crazy. Nah, I'm not crazy. I'm just not like you. <laughs> That's all it is. I'm just not like you. So once again, it goes back to the title trying to put a title on something that you don't understand. I'm not crazy. We're just different people, and I'm just not like you. But we have a lot more to uh, to cover here, man. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing the next chapter. Chapter 7, The Most Powerful Weapon 27 hours after savoring intense, gratifying pain and basking in the afterglow of my greatest achievement so far, I was back at my desk on a Monday morning. SBG was my commanding officer, and I had his permission and every known excuse to take a few days off. Instead, swollen, sore, and miserable, I pulled myself out of bed, hobbled into work, and later that morning called Chris Kosman. I've been looking forward to this. I imagined the sweet note of surprise in his voice after hearing that I'd taken his challenge and run 101 miles in less than 24 hours. Perhaps there'd even be some overdue respect as he made my entry to Badwater official. Instead, my call went to voicemail. I left him a polite message he never returned, and two days later, I dropped him an email. Sir, how are you doing? I ran the 100 miles needed to qualify in 18 hours and 56 minutes. I would like to know now what I need to do to get into the Badwater so we can begin raising money for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Thanks again. His reply came in the next day, and it threw me way the fuck off. Congrats on your 100-mile finish. But did you actually stop then? 
The point of a 24-hour event is to run for 24 hours. Anyway, stay tuned for the announcement that you can apply. The race will be July 24th to the 26th. Best regards, Chris Kosman. I couldn't help but take his response personally. On a Wednesday, he suggested I run 100 miles in 24 hours that Saturday. I got it done in less time than he required, and he still wasn't impressed? Kosman was a veteran of ultra races, so he knew that strewn behind me were a dozen performance barriers and pain thresholds I'd shattered. Obviously, none of that meant much to him. I cooled off for a week before I rode him back, and in the meantime looked into other races to bolster my resume. There were very few available that late in the year. I found a 50-miler on Catalina, but only triple digits would impress a guy like Kosman. Plus, it had been a full week since the San Diego one day, and my body was still monumentally fucked. I hadn't run three feet since finishing mile 101. My frustration flashed with the cursor as I crafted my rebuttal. Thanks for emailing me back. I see that you enjoy talking about as much as I do. The only reason why I'm still bugging you is because this race and the cause behind it is important. If you have any other qualifying races that you think I should do, please let me know. Thanks for letting me know I'm supposed to run the full 24 hours. Next time, I'll be sure to do that. It took him another full week to respond, and he didn't offer a hell of a lot more hope. But at least he salted it with sarcasm. Hi, David. If you could do some more ultras between now and January 3rd to the 24th, the application period, great. If not, submit the best possible application during the January 3rd to 24th window and cross your fingers. Thanks for your enthusiasm. Chris. At this point, I was starting to like Chris Kosman a lot better than my chances of getting into Badwater. What I didn't know, because he never mentioned it, is that Kosman was one of the five people on the Badwater Admissions Committee, which reviews upwards of 1,000 applications a year. Each judge scores every application, and based on their cumulative scores, the top 90 applicants get in on merit. From the sounds of it, my resume was thin. I wouldn't crack the top 90. On the other hand, Kosman held 10 wild cards in his back pocket. He could have already guaranteed me a spot, but for some reason he kept pushing me. Once again, I'd have to prove myself beyond a minimum standard to get a fair shake. To become a SEAL, I had to deal with three hell weeks. And now, if I really wanted to run Badwater and raise money for families in need, I was going to have to find a way to make my application bulletproof. Based on a link he sent along with his reply, I found one more ultra race scheduled before the Badwater application was due. It was called the Hurt 100, and the name did not lie. One of the toughest 100-mile trail races in the world, it was set in a triple canopy rainforest on the island of Oahu. To cross the finish line, I'd have to run up and down 24,500 vertical feet. That's some Himalayan shit. I stared at the race profile. It was all sharp spikes and deep dives. It looked like an arrhythmic EKG. I couldn't do this race cold. There's no way I could finish it without at least some training, but by early December, I was still in so much agony that walking up the stairs to my apartment was pure torture. The following weekend, I zoomed up Interstate 15 to Vegas for the Las Vegas Marathon. It wasn't spur of the moment. Months before I'd ever heard the word San Diego one day, Kate, my mom, and I had circled December 5th on our calendars. It was 2005, the first year that the Las Vegas Marathon started on the Strip, and we wanted to be part of that shit. Except I never trained for it. Then the San Diego one day happened, 
and by the time we got to Vegas, I had no illusions about my fitness level. I tried to run the morning before we left, but I still had stress fractures in my feet. My medial tendons were wobbly, and even while wrapped with a special bandage I'd found that could stabilize my ankles, I couldn't last longer than a quarter mile. So I didn't plan on running as we rocked up to the Mandalay Bay Casino and Resort on race day. It was a beautiful morning. Music was pumping. There were thousands of smiling faces in the street. The clean desert air had a chill to it, and the sun was shining. Running conditions don't get much better, and Kate was ready to go. Her goal was to break five hours, and for once, I was satisfied being a cheerleader. My mom had always planned on walking it, and I figured I'd stroll with her for as long as I could, then hail a cab to the finish line and cheer my ladies to the tape. The three of us towed up with the masses as the clock struck 7 a.m., and someone got on the mic to begin the official countdown. Ten. Nine. Eight. When he hit one, a horn sounded, and like Pavlov's dog, something clicked inside me. I still don't know what it was. Perhaps I underestimated my competitive spirit. Maybe it was because I knew Navy SEALs were supposed to be the hardest motherfuckers in the world. We were supposed to run on broken legs and fractured feet. Or so went the legend I bought into long ago. Whatever it was, something triggered, and the last thing I remember seeing as the horn echoed down the street was shock and real concern on the faces of Kate and my mother as I charged down the boulevard and out of sight. The pain was serious for the first quarter mile, but after that, adrenaline took over. I hit the first mile marker at 7.10 and kept running like the asphalt was melting behind me. 10 kilometers into the race, my time was around 43 minutes. That's solid. But I wasn't focused on the clock, because considering how I'd felt the day before, I was still in total disbelief that I'd actually run 6.2 miles. My body was broken. How was this happening? Most people in my condition would have both feet in soft casts, and here I was running a marathon. I got to mile 13, the halfway point, and saw the official clock. It read 1 hour, 35 minutes, 55 seconds. I did the math and realized that I was in the hunt to qualify for the Boston Marathon, but was right on the cusp. In order to qualify in my age group, I had to finish in under 3 hours, 10 minutes, and 59 seconds. I laughed in disbelief and slammed a paper cup of Gatorade. In less than two hours, the game had flipped, and I might never get this chance again. I'd seen so much death by then, in my personal life and on the battlefield, that I knew tomorrow was not guaranteed. Before me was an opportunity. And if you give me an opportunity, I will break that motherfucker off. It wasn't easy. I'd surfed an adrenaline wave for the first 13 miles, but I felt every inch of the second half, and at mile 18, I hit a wall. That's a common theme in marathon running, because mile 18 is usually when a runner's glycogen levels run low, and I was bonking, my lungs heaving. My legs felt like I was running in deep Saharan sand. I needed to stop and take a break, but I refused, and two hard miles later, I felt rejuvenated. I reached the next clock at mile 22. I was still in the hunt for Boston, though I'd fallen 30 seconds off the pace, and to qualify, the final four miles would have to be my very best. I dug deep, kicked my thighs up high, and lengthened my stride. I was a man possessed as I turned the final corner and charged toward the finish line at the Mandalay Bay. Thousands of people had assembled on the sidewalk, cheering. It was all a beautiful blur to me as I sprinted home.
I ran my last two miles at a sub-seven-minute pace, finished the race in just over three hours and eight minutes, and qualified for Boston. Somewhere on the streets of Las Vegas, my wife and mother would deal with their own struggles and overcome them to finish too, and as I sat on a patch of grass waiting for them, I contemplated another simple question I couldn't shake. It was a new one, and wasn't fear-based, pain-spiked, or self-limiting. This one felt open. What am I capable of? SEAL training had pushed me to the brink several times, but whenever it beat me down, I popped up to take another pounding. That experience made me hard, but it also left me wanting more of the same, and day-to-day -day Navy SEAL life just wasn't like that. Then came San Diego one day, and now this. I'd finished a marathon at an elite pace for a weekend warrior, when I had no business even walking a mile. Both were incredible physical feats that didn't seem possible, but they'd happened. What am I capable of? I couldn't answer that question, but as I looked around the finish line that day and considered what I'd accomplished, it became clear that we are all leaving a lot of money on the table without realizing it. We habitually settle for less than our best, at work, in school, in our relationships, and on the playing field or race course. We settle as individuals, and we teach our children to settle for less than their best, and all of that ripples out merges and multiplies within our communities and society as a whole. We're not talking some bad weekend in Vegas, no more cash at the ATM kind of loss either. In that moment, the cost of missing out on so much excellence in this eternally fucked up world felt incalculable to me. And it still does. I haven't stopped thinking about it since. David, you want to talk about that a little bit? I do. This was uh, one of the... This set the bar to a whole new level for me. And I started realizing right here, the one thing that separates all of us is our mindset. And I was open-minded to the possibility that I had the ability to conquer anything. This is kind of where it first starts to, like, you yes. even open it even wider beyond. Because up until this point, you're still working within a template of the Navy SEAL template, which right. is, this is the Navy SEALs telling you, no, you're bigger than this. We'll, we'll get you to the point where you can fill our box. Right. But now you're breaking out of that box. And, and that's what I started realizing was exactly what you said. When you uh, become a Navy SEAL, you believe that is the pinnacle of mental toughness, of mental hardness, of you're the baddest of the bad. And I started realizing I hadn't even tapped into the beginning of this journey mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. And the first 100-mile race I did was zero training. And then this marathon, being able to run that fast. And I'm telling you right now, those of you who are listening, I was so broken. I, the day before, I could not, no way in hell, run a quarter of a mile. And I know people, oh, yeah, right. There's no way in hell. So you can run 26.2 miles. Mm. That's exactly what kind of flipped me out I realized I was leaving just like we put here I was leaving so much on the daggone table and those questions did come up in my mind what the hell if I'm if I'm able to do all these things just off of changing my mindset just off of you know going out there and believing and but it's much more than believing much more than believing just realizing that I'm not using all of my mind and, and I realized that, and it kept on getting worse and worse and worse as I went. And, and a lot of us aren't, which we're going to get into in more detail here. But 
I like this idea of it's not just you, it's everyone. And what is that? And and we all know this world, this society, it, it, it's not running tip top. No. You know, we, we got a lot of problems out here. And uh, imagine how how what we could do if everyone was at the top of their game, if everyone was pushing harder. To me, it seems like things would be happier. I mean, maybe that's just pie in the sky. We don't really know. But to me, it seems like if this is the way things are, this is the status quo, then, and if everyone starts pushing a little harder, doing a little bit more for themselves and for others, I mean, what what would happen? You know what? And, what are we capable of, basically? Right, that, and, and that is it. And I found true happiness on the other end of suffering. And a lot of us, we have to stop giving in to that feeling in our mind that says stop. And it's all relative. But you have to stop. Like when, when that mind starts telling you to stop, trust me, there's a lot left in the tank. And everybody wants to find peace. That's one thing about life. We all want to find peace so fast. But we don't want to go through, you know, all that hard stuff to find peace. Now, if hard stuff is kind of doing some of the stuff I did. And I'm not saying go out there and run 100 miles, run 200 miles, go through SEAL training. But you cannot leave so much in the tank and just live a normal life. You have to explore yourself, explore your mind, explore your body, explore your soul, explore the limits to the human soul. And that's what it's all about in life. Physically, I bounced back from Vegas within a few days, meaning I was back to my new normal, dealing with the same serious yet tolerable pain I'd come home to after the San Diego one day. The aches were still there by the following Saturday, but I was done convalescing. I needed to start training or I'd burn out on the trail during the Hurt 100 and there would be no bad water. I'd been reading up on how to prepare for ultras and knew it was vital to get in some 100-mile weeks. I only had about a month to build my strength and endurance before race day on January 14th. My feet and shins weren't even close to right, so I came up with a new method to stabilize both the bones in my feet and my tendons. I bought high-performance inserts, cut them down to fit flush with the soles of my feet, and taped my ankles, heels, and lower shins with compression tape. I also slid a small heel wedge into my shoes to correct my running posture and ease pressure. After what I'd endured, it took a lot of props to get me running nearly pain-free. Getting 100-mile weeks in while holding down a steady job isn't easy, but that was no excuse. My 16-mile commute to work from Chula Vista to Coronado became my go-to run. Chula Vista had a split personality when I lived there. There was the nicer, newer, middle-class section where we lived, which was surrounded by a concrete jungle of gritty, dangerous streets. That's the part I ran through at dawn, beneath freeway overpasses and alongside Home Depot shipping bays. This was not your tourist brochure's version of sunny San Diego. I sniffed car exhaust and rotting garbage, spotted skittering rats, and dodged sleepless homeless camps before reaching Imperial Beach, where I picked up the seven-mile Silver Strand bike path. It banked south past Coronado's landmark hotel, the turn-of-the-century Hotel Del Coronado, and a crop of luxury condo towers which overlooked the same wide strip of sand shared by Naval Special Warfare Command, where I spent the day jumping out of airplanes and shooting guns. I was living the Navy SEAL legend, trying to keep it real. I ran that 16-mile stretch at least three times a week. Some days I ran home too, and on Fridays I added a ruck run. Inside the radio pouch of my standard-issue rucksack, 
I slid two 25-pound weights and ran fully loaded for as many as 20 miles to build quad strength. I loved waking up at 5 a.m. and starting work with three hours of cardio already in the bank while most of my teammates hadn't even finished their coffee. It gave me a mental edge, a better sense of self-awareness, and a ton of self-confidence, which made me a better SEAL instructor. That's what getting up at the ass crack of dawn and putting out will do for you. It makes you better in all facets of your life. During my first real deal week of training, I ran 77 miles. The following week, I ran 109 miles, including a 12-mile run on Christmas Day. The next week, I pushed it to 111.5, including a 19-mile run on New Year's Day. And the following week, I backed off to taper my legs, but still got 56 and a half miles in. All of those were road miles, but what I had coming up was a trail run, and I had never run on a trail before. I bushwhacked a bunch, but I hadn't run distance on single track with a clock running. The Hurt 100 was a 20-mile circuit course, and I'd heard that only a slim slice of those who start the race finish all five laps. This was my last chance to pad my Badwater resume. I had a lot riding on a successful outcome, and there was so much about the race and about ultra running that I still didn't know. I flew into Honolulu a few days early and checked into the Halakoa, a military hotel where active duty and veterans stay with their families when they come through town. I'd studied the maps and knew the basics when it came to the terrain, but I hadn't seen it up close, so I drove over to the Hawaii Nature Center the day before the race and stared into the velvety jade mountains. All I could see was a steep cut of red earth disappearing into the dense green. I walked up the trail for a half mile, but there was only so far I could hike. I was tapering, and the first mile was straight uphill. Everything beyond that would have to remain a mystery for a little longer. There were just three aid stations on the 20-mile course, and most athletes were self-reliant and dialed in their own nutritional regimen. I was still a neophyte and had no clue what I needed when it came to fuel. I met a woman at the hotel at 5.30 a.m. on race day morning as we were about to leave. She knew I was a rookie and asked what I'd brought with me to keep myself going. I showed her my meager stash of flavored energy gels and my camelback. You didn't bring salt pills, she asked, shocked. I shrugged. I didn't know what the fuck a salt pill was. She poured a hundred of them into my palm. Take two of these every hour. They'll keep you from cramping. Roger that. She smiled and shook her head like she could see my fucked up future. I had a strong start and felt great, but not long after the race began, I knew I was facing a monster course. I'm not talking about the grade and elevation variants. I expected that. It was all the rocks and roots that took me by surprise. I was lucky that it hadn't rained in a couple of days because all I had to wear were my standard running shoes, which had precious little tread. Then my camelback broke at mile six. I shook it off and kept hammering, but without a water source, I'd have to rely on the aid stations to hydrate, and they were spaced miles apart. I didn't even have my support crew of one yet. Kate was chilling on the beach and didn't plan on showing up until later in the race, which was my own fault. I enticed her to come along by promising a vacation, and early that morning I insisted she enjoy Hawaii and leave the suffering to me. With or without a camelback, my mindset was to make it from aid station to aid station and see what happens. Before the race started, I heard people talking about Carl Meltzer. I'd seen him stretching out and warming up. His nickname was the Speed Goat, and he was trying to become the first person ever to complete the race in less than 24 hours. For the rest of us, there was a 36-hour time limit. 
My first lap took four and a half hours, and I felt okay afterwards, which was to be expected considering all the long days I'd done in preparation. But I was also concerned because each lap demanded an ascent and descent of around 5,000 vertical feet, and the amount of focus it took to pay attention to every step so I didn't turn an ankle amped up my mental fatigue. Each time my medial tendon twinged, it felt like a raw nerve exposed to the wind, and I knew one stumble could fold my wobbly ankle and end my race. I felt that pressure every single moment, and as a result, I burned more calories than expected, which was a problem because I had very little fuel, and without a water source, I couldn't hydrate effectively. Between laps, I guzzled water, and with my belly sloshing, started my second loop with a slow jog up that one-mile-long, 800-foot climb into the mountains, basically straight uphill. That's when it started to rain. Our red earth trail became mud within minutes. The soles of my shoes were coated with it and slick as skis. I sloshed through shin-deep puddles, skidded down descents, and slipped on ascents. It was a full-body sport, but at least there was water. Whenever I was dry, I tipped my head back, opened wide, and tasted the rain which filtered through a triple canopy jungle that smelled of leaf rot and shit. The feral funk of fertility invaded my nostrils, and all I could think of was the fact that I had to run four more fucking laps. At mile 30, my body reported some positive news. Or maybe it was the physical manifestation of a backhanded compliment. The tendon pain in my ankles had vanished, because my feet had swollen enough to stabilize those tendons. Was this a good thing long term? Probably not but you take what you can get on the ultra circuit, where you have to roll with whatever gets you from mile to mile. Meanwhile, my quads and calves ached like they'd been thumped with a sledgehammer. Yeah, I had done a lot of running, but most of it, including my ruck runs, on pancake flat terrain in San Diego, not on slick jungle trails. Kate was waiting for me by the time I completed my second lap, and after spending a relaxing morning on Waikiki Beach, she watched in horror as I materialized from the mist like a zombie from The Walking Dead. I sat and guzzled as much water as I could. By then, word had gotten out that it was my first trail race. Have you ever had a very public fuck-up, or were in the midst of a shitty day, week, month, year? Yet people around you felt obliged to comment on the source of your humiliation? Maybe they reminded you of all the ways you could have ensured a very different outcome. Now imagine consuming that negativity, but having to run 60 more miles in the sweaty jungle rain on top of it. Does that sound like fun? Yeah, I was the talk of the race. Well, me and Carl Meltzer. Nobody could believe he was gunning for a sub-24-hour experience, and it was equally baffling that I showed up to one of the most treacherous trail races on the planet, undersupplied and unprepared, with no trail races under my belt. By the time I began my third loop, there were only 40 athletes out of nearly 100 left in the race, and I started running with a guy named Luis Escobar. For the 10th time, I heard the following words. So, it's your first trail race, he asked. I nodded. You really picked the wrong I know, I said. It's just such a technical right. I'm a fucking idiot. I've heard that a lot today. That's okay, he said. We're all a bunch of idiots out here, man. He handed me a water bottle. He was carrying three of them. Take this. I heard about your camelback. This being my second race, I was starting to understand the rhythm of Ultra. It's a constant dance between competition and camaraderie, which reminded me of Buds. Lewis and I were both racing the clock and each other, but we wanted one another to make it. We were in it alone, together, 
and he was right. We were a couple of fucking idiots. Darkness descended and left us with a pitch-black jungle night. Running side by side, the glow of our headlamps merged and shed a wider light. But once we separated, all I could see was a yellow ball bouncing on the trail ahead of me. Countless tripwires, shin-high logs, slick roots, lichen-wrapped rocks remained out of sight. I slipped, stumbled, fell, and cursed. Jungle noises were everywhere. It wasn't just the insect world that had my attention. In Hawaii, on all the islands, bow hunting for wild pig in the mountains is a major pastime, and master hunters often leave their pit bulls chained up in the jungle to develop a nose for swine. I heard every one of those hungry bulls snapping and growling, and I heard some pigs squealing too. I smelled their fear and rage, their piss and shit, their sour fucking breath. With each nearby bark or yelp, my heart skipped, and I jumped on terrain so slick that injury was a real possibility. One wrong step could roll my ass out of the race and out of contention for Badwater. I could picture Kostman hearing the news and nodding like he figured that shit would happen all along. I know him pretty well now, and he was never out to get me, but that's how my mind worked back then. And in the steep, dark mountains of Oahu, my exhaustion magnified my stress. I felt close to my absolute limit, but still had more than 40 miles to go. On the backside of the course, after a long technical descent into the dark, dank forest, I saw another headlamp circling ahead of me and a cutout on the trail. The runner was moving in curlicues, and when I caught up to him, I could see it was a Hungarian runner I'd met in San Diego named Akos Konya. He was one of the best runners in the field on Hospitality Point, where he covered 134 miles in 24 hours. I liked Akos and had mad respect for him. I stopped and watched him move in conjoining circles, covering the same terrain over and over again. Was he looking for something? Was he hallucinating? Akos, I asked. You okay, man? Do you need some help? David, no. I know. I'm fine, he said. His eyes were full moon flying saucers. He was in delirium, but I was barely hanging on myself and wasn't sure what I could do for him other than tell staff at the next aid station he was wandering in a daze. Like I said, there's camaraderie and there's competition on the ultra circuit. And since he wasn't in obvious pain and refused my help, I had to go into barbarian mode. With two full laps to go, I had no choice but to keep moving. I staggered back to the start line and slumped into my chair, dazed. It was dark as space. The temperature was dropping and rain was still pissing down. I was at the very edge of my capability and wasn't sure that I could take one more step. I felt like I drained 99% from my tank, at least. My gas light was on, my engine shuddering, yet I knew I had to find more if I was going to finish this race and get myself into bad water. But how do you push yourself when pain is all you feel with every step, when agony is the feedback loop that permeates each cell in your body, begging you to stop? That's tricky because the threshold for suffering is different for everybody. What's universal is the impulse to succumb, to feel like you've given everything you can and that you are justified in leaving a job undone. By now, I'm sure you can tell that it doesn't take much for me to become obsessed. Some criticize my level of passion, but I'm not down with the prevailing mentalities that tend to dominate American society these days. The ones that tell us to go with the flow or invite us to learn how to get more with less effort Fuck that shortcut bullshit. The reason I embrace my own obsessions and demand and desire more of myself 
is because I've learned that it's only when I push beyond pain and suffering, past my perceived limitations, that I'm capable of accomplishing more physically and mentally in endurance races, but also in life as a whole. And I believe the same is true for you. The human body is like a stock car. We may look different on the outside, but under the hood, we all have huge reservoirs of potential and a governor impeding us from reaching our maximum velocity. In a car, the governor limits the flow of fuel and air so it doesn't burn too hot, which places a ceiling on performance. It's a hardware issue. The governor can easily be removed, and if you disable yours, watch your car rocket beyond 130 miles per hour. It's a subtler process in the human animal. Our governor is buried deep in our minds, intertwined with our very identity. It knows what and who we love and hate. It's read our whole life story and forms the way we see ourselves and how we like to be seen. It's the software that delivers personalized feedback in the form of pain and exhaustion, but also fear and insecurity. And it uses all of that to encourage us to stop before we risk it all. But here's the thing. It doesn't have absolute control. Unlike the governor in an engine, ours can't stop us unless we buy into its bullshit and agree to quit. Sadly, most of us give up when we've only given around 40% of our maximum effort. Even when we feel like we've reached our absolute limit, we still have 60% more to give. That's the governor in action. Once you know that to be true, it's simply a matter of stretching your pain tolerance, letting go of your identity, and all your self-limiting stories, so you can get to 60%, then 80%, and beyond without giving up. I call this the 40% rule. And the reason it's so powerful is that if you follow it, you will unlock your mind to new levels of performance and excellence in sports and in life, and your rewards will run far deeper than mere material success. The 40% rule can be applied to everything we do, because in life, almost nothing will turn out exactly as we hope. There are always challenges, and whether we are at work or school, or feeling tested within our most intimate or important relationships, we will all be tempted to walk away from commitments, give up on our goals and dreams, and sell our own happiness short at some point. Because we will feel empty, like we have no more to give when we haven't tapped even half of the treasure buried deep in our minds, hearts, and souls. I know how it feels to be approaching an energetic dead end. I've been there too many times to count. I understand the temptation to sell short, but I also know that impulse is driven by your mind's desire for comfort, and it's not telling you the truth. It's your identity trying to find sanctuary, not help you grow. It's looking for status quo, not reaching for greatness or seeking wholeness. But the software update that you need to shut your governor down is no supersonic download. It takes 20 years to gain 20 years of experience. And the only way to move beyond your 40% is to callous your mind, day after day, which means you'll have to chase pain like it's your damn job. Imagine you're a boxer, and on your first day in the ring, you take one on the chin. It's gonna hurt like fucking hell. But at year 10 of being a boxer, you won't be stopped by one punch. You'll be able to absorb 12 rounds of getting beat the fuck down and come back the very next day and fight again. It's not that the punch has lost power. Your opponents will be even stronger. The change has happened within your brain. You've calloused your mind. Over a period of time, your tolerance for mental and physical suffering will have expanded because your software will have learned that you can take a hell of a lot more than one punch. And if you stay with any task that is trying to beat you down, you will reap rewards. 
Not a fighter? Say you like to run, but have a broken pinky toe. I'll bet if you continue running on it, pretty soon you'll be able to run on broken legs. Sounds impossible, right? I know it's true, because I've run on broken legs, and that knowledge helped me endure all manner of agonies on the ultra circuit, which has revealed a clear spring of self-confidence that I drink from whenever my tank is dry. But nobody taps their reserve 60% right away, or all at once. The first step is to remember that your initial blast of pain and fatigue is your governor talking. Once you do that, you are in control of the dialogue in your mind, and you can remind yourself that you are not as drained as you think, that you haven't given it your all, not even close. Buying into that will keep you in the fight, and that's worth an extra 5%. Of course, that's easier said than done. It wasn't easy to begin the fourth lap of the Hurt 100, because I knew how much it would hurt. And when you were feeling dead and buried, dehydrated, wrung out, and torn the fuck up at 40%, finding that extra 60% feels impossible. I didn't want my suffering to continue. Nobody does. That's why the line, fatigue makes cowards of us all, is true as shit. Mind you, I didn't know anything about the 40% rule that day. The Hurt 100 is when I first started to contemplate it. But I had hit the wall many times before, and I had learned to stay present and open-minded enough to recalibrate my goals even at my lowest. I knew that staying in the fight is always the hardest and most rewarding first step. Of course, it's easy to be open-minded when you leave yoga class and are taking a stroll by the beach, but when you're suffering, keeping an open mind is hard work. The same is true if you're facing a daunting challenge on the job or at school. Maybe you are tackling a 100-question test and know that you've bricked the first 50. At that point, it's extremely difficult to maintain the necessary discipline to force yourself to keep taking the test seriously. It's also imperative that you find it, because in every failure, there is something to be gained, even if it's only practice for the next test you'll have to take. Because that next test is coming. That's a guarantee. I didn't start my fourth lap with any sort of conviction. I was in wait-and-see mode, and halfway up that first climb, I became so dizzy, I had to sit under a tree for a while. Two runners passed me, one at a time. They checked in, but I waved them on, told them I was just fine. Yeah, I was doing great. I was a regular Akos Konya. From my vantage point, I could see the crest of the hill above and encouraged myself to walk at least that far. If I still wanted to quit after that, I told myself that I would be willing to sign off and that there is no shame in not finishing the Hurt 100. I said that to myself again and again because that's how our governor works. It massages your ego, even as it stops you short of your goals. But once I got to the top of the climb, the higher ground gave me a new perspective, and I saw another place off in the distance and decided to cover that small stretch of mud, rock, and root, too. You know, before quitting for good. Once I got there, I was staring down a long descent, and even though the footing was troubling, it still looked much easier than going uphill. Without realizing it, I'd gotten to a point where I was able to strategize. On the first climb, I was so dizzy and weak, I was swept into a moment of fuck, which clogged my brain. There was no room for strategy. I just wanted to quit. But by moving a little bit further, I'd reset my brain. I'd calm down and realize I could chunk the race down to size. And staying in the game like that gave me hope. And hope is addictive. I chunked the race out that way, collecting 5% chips, unlocking more energy, then burning it up as time bled into the wee hours. I became so tired I damn near fell asleep on my feet. And that's dangerous on a trail, with so many switchbacks and drop-offs. Any runner could have easily sleepwalked into oblivion. The one thing keeping me awake was the piss-poor trail condition. 
I fell on my ass dozens of times. My street shoes were out of their element. It felt like I was running on ice, and the inevitable fall was always jarring, but at least it woke me up. By running a little while, then walking a stretch, I was able to forge ahead to mile 77, the toughest descent of them all, which is when I saw Carl Meltzer, the speed goat, crest the hill behind me. He wore a lamp on his head, and another on his wrist, and a hip pack with two big water bottles. Silhouetted in pink dawn light, he charged down slope, navigating a section that had me stumbling and groping for tree branches to stay upright. He was about to lap me, three miles from the finish line, on pace for a course record, 22 hours and 16 minutes. But what I remember most is how graceful he looked running at an incredible 6 minute and 30 second per mile pace. He was levitating over the mud, riding a whole different zen. His feet barely touched the ground, and it was a beautiful fucking sight. The speed goat was the living, breathing answer to the question that colonized my mind after the Las Vegas Marathon. What am I capable of? Watching that bad man glide across the most challenging terrain made me realize that there is a whole other level of athlete out there in the world, and that some of that was inside me too. In fact, it's in all of us. I'm not saying that genetics don't play a role in athletic performance, or that everyone has an undiscovered ability to run a four-minute mile, dunk like LeBron James, shoot like Steph Curry, or run the Hurt 100 in 22 hours. We don't all have the same floor or ceiling, but we each have a lot more in us than we know. And when it comes to endurance sports, like ultra-running, everyone can achieve feats they once thought impossible. In order to do that, we must change our minds, be willing to scrap our identity, and make the extra effort to always find more in order to become more. We must remove our governor. That day on the Hurt 100 circuit, after seeing Meltzer run like a superhero, I finished my fourth lap in all kinds of pain and took time to watch him celebrate, surrounded by his team. he just achieved something nobody had ever done before, and here I was with another full lap to go. My legs were rubber, my feet swollen. I did not want to go on, but I also knew that was my pain talking. My true potential was still undetermined. Looking back, I'd say I'd given 60%, which meant my tank was just shy of half full. I'd like to sit here and tell you I went all out and drained that fucker on lap five, but I was still a mere tourist on Planet Ultra. I wasn't the master of my mind. I was in the laboratory, still in discovery mode, and I walked every single step of my fifth and final lap. It took me eight hours, but the rain had stopped, the tropical glow of the warm Hawaiian sun felt phenomenal, and I got the job done. I finished Hurt 100 in 33 hours and 23 minutes, just shy of the 36-hour cutoff, good enough for ninth place. Only 23 athletes finished the entire race, and I was one of them. I was so thrashed afterward, two people carried me to the car, and Kate had to spin me up to my room in a damn wheelchair. When we got there, we had more work to do. I wanted to get my bad water application done ASAP. So without so much as a cat nap, we polished that shit up. Within a matter of days, Kosman emailed me to let me know that I had been accepted into Badwater. It was a great feeling. It also meant that for the next six months, I had two full-time jobs. I was a Navy SEAL in full preparation mode for Badwater. This time I would get strategic and specific because I knew that in order to unleash my best performance, if I wanted to blow past 40%, drain my tank, and tap my full potential, I had to first give myself an opportunity. I didn't research or prepare for the Hurt 100 well enough. I hadn't anticipated the rough terrain. 
I had no support crew for the first part of the race, and I had no backup water source. I didn't bring two headlamps, which would have helped during the long, bleak night. And though I sure felt like I had given everything I had, I never even had a chance to access my true 100%. You know, before we get into bad water prep, I think we should just recap what just <laughs> happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was uh, another one. And another one right here. <laughs> right but here. now, so I started realizing right here, well, I started figuring some things out going through, you know, my hell weeks, you know, all this other crap. Um, that 100-mile race, the uh, Las Vegas, you know, marathon. But what's the one thing, what's the one thing that you think, Adam, in this race right here that made me start to think about this 40% rule that I made up? Hmm. What do you think is the one thing? You know, I never asked you that question. What the one thing that made you start to think of that? And I have to say, it's Carl Meltzer. Carl Meltzer was a little fraction of that. But what it was, was as you're reading this, is there anybody around me? Am I racing anybody? Hmm. I'm truly alone. So I was alone in my own thoughts, in for my own mind. For a long time. For a long time. It's like a hell week without anybody around you. Right. And I'm talking about even though it's a five-loop course, man, it, it's almost like you're out there by yourself. There's almost 100 people out there. And once I got past, you know, me and Luis Escobar kind of split off and he took off, I saw Akos and then I saw Carl Meltzer. That was it. You know, I had like another 30 miles or whatever it was left. And I was out there just walking around this daggone jungle, triple canopy jungle, by myself. With nothing to feed off, nobody to feed off but yourself. Exactly. So then I went into my mind to that cookie jar I was talking about. And I started thinking about, okay, man, I need more ways to get through this, man. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And the one thing I realized is it's impossible to find that whole 40% rule, find more, find 60, 70, 80% if you're competing, if you're competing against somebody, that's not the time to start trying to find more. When you're by yourself, you can do a live autopsy because you're not competing with anybody. You're competing against yourself and only yourself. And my best races always came when I went into the race just against David Goggins. There may be a thousand people in the race, but when I ran my own race and was in my own head and did my own thing, that's exactly where this starts. So that's why I was able to figure out all these different tools over the 40% because I was, okay, how can I get from here to there? You're, like, say, you're saying that when you're trying to defeat an opponent in a race or a competition without focusing on just what you have to do to get through the race at your full potential, you, you actually get less strategic. You get kind of out of your body. Right. What happens is when, when you're racing somebody, you start to run their race. Mm. And then you didn't train the way they did. No. You trained the way you did. So this gave me a lot of time to start figuring out my mind. Like I said, I became a scientist. I be, and, and I was the project. Mm. I was the project. I was like, okay, let me see. I'm at mile 40 and I'm done. You were your own monster. Exactly. I'm destroyed. So, you know, let's create, who is it, Frankenstein? Yes. And that's what I did. <clears throat> Frankenstein, you became your own Frankenstein's monster. That's it, man. And that's exactly, I had time out there by myself to think about the possibilities and how can I get from here to there? I'm broken. 
And it started right here. So that's where it started. But, you know, now it's kind of a fully formed thing, the 40% rule. So we don't really go back into it. We don't really, with these principles, we don't then talk about the years later that you polished it. Right. About how long was it before you kind of really put a, a name to it and really understood it as a rule? Was, was it five years? Was it 10 years? How long was it before you really realized, you know, hey, this is the 40%. This is the governor. This is everything. I believe I was doing an interview around 2008. Okay. Somewhere around there. It was be So I did a race called the, um, it was called McNaughton. It was mm. a 150-mile race. That's not in the book. It was a 150-mile race, and the first year I did it, I went out there and got double pneumonia and walked with a guy named Mike. We have to talk about Mike here in the book. Um, a guy named Mike, I walked 90 miles. Oh, my fault. No, no. Ryan Dexter? No, no. This was Mike. Okay. The guy we talked about who's in New York. Yeah. With the family. Oh, that's him. Right, right, yeah. right. So basically what happened was I ran the first 90 miles of a 150-mile race, and at mile 90, I was destroyed. Something happened. I had double pneumonia. Once again, those lung issues came up, and I decided to walk the next 60 miles, and Mike walked with me. The second time I went back, I... I literally said to everybody, I'm going to come back out here the very next year and I'm going to crush this course. And I went back out and I beat the course record by like two hours and I beat my previous time by like eight hours. And this company for Lexus was following me around this track or not. It was like a 10 mile loop. And I did it 15 times for 100 miles in trails. It was nasty, muddy, raining, cold as hell. And this Lexus person was talking to me the whole time. They actually, you know, didn't work for Lexus. They, I guess Lexus hired him for some commercial and they were doing whatever. And that's where I came up with it at. Because hmm. I was out there and I was like, man, you know what? I started having, once again, having more time to reflect on how much I was leaving on the table. But then I started figuring out there's actually steps on how to break down that governor that we put on our minds. Right. So I started figuring out the steps. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to push harder. No, it wasn't like that. All these different, there's actually steps on how to open that up. But nowadays, a lot of people don't want to do that. Why? Because it is so comfortable nowadays. Life is so comfortable. It's so easy to be comfortable. I'm looking around and here in LA, you know, we're here doing this audio book. Everybody has some little scooter. You know, I'm like, what the hell is all these damn scooters, man? I'm like, hey, walk your ass to the fucking store. Everybody's got either a sit-down scooter or a stand-up scooter. Yeah. You know, all these bikes that, you know, you have to pay for, those bikes are all rusted and crusted. Nobody's getting a bike. I got a scooter. Right. So the mind is just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. So trying to find this extra 60%, you really have to go back to the granimalistic mindset that we had back in the day. Love it. So, but that's, but long before that, well, a few years before that, you're still, you're still kind of a neophyte, like you said, in Planet Huge Ultra. Neophyte. Um, Huge. But you knew that you knew that there was some, so much more. I mean, you were done after three laps. I mean, you were trashed and, and yet you did 40 more miles of this hellish course and you hadn't even really prepared. You hadn't really even put yourself in a position to get to a hundred. So you knew there was this gap there. Oh, a hundred percent. Cause this gave me a lot of time also in the Hurt 100 to think about the first 100-mile race I did with no training. And then going out to the daggone Las Vegas Marathon, I'm thinking, God, dog. So that actually gave me tons of fuel to start discovering even more in this race. Because I was, th once again, the cookie jar, 
I went back in the cookie jar in my mind, started thinking, hang on a second, David, you're broke down at mile 40, but you were shitting on yourself at mile 70 in the first race you did. Yeah. So I was like, okay, we got some more. Badwater was going to be different. I researched day and night. I studied the course, noted temperature and elevation variances, and charted them out. I wasn't just interested in the air temperature. I drilled down deeper so I knew how hot the pavement would be on the hottest Death Valley day ever. I googled videos of the race and watched them for hours. I read blogs from runners who completed it. I noted their pitfalls and training techniques. I drove north to Death Valley and explored the entire course. Seeing the terrain up close revealed its brutality. The first 42 miles were dead flat. A run through God's blast furnace cranked up high. That would be my best opportunity to make good time. But to survive it, I'd need two crew vehicles to leapfrog one another and set up cooling stations every third of a mile. The thought of it thrilled me, but then again, I wasn't living it yet. I was listening to music, windows down on a spring day in a blooming desert. I was comfortable as hell. It was all still a fucked up fantasy. I marked off the best spots to set up my cooling stations. I noted wherever the shoulder was wide and where stopping would have to be avoided. I also took note of gas stations and other places to fill up on water and buy ice. There weren't many of them, but they were all mapped. After running the desert gauntlet, I'd earn some relief from the heat and pay for it with altitude. The next stage of the race was an 18-mile climb to Town Pass at 4,800 feet. The sun would be setting by then, and after driving that section, I pulled over, closed my eyes, and visualized it all. Research is one part of preparation. Visualization is another. Following that town pass climb, I would face a bone-crushing nine-mile descent. I could see it unfurl from the top of the pass. One thing I learned from the Hurt 100 is that running downhill fucks you up bad, and this time I'd be doing it on asphalt. I closed my eyes, opened my mind, and tried to feel the pain in my quads and calves, knees and shins. I knew my quads would bear the brunt of that descent, so I made a note to add muscle. My thighs would need to be plated in steel. The 18-mile climb up Darwin Pass from mile 72 would be pure hell. I'd have to run-walk that section. But the sun would be down, I'd welcome the chill in Lone Pine, and from there I could make up some time because that's where the road flattened out again before the final 13-mile climb up Whitney Portal Road to the finish line at 8,374 feet. Then again, it's easy to write, make up time in your notepad, and another to execute it when you get there in real life. But at least I had notes. Together with my annotated maps, they made up my Badwater file, which I studied like I was preparing for another ASVAB test. I sat at my kitchen table, read and reread them, and visualized each mile the best I could. But I also knew that my body still hadn't recovered from Hawaii, which hampered the other, even more important aspect of my Badwater prep, physical training. I was in dire need of PT, but my tendons still hurt so bad I couldn't run for months. Pages were flying off the calendar. I needed to get harder and become the strongest runner possible, and the fact that I couldn't train like I'd hoped sapped my confidence. Plus, word had gotten out at work about what I was getting myself into, and while I had some support from fellow SEALs, I got my share of negativity too, especially when they found out I still couldn't run. But that was nothing new. Who hasn't dreamed up a possibility for themselves only to have friends, colleagues, or family shit all over it? Most of us are motivated as hell to do anything to pursue our dreams until those around us remind us of the danger, the downside, our own limitations, and all the people before us that didn't make it. 
Sometimes the advice comes from a well-intentioned place. They really believe they are doing it for our own good. But if you let them, these same people will talk you out of your dreams, and your governor will help them do it. That's one reason I invented the cookie jar. We must create a system that constantly reminds us who the fuck we are when we are at our best, because life is not going to pick us up when we fall. There will be forks in the road, knives in your fucking back, mountains to climb, and we are only capable of living up to the image we create for ourselves. Prepare yourself. We know life can be hard, and yet we feel sorry for ourselves when it isn't fair. From this point forward, accept the following as Goggins' laws of nature. You will be made fun of. You will feel insecure. You may not be the best all the time. You may be the only black, white, Asian, Latino, female, male, gay, lesbian, or fill in your identity here in a given situation. There will be times when you feel alone. Get over it. Our minds are fucking strong. They are our most powerful weapon, but we have stopped using them. We have access to so many more resources today than ever before, yet we are so much less capable than those who came before us. If you want to be one of the few to defy those trends in our ever-softening society, you will have to be willing to go to war with yourself and create a whole new identity, which requires an open mind. It's funny. Being open-minded is often tagged as new age or soft. Fuck that. Being open-minded enough to find a way is old school. It's what knuckle-draggers do. And that's exactly what I did. I borrowed my friend Stokes' bike. He also graduated in class 235. And instead of running to work, I rode there and back every day. There was an elliptical trainer in the brand new SEAL Team 5 gym, and I hit it once and sometimes twice a day, with five layers of clothes on. Death Valley heat scared the shit out of me, so I simulated it. I suited up in three or four pairs of sweatpants and a few pullover sweatshirts, a hoodie and a fleece hat, all sealed up in a Gore-Tex shell. After two minutes on the elliptical, my heart rate was at 170, and I stayed at it for two hours at a time. Before or after that, I'd hop on the rowing machine and bang out 30,000 meters, which is nearly 20 miles. I never did anything for 10 or 20 minutes. My entire mindset was ultra. It had to be. Afterward, I could be seen wringing my clothes out like I just soaked them in a river. Most of the guys thought I was whacked out, but my old buds instructor, SBG, fucking loved it. That spring, I was tasked as a land warfare instructor for SEALs at our base in Nyland, California a sorry scrap of Southern California desert, its trailer parks rampant with unemployed meth heads. Drugged out drifters who filtered through the disintegrating settlements on the Salton Sea, an inland body of water 60 miles from the Mexico border, were our only neighbors. Whenever I passed them on the street while out on a 10-mile ruck, they'd stare like I was an alien that had materialized into the real world from one of their speed-addled vision quests. Then again, I was dressed in three layers of clothes and a Gore-Tex jacket in peak 100-degree heat. I did look like some evil messenger from the way out beyond. By then my injuries had become manageable, and I ran 10 miles at a time, then hiked the hills around Nyland for hours, weighed down with a 50-pound ruck. The team guys I was training considered me an alien being too, and a few of them were more frightened of me than the meth heads. They thought something had happened to me on the battlefield out in that other desert where war wasn't a game. What they didn't know was the battlefield for me was my own mind. I drove back out to Death Valley to train and did a 10-mile run in a sauna suit. That motherfucker was hot as balls, but I had the hardest race in the world ahead of me, and I'd run 100 miles twice. I knew how that felt, and the prospect of having to take on an additional 35 miles petrified me. Sure, I talked a good game, 
projected all kinds of confidence, and raised tens of thousands of dollars. But part of me didn't know if I had what it took to finish the race, so I had to invent barbaric PT to give myself a chance. It takes a lot of will to push yourself when you are all alone. I hated getting up in the morning, knowing what the day held for me. It was very lonely. But I knew that on the Badwater course, I'd reach a point where the pain would become unbearable and feel insurmountable. Maybe it would be at mile 50 or 60, maybe later. But there would be a time when I'd want to quit, and I had to be able to slay the one-second decisions in order to stay in the game and access my untapped 60%. During all the lonely hours of heat training, I'd started to dissect the quitting mind and realized that if I was going to perform close to my absolute potential and make the Warrior Foundation proud, I'd have to do more than answer the simple question as they came up. I'd have to stifle the quitting mind before it gained any traction at all. Before I ever asked myself why, I'd need my cookie jar on recall to convince me that despite what my body was saying, I was immune to suffering. Because nobody quits an ultra race or hell week in a split second. People make the decision to quit hours before they ring that bell. So I needed to be present enough to recognize when my body and mind were starting to fail in order to short-circuit the impulse to look for a way out long before I tumbled into that fatal funnel. Ignoring pain or blocking out the truth like I did at the San Diego one day would not work this time. And if you are on the hunt for your 100%, you should catalog your weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Don't ignore them. Be prepared for them. Because in any endurance event, in any high-stress environment, your weaknesses will surface like bad karma, build in volume, and overwhelm you, unless you get ahead of them first. This is an exercise in recognition and visualization. You must recognize what you are about to do, highlight what you do not like about it, and spend time visualizing each and every obstacle you can. I was afraid of the heat, so in the run-up to Badwater, I imagined new and more medieval self-torture rituals disguised as training sessions, or maybe it was the other way around. I told myself I was immune to suffering, but that didn't mean I was immune to pain. I hurt like everybody else, but I was committed to working my way around and through it so it would not derail me. By the time I towed up to the line at Badwater at 6 a.m. on July 22, 2006, I'd moved my governor to 80%. I'd doubled my ceiling in six months. And you know what that guaranteed me? Jack fucking shit. Badwater has a staggered start. Rookies started at 6 a.m. Veteran runners had an 8 a.m. start. And the true contenders wouldn't take off until 10 a.m., which put them in Death Valley for peak heat. Chris Kosman was one hilarious son of a bitch but he didn't know he'd given one hard motherfucker a serious tactical advantage. Not me. I'm talking about Akos Konya. Akos and I met up the night before at the Furnace Creek Inn, where all the athletes stayed. He was a first-timer, too, and he looked a hell of a lot better since the last time we saw one another. Despite his issues at the Hurt 100, he finished, by the way, in 35 hours and 17 minutes. I knew Akos was a stud, and since we were both in the first group, I let him pace me through the desert. Bad call. For the first 17 miles, we were side by side, and we looked like an odd couple. Akos is a 5'7", 122-pound Hungarian. I was the biggest man in the field at 6'1", 195 pounds, and the only black guy, too. Akos was sponsored and dressed in a colorful branded getup. I wore a torn gray tank top, black running shorts, and streamlined Oakley sunglasses. My feet and ankles were wrapped in compression tape and stuffed into broken-in but still springy running shoes. I didn't wear Navy SEAL gear or Warrior Foundation garb. I preferred to go incognito. I was the shadow figure filtering into a new world of pain. 
Although Akko set a fast pace, the heat didn't bother me, partly because it was early and because I'd heat trained so well. We were the two best runners in the 6 a.m. group by far, and when we passed the Furnace Creek Inn at 8.40 a.m., some of the runners from the 10 a.m. group were outside, including Scott Jurek, the defending champion, Badwater record holder, and an ultra legend. He must have known we were making great time, but I'm not sure he realized that he just glimpsed his stiffest competition. Not long after, Akos put some space between us, and at mile 26, I started to realize that, once again, I went out way too fast. I was dizzy and lightheaded, and I was dealing with GI issues. Translation, I had to shit on the side of the road. All of which stemmed from the fact that I was severely dehydrated. My mind spun with dire prognosis after dire prognosis. Excuses to quit piled up one after another. I didn't listen. I responded by taking care of my dehydration issue and pounding more water than I wanted. I went through the stovepipe wells checkpoint at mile 42 at 1.31 p.m., a full hour after Akos. I'd been on the race course for over seven and a half hours and was almost exclusively walking by then. I was proud just to have made it through Death Valley on my feet. I took a break, went to a proper bathroom, and changed my clothes. My feet had swollen more than I'd expected, and my right big toe had been chafing the side of the shoe for hours, so stopping felt like sweet relief. I felt the bloom of a blood blister on the side of my left foot, but I knew better than to take off my shoes. Most athletes size up their shoes to run bad water, and even then, they cut out the big toe side panel to create space for swelling and to minimize chafing. I did not, and I had 90 more miles ahead of me. I hiked the entire 18-mile climb to Town Pass at 4,850 feet. As predicted, the sun dropped as I crested the pass. The air cooled, and I pulled on another layer. In the military, we always say we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. And as I hiked up the winding highway with my blister barking, I fell into the same rhythm I'd find on my long rucks in the desert around Nyland. I wasn't running, but I kept a strong pace and covered a lot of ground. I stuck to my script, ran the entire nine-mile descent, and my quads paid the price. So did my left foot. My blister was growing by the minute. I could feel it verging on hot air balloon status. If only it would burst through the side of my shoe like an old cartoon and continue to expand until it carried me into the clouds and dropped me onto the peak of Mount Whitney itself. No such luck. I kept walking. And aside from my crew, which included, among others, my wife, Kate was crew chief, and mother, I didn't see anybody else. I was on an eternal ruck, marching beneath a black dome sky glittering with starlight. I'd been walking for so long I expected a swarm of runners to materialize at any moment, then leave me in their wake. But nobody showed. The only evidence of life on planet pain was the rhythm of my own hot breath, the burn of my cartoon blister, and the high beams and red tail lights of road trippers blazing trails through the California night. That is, until the sun was ready to rise, and a swarm finally did arrive at mile 110. I was exhausted and dehydrated by then, glazed in sweat, dirt, and salt, when horseflies began to dive-bomb me one at a time. Two became four, which became ten and fifteen. They beat their wings against my skin, bit my thighs, and crawled into my ears. This shit was biblical, and it was my very last test. My crew took turns swatting flies off my skin with a towel. I was in personal best territory already. I'd covered more than 110 miles on foot, and with only 25 miles to go, there was no fucking way these devil flies would stop me. Would they? I kept marching, and my crew kept swatting flies for the next eight miles. 
Since watching Akos run away from me after mile 17, I hadn't seen another Badwater runner until mile 122, when Kate pulled up alongside me. Scott Jurek is two miles behind you, she said. We were more than 26 hours into the race, and Akos had already finished, but the fact that Jurek was just now catching me meant my time must have been pretty damn good. I hadn't run much, but all those Nyland rucks made my hiking strides swift and strong. I was able to power hike 15-minute miles and got my nutrition on the move to save time. After it was all over, when I examined the splits and finishing times of all the competitors, I realized my biggest fear, the heat, had actually helped me. It was the great equalizer. It made fast runners slow. With Jurek on the hunt, I was inspired to give it everything I had as I turned onto Whitney Portal Road and started the final 13-mile climb. I flashed onto my pre-race strategy to walk the slopes and run the flats as the road switched back like a snake, slithering into the clouds. Jurek wasn't pursuing me, but he was on the chase. Akos had finished in 25 hours and 58 minutes, and Jurek hadn't been at his best that day. The clock was winding down on his effort to repeat as Badwater champion, but he had the tactical advantage of knowing Akos's time in advance. He also knew his splits. Akos hadn't had that luxury, and somewhere on the highway, he'd stopped for a 30-minute nap. Jurek wasn't alone. He had a pacer, a formidable runner in his own right named Dusty Olson, who nipped at his heels. Word was, Olson ran at least 70 miles of the race himself. I heard them approach from behind, and whenever the road switched back, I could see them below me. Finally, at mile 128, on the steepest part of the steepest road in this entire fucked-up race, they were right behind me. I stopped running, got out of the way, and cheered them on. Jurek was the fastest ultra-runner in history at that point, but his pace wasn't electric that late in the game. It was consistent. He chopped down the mighty mountain with each deliberate step. He wore black running shorts, a blue sleeveless shirt, and a white baseball cap. Behind him, Olsen had his long, shoulder-length hair corralled with a bandana. Otherwise, their uniform was identical. Jurek was the mule, and Olsen was riding him. Come on, Jerker. Come on, Jerker. This is your race, Olsen said as they passed me up. No one is better than you. No one. Olsen kept talking as they ran ahead, reminding Jurek that he had more to give. Jurek obliged and kept charging up the mountain. He left it all out on that unforgiving asphalt. It was amazing to watch. Jurek wound up winning the 2006 edition of Badwater when he finished in 25 hours and 41 minutes, 17 minutes faster than Akos, who must have regretted his power nap. But that wasn't my concern. I had a race of my own to finish. Whitney Portal Road winds up a parched, exposed rock escarpment for 10 miles before finding shade and gathering stands of cedar and pine. Energized by Jurek and his crew, I ran most of the last seven miles. I used my hips to push my legs forward, and every single step was agony. But after 30 hours, 18 minutes, and 54 seconds of running, hiking, sweating, and suffering, I snapped the tape to the cheers of a small crowd. I'd wanted to quit 30 times. I had to mentally inch my way through 135 miles. But 90 runners competed that day, and I came in fifth place. I plodded over to a grassy slope in the woods and lay back on a bed of pine needles as Kate unlaced my shoes. That blister had fully colonized my left foot. It was so big it looked like a sixth toe, the color and texture of cherry bubblegum. I marveled at it while she removed the compression tape from my feet. Then I staggered to the stage to accept my medal from Kosman. i just finished one of the hardest races on planet Earth. I'd visualized that moment ten times at least, 
and thought I'd be elated, but I wasn't. He handed me my medal, shook my hand, and interviewed me for the crowd, but I was only half there. While he spoke, I flashed the final climb and a pass above 8,000 feet, where the view was unreal. I could see all the way to Death Valley. Near the end of another horrible journey, I got to see where I came from. It was the perfect metaphor for my twisted life. Once again I was broken, destroyed twenty different ways, but I'd passed another evolution, another crucible, and my reward was a lot more than a medal and a few minutes with Kosman's microphone. It was a whole new bar. I closed my eyes and saw Jurek and Olsen, Akos and Carl Meltzer. All of them had something I didn't. They understood how to drain every last drop and put themselves in a position to win the world's most difficult races, and it was time to seek out that feeling for myself. I'd prepared like a madman. I knew myself and the terrain. I stayed ahead of the quitting mind, answered the simple questions, and stayed in the race. But there was more to be done. There was still somewhere higher for me to rise. A cool breeze rustled the trees, dried the sweat from my skin, and soothed my aching bones. It whispered in my ear and shared a secret which echoed in my brain like a drumbeat that wouldn't stop. There is no finish line, Goggins. There is no finish line. I absolutely loved that race. That race taught me a lot. And what's funny about that, I was, I was um, going back through it, and that whole little grassy, that, that, that grassy area with the tree where I kind of went over to, Yep. And my ex-wife now, she's not my ex-wife, she was taking the tape off of my feet because I actually, as you know, the uh, listener knows now, I had to tape up my ankles with compression tape and she was taking it off. But how that all came to be, I believe the movie, they actually did like a documentary on, the, on Badwater 135. And I think it's called Running on the Sun. Hmm. And... It kind of uh, featured a guy named Gabriel Flores, and I got—I th- I think the guy's name was Eric. Was name Eric Clifton, or just something like that. Anyway, but I watched the guy named Gabriel Flores, and I watched this video probably 200 times, from the time I got in the Badwater race to the time I did the Badwater race. And Gabriel Flores came in second place that year. The the year before the documentary, he actually won the race. So I wanted to see how he ran the race. I was trying to get ideas from him, how, how his crewing was, how his pacing was, all these different things. But what I saw was the very end of the race. He's going up the mountain. He's all messed up, and his crew's asking him questions. Hey, why are you out here? And I think he just said, you know, he said pride. He said pride. Or, or, or what's keeping you going? He said pride. So he comes up the mountain. He gets to the very top of the mountain, and the same spot that I went and sat down at, you know, when I when I crossed the finish line, it was the same spot Gabriel Flores crossed. And the whole reason why I'm telling you the story was I was visualizing that spot for about 120 miles. I was visualizing that movie. I was visualizing, you know, me driving through Death Valley, all the checkpoints. But I was visualizing Gabriel Flores sitting down or laying down under that one tree in that one little grassy area, in, in, um, if you all go to Badwater videos, just Google Badwater 135, 2006 David Goggins, and you'll see my ex-wife taking the tape off me. In that one spot that I'm sitting in, I visualized that one spot a million times. 
So it's just an interesting story. That's interesting. And uh, what I like about this whole thing is, unlike Hurt 100, you, yeah, you, you got some miles in for that and San Diego one day. This really does show when you prepare like you break down here that, that it can have success because because of Nyland, you were able to power hike, right. which probably kept you in the race, right? If you had felt oh. like you'd had to run, it would have been harder for you. The only thing was that, You yeah. found a rhythm in the power hike. Um, the heat training worked. I mean, you had so much that worked. You know, you had you had the two, you had your two uh, vehicles, all that worked. So, so much of your preparation worked. So that had to be really encouraging for you. And part of the reason you felt like you could go even higher. Well, I'm glad you talked about those two things because those two things, I went back to my accountability mirror hmm. and I wrote down what, you know, what are my weaknesses? I'm not a great runner. So I put that on my board. Not a great runner. Second of all, I, I was not great in the heat. So I kept repeating those things and they kind of, you know, I, I was afraid of them. So literally, man, I, I was like, well, I guarantee you at about mile 40 or 50, man, my, my body's going to break down. So I had to really get that hiking muscle going. And, and if you run a lot and you don't walk, you can run a five minute mile. But if you haven't hiked a lot, you're not going to be a good run, you know, like, like a good hiker. So I started, you know, working those different muscle groups, hiking a ton, hiking a ton uphill. So I realized also at about mile 90, 100, I'm going to feel like shit. So I need to kind of mimic how I'm going to feel. So I put that 50-pound rucksack on, you know, during my training. And I lived, I lived in the sauna because I knew that um, the one thing that gets people out there is the heat. And it's the great equalizer. And it made it fast runner slow, as we talked about here. Hmm. You know, I was just in Lone Pine, Bishop area in the Sierra Nevadas, and uh, as we were driving up, <laughs> those fucking horse flies started buzzing around. Come we could on, see man. One of those horse flies <laughs> landed on my fucking windshield when we were stopped at a light, like in Bishop or Lone Pine or something. Yeah, that's and, where they're at. And I said, <laughs> I said to my wife, I'm like, that's one of those flies, and she could not fucking believe it because she'd read that. Dude. And, and, she couldn't even fucking believe a swarm of those motherfuckers. It was biblical. <laughs> it was literally biblical. And another thing that jacked me up, so I'm out there running, and I always heard stories about people frying frying eggs on the daggone pavement out there. Mm. And so, you know, they're like, hey, you got to run on the white line because the daggone, you know, pavement's like, you know, it's like 220 or whatever. I was like, man, this is a bunch of bullshit. I'll never forget going through mile 42 at Stovepipe Wells. And this guy was out there frying an egg on the pavement just to make you think, what the fuck am I doing out here? Mm. And I was like, and I looked down and I said, my God, man, this is some hot shit. So, yeah, it was a, it was a <laughs> no joke race. Crazy, dude. And I also have a picture of my toe in the book. Yes. Yeah, so that's a, it's a, it's a nice, great picture of that nice, it looks like a, um, like you got a red balloon. Yeah. kind of blew it up and put it over my toe. That's that's it. That's where we got the description from, man. Exactly. Very good. All right, let's give these guys a challenge because it's time for our listeners and readers to uh, start to ratchet up and find some of that extra 60% that they've been kind of leaving in the tank. Challenge number seven. The main objective here is to slowly start to remove the governor from your brain. First, a quick reminder of how this process works. In 1999, when I weighed 297 pounds, my first run was a quarter mile. 
Fast forward to 2007, I ran 205 miles in 39 hours, nonstop. I didn't get there overnight, and I don't expect you to either. Your job is to push past your normal stopping point. Whether you are running on a treadmill or doing a set of push-ups, get to the point where you are so tired and in pain that your mind is begging you to stop. Then push just 5 to 10% further. If the most push-ups you have ever done is 100 in a workout, do 105 or 110. If you normally run 30 miles each week, run 10% more next week. This gradual ramp-up will help prevent injury and allow your body and mind to slowly adapt to your new workload. It also resets your baseline, which is important because you're about to increase your workload another 5-10% to 10 the following week and the week after that. There is so much pain and suffering involved in physical challenges that it's the best training to take command of your inner dialogue, and the newfound mental strength and confidence you gain by continuing to push yourself physically will carry over to other aspects in your life. You will realize that if you are underperforming in your physical challenges, there is a good chance you are underperforming at school and work too. The bottom line is that life is one big mind game. The only person you are playing against is yourself. Stick with this process, and soon what you thought was impossible will be something you do every fucking day of your life. I want to hear your stories. Post on social. Hashtags. Hashtag can't hurt me. Hashtag the 40% rule. Hashtag don't get comfortable. Anything you want to add to that? Uh... Yeah. I mean, just one quick thing. Understand this. There's a big caution in this whole chapter. Do not do what I did. That is, and what I mean by that is, I figured out the 40% rule from literally destroying myself. Don't go out here and say, oh, David Goggins ran 100 miles, no training. Oh, I can go do that. You might be able to. But the whole thing about it is you have to do this 5, 10. Some of you maybe will go 20% more. But the whole thing is don't go from 0 to 100 because it will jack you up. Yeah, I mean, just do it as you prescribe here, 5 to 10% each week. And the point is, if you do that, you there is a, it's, it's, infinite, it's infinite where you can go. 100%. You'll never get to 100. That's the point. Matter of fact, I put a ceiling on mine for a little bit because I jacked my body up so much, I wasn't able to heal. So I was, you know, running, taping myself up, trying to find different heel wedges and different inserts just to run. So when your body's broken, you know, I had to go so, I mean, so deep in my mind to pull it off that, you know, it was just, it was unbelievable. So don't do it my way. Do it this way. Chapter 8. Talent Not Required The night before the first long-distance triathlon in my life, I stood with my mother on the deck of a sprawling $7 million beach house in Kona, watching the moonlight play on the water. Most people know Kona, a gorgeous town on the west coast of the island of Hawaii, and triathlons in general, thanks to the Ironman World Championships. Although there are far more Olympic distance and shorter sprint triathlons held around the world than there are Ironman events, it was the original Ironman in Kona that placed the sport on the international radar. It starts with a 2.4-mile swim, followed by a 112-mile bike ride, and closes with a marathon run. Add to that stiff and shifting winds and blistering heat corridors reflected by harsh lava fields, and the race reduces most competitors to open blisters of raw anguish. But I wasn't here for that. 
I came to Kona to compete in a less celebrated form of even more intense masochism. I was there to compete for the title of Ultraman. Over the next three days, I would swim 6.2 miles, ride 261 miles, and run a double marathon, covering the entire perimeter of the big island of Hawaii. Once again, I was raising money for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, and because I'd been written up and interviewed on camera after Badwater, I was invited by a multimillionaire I'd never met to stay in his absurd palace on the sand in the run-up to the Ultraman World Championships in November 2006. It was a generous gesture, but I was so focused on becoming the very best version of myself, his glitz didn't impress me. In my mind, I still hadn't achieved shit. If anything, staying in his house only inflated the chip on my shoulder. He would never have invited my wannabe thug ass to come chill with him in Kona luxury back in the day. He only reached out because I'd become somebody a rich guy like him wanted to know. Still, I appreciated being able to show my mom a better life. And whenever I was offered a taste, I invited her to experience it with me. She'd swallowed more pain than anyone I'd ever known, and I wanted to remind her that we'd climbed out of that gutter, while I kept my own gaze locked at sewer level. We didn't live in that $7 a month place in Brazil anymore, but I was still paying rent on that motherfucker, and will be for the rest of my life. The race launched from the beach beside the pier in downtown Kona, the same start line as the Ironman World Championships, but there wasn't much of a crowd for our race. There were only 30 athletes in the entire field, compared to over 1,200 in the Ironman. It was such a small group I could look every one of my competitors in the eye and size them up, which is how I noticed the hardest man on the beach. I never did catch his name, but I'll always remember him, because he was in a wheelchair. Talk about heart. That man had a presence beyond his stature. He was fucking immense. Ever since I'd started up in Buds, I'd been in search of people like that. Men and women with an uncommon way of thinking. One thing that surprised me about military special operations was that some of the guys lived so mainstream. They weren't trying to push themselves every day of their lives, and I wanted to be around people who thought and trained uncommon 24-7, not just when duty called. That man had every excuse in the world to be at home, but he was ready to do one of the hardest stage races in the world, something 99.9% .9 of the public wouldn't even consider, and with just his two arms. To me, he was what ultra racing was all about, and it's why after Badwater, I'd become hooked on this world. Talent wasn't required for this sport. It was all about heart and hard work, and it delivered relentless challenge after relentless challenge, always demanding more. But that doesn't mean I was well prepared for this race. I still didn't own a bike. I borrowed one three weeks earlier from another friend. It was a Griffin, an uber high-end bicycle, custom-made for my friend who was even bigger than I was. I borrowed his clip-in shoes, too, which were just shy of clown-sized. I filled the empty space with thick socks and compression tape and didn't take the time to learn bike mechanics before leaving for Kona. Changing tires, fixing chains and spokes, all the stuff I know how to do now, I hadn't learned yet. I just borrowed the bike and logged over a thousand miles in the three weeks prior to Ultraman. I'd wake up at 4 a.m. and get 100-mile rides in before work. On weekends, I'd ride 125 miles get off the bike and run a marathon. But I only did six training swims, just two in the open water. And in the ultra octagon, all your weaknesses are revealed. The 10 kilometer swim should have taken me about two and a half hours to complete, but it took me over three and it hurt. I was dressed in a sleeveless wetsuit for buoyancy, but it was too tight under my arms. And within 30 minutes, my armpits began to chafe. 
An hour later, the salty edge of my suit had become a sandpaper that ripped my skin with every stroke. I switched from freestyle to side stroke and back again, desperate for comfort that never came. Every revolution of my arms cut my skin raw and bloody on both sides. Plus the sea was choppy as hell. I drank seawater, my stomach flipped and flopped like a fish suffocating in fresh air, and I puked a half dozen times at least. Because of the pain, my poor mechanics, and the strong current, I swam a meandering line that stretched to seven and a half miles. All of that in order to clear what was supposed to be a 6.2-mile swim. My legs were jelly when I staggered to shore, and my vision rocked like a teeter-totter during an earthquake. I had to lie down, then crawl behind the bathrooms, where I vomited again. Other swimmers gathered in the transition area, hopped into their saddles, and pedaled off into the lava fields in a blink. We still had a 90-mile bike ride to knock off before the day was done, and they were getting after it while I was still on my knees. Right on time, those simple questions bubbled to the surface. Why the fuck am I even out here? I'm not a triathlete. I'm chafed to hell, sick as fuck, and the first part of the ride is all uphill. Why do you keep doing this to yourself, Goggins? I sounded like a whiny bitch, but I knew finding some comfort would help me hem my vagina, so I paid no attention to the other athletes who eased through their transition. I had to focus on getting my legs under me and slowing my spun-out mind. First, I got some food down, a little at a time. Then I treated the cuts under my arms. Most triathletes don't change their clothes. I did. I slipped on some comfortable bike shorts and a Lycra shirt, and 15 minutes later I was upright, in the saddle, and climbing into the lava fields. For the first 20 minutes, I was still nauseous. I pedaled and puked, replenished my fluids, and puked again. Through it all, I gave myself one job. Stay in the fight. Stay in it long enough to find a foothold. Ten miles later, as the road rose onto the shoulders of a giant volcano and the incline increased, I shook off my sea legs and found momentum. Riders appeared ahead like bogeys on a radar, and I picked them off, one by one. Victory was a cure-all. Each time I passed another motherfucker, I got less and less sick. I was in 14th place when I saddled up, but by the time I approached the end of the 90-mile leg, there was only one man in front of me, Gary Wang, the favorite in the race. As I hammered toward the finish line, I could see a reporter and photographer from Triathlete Magazine interviewing him. None of them expected to see my black ass, and they all watched me carefully. During the four months since Badwater, I'd often dreamt of being in a position to win an ultra race. And as I coasted past Gary and those reporters, I knew the moment had arrived. My expectations were intergalactic. The following morning, we lined up for the second stage a 171-mile bike ride through the mountains and back toward the West Coast. Gary Wang had a buddy in the race, Jeff Landauer, a.k.a. the Land Shark, and those two rode together. Gary had done the race before and knew the terrain. I didn't, and by mile 100, I was roughly six minutes off the lead. As usual, my mother and Kate were my two-headed support crew. They handed me replacement water bottles, packets of goo, and protein drinks from the side of the road which I consumed in motion to keep my glycogen and electrolyte levels up. I'd become much more scientific about my nutrition since that Myoplex and Ritz cracker meltdown in San Diego. And with the biggest climb of the day looming into view, I needed to be ready to roar. On a bicycle, mountains produce pain, and pain was my business. As the road peaked in pitch, I put my head down and hammered as hard as I could. My lungs heaved until they were flipped inside out and back again. My heart was a pounding baseline. When I crested the pass, my mom pulled up alongside me and hollered, David, 
You are two minutes off the lead. Roger that. I curled into an aerodynamic crouch and shot downhill at over 40 miles per hour. My borrowed griffin was equipped with aero bars, and I leaned over them, focusing only on the white dotted line and my perfect form. When the road leveled off, I went all out and kept my pace up around 27 miles per hour. I had a land shark and his buddy on an industrial-sized hook and was reeling them all the way in until my front tire blew. Before I had time to react, I was off the bike, somersaulting over the handlebars into space. I could see it happening in slow motion, but time sped back up when I crash-landed on my right side and my shoulder crumpled with blunt force. The side of my face skidded the asphalt until I stopped moving, and I rolled onto my back in shock. My mother slammed on her brakes, leapt from the car, and rushed over. I was bleeding in five places, but nothing felt broken, except my helmet, which was cracked in two, my sunglasses, which were shattered, and my bicycle. I'd run over a bolt that pierced the tire, tube, and rim. I didn't pay attention to my road rash, the pain in my shoulder, or the blood dribbling down my elbow and cheek. All I thought about was that bicycle. Once again, I was underprepared. I had no spare parts and didn't have any clue how to change a tube or a tire. I had rented a backup bicycle, which was in my mom's rental car, but it was a heavy, slow piece of shit compared to that Griffin. It didn't even have clip-in pedals, so I called for the official race mechanics to assess the Griffin. As we waited, seconds piled up into 20 precious minutes, and when mechanics arrived, they didn't have supplies to fix my front wheel either. So I hopped on my clunky back up and kept rolling. I tried not to think of bad luck and missed opportunities. I needed to finish strong and get myself within striking distance by the end of the day, because day three would bring a double marathon, and I was convinced that I was the best runner in the field. Sixteen miles from the finish line, the bike mechanic tracked me down. He'd repaired my griffin. I switched out my hardware for the second time and made up eight minutes on the leaders, finishing the day in third place, 22 minutes off the lead. I crafted a simple strategy for day three. Go out hard and build up a fat cushion over Gary and the Landshark, so that when I hit the inevitable wall, I'd have enough distance to maintain the overall lead all the way to the finish line. In other words, I didn't have any strategy at all. I began my run at Boston Marathon qualifying pace. I pushed hard because I wanted my competitors to hear my splits and forfeit their souls as I built that big lead I'd anticipated. I knew I would blow up somewhere. That's ultra life. I just hoped it would happen late enough in the race that Gary and the Landshark would be content to race one another for second and give up all hope of winning the overall title. Didn't happen quite like that. At mile 35, I was already in agony and walking more than I was running. By mile 40, I watched both enemy vehicles pull up so their crew chiefs could peep my form. I was showing a ton of weakness, which gave Gary and the Landshark ammunition. The miles mounted too slowly. I hemorrhaged time. Luckily, by mile 45, Gary had blown up too, but the Landshark was rock solid, still on my ass, and I didn't have anything left to fight him off. Instead, as I suffered and staggered toward downtown Kona, my lead evaporated. In the end, the land shark taught me a vital lesson. From day one, he had run his own race. My early burst on day three didn't faze him. He welcomed it as the ill-conceived strategy that it was, focused on his own pace, waited me out, and took my soul. I was the first athlete to cross the finish line of the Ultraman that year, but as far as the clock was concerned, I was no champion. While I came in first place on the run, I lost the overall race by 10 minutes and took second place. 
the land shark was crowned Ultraman. I watched him celebrate knowing exactly how I'd wasted an opportunity to win. I'd lost my vantage point. I'd never evaluated the race strategically and didn't have any backstops in place. Backstops are a versatile tool that I employ in all facets of my life. I was lead navigator when I operated in Iraq with the SEAL teams, and backstop is a navigation term. It's the mark I made on my map, an alert that we'd missed a turn or veered off course. Let's say you're navigating through the woods and you have to go one click toward a ridgeline, then make a turn. In the military, we would do a map study ahead of time and mark that turn on our maps, and another point about 200 meters past that turn, and a third an additional 150 meters past the second mark. Those last two marks are your backstops. Typically, I use terrain features, like roads, creeks, a giant cliff in the countryside, or landmark buildings in an urban setting, so that when we hit them, I knew we'd gone off course. That's what backstops are for, to tell you to turn around, reassess, and take an alternative route to accomplish the same mission. I never left our base in Iraq without having three exit strategies, a primary route and two others pinned to backstops we could fall back to if our main route became compromised. On day three of Ultraman, I tried to win with sheer will. I was all motor, no intellect. I didn't evaluate my condition, respect my opponent's heart, or manage the clock well enough. I had no primary strategy, let alone alternative avenues to victory, and therefore I had no idea where to employ backstops. In retrospect, I should have paid more attention to my own clock, and my backstop should have been placed on my split times. When I saw how fast I was running that first marathon, I should have been alarmed and eased off the gas. A slower first marathon may have left me with enough energy to drop the hammer once we were back in the lava fields on the Ironman course, heading toward the finish line. That's when you take someone's soul. At the end of the race, not at the beginning. I'd raced hard, but if I'd run smarter and handled the bike situation better, I would have given myself a better chance to win. You know, I gotta ask you, one thing we don't say in this is uh, you ran that double marathon that you're chastising yourself for with a fucked up shoulder and road rash. Yeah, I was, yeah, <laughs> we don't talk about that too much. <laughs> no, so what, I mean, it's not the first time you've, you've <clears throat> run injured, obviously. We've talked about broken legs, so it's actually not as bad as that. But what exactly, what was going on um, physically there? You know what, honestly, I wasn't in too bad a shape, even though I uh, busted my ass pretty good when that bolt went through my, my front tire. But uh, I had that whole thing just, just jacked up, first of all. But here, I kind of thought I had the race won because I knew that the land shark, and I wasn't really worried about Gary Wang. He wasn't a great runner, but um, I knew I had the land shark dead to rights because why? He was a great ultra cyclist. And by this time, I had a lot of miles running under my legs. You know, I had a couple, you know, two or 300 mile races now, and I was ready to go. But like I said before in the last chapter, um, don't race anybody. Right. I then saw myself in position to win. After day two, even when I got off the bike, you know, and I caught, you know, I was like 20 minutes behind. They uh, tried to fix the bike up. They got it fixed. I got on it and took off. I realized, man, I can kick this guy's ass in the 50 miler. That's how I was thinking. Right. That right there alone, I was setting myself up for failure. I was setting myself up for failure big time right there. And part of it is if, if you if you were closer, if you if your bike situation, if you hadn't wrecked your bike and you were even with them, you probably wouldn't have felt that way of having to hammer the run so hard. Right, exactly. So 
all those small, like, why the fuck didn't I just grab the bike in the, you know, literally, there's not, there's probably every two weeks, every three weeks, every month or so, I think about that situation, like, wow, man, I could have won the Ultraman, I had a, you know, I had a, 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 a decent bike in the back of the car, and I sat there for 20 minutes because I want that Griffin fixed. Interesting. I mean, like, I'm like, just you should have put your shoes on and just took the hell off. Hindsight being 2020, man, but I just didn't do that. I just sat there and just overthought the process, and I ended up losing. You thought maybe it would take too much energy to get the same miles? You know what? I think I was thinking that, and I was thinking, man, this this Griffin is fast. Right. You know, like the Griffin felt like a damn speed demon. Bike. You felt like you were giving the power to the Griffin rather than it was you that pedaled it. it. Right. You yeah. know, it was the Griffin. It wasn't me. Right. <laughs> I wasn't controlling anything. But right. a funny story I'll share with you real quick while we're on the Ultraman and about to come off of it is, um, so I never talk about it hardly ever. And most people really think this is my first triathlon. And to me, it really is. But back around 1996, 1997, I was about 250 pounds, 260 pounds. I was still in the Air Force, and I have pictures of it at home. I was a big, big boy. And this buddy of mine was big time into doing triathlons. And he lived in Indiana, and my mom was still back in Indiana. So he's like, hey, let's, uh, let's do a triathlon. You can use one of my bikes. He had like five bikes. So I'm trying to you know, try his bike out. And I'm realizing it's literally a 500-meter swim, a 10- or 12-mile bike, and a 3-mile run. So he has me try the bike out, and the seat hurt my ass so badly that I think I got about three to five towels and duct-taped them to the seat, man. So it, it, looked, like, <laughs> it looked like some daggone Fred Sanford crap, man. It was hilarious. Amazing. And he borrowed a bike for this one, too. Yeah, this bike is is very special to me here for the Ultraman. This Griffin came from a good friend of mine. Um, name name you know his his name is JT. I get kind of choked up about it just because of um, he's he's now dead. He was a Navy SEAL. He was on DevGru. If you don't know what DevGru is, just Google DevGru and you can see exactly what DevGru is. And he died August 2011. He was killed in Afghanistan. And there's another sad thing about it is if you Google Navy SEAL dog at funeral, you will see one of the saddest videos, you know, to me of, of, of all time. This guy and his dog has such a special relationship that you'll literally see this dog laying by the casket the whole, like, just the whole time. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's truly remarkable how, how this dog just knew what was going on and, and I can, you know, you can see the the sadness within the dog. It's crazy. But coming back into this part of your life, uh, the Ultraman wasn't a disaster, and we're about to get into this next next phase. And it really, truly was the next phase of your life, both in the SEALs, but also um, as an athlete. Yes, this is a very important part of my life here. I started even learning more about myself, my capabilities. Um, and I just really start to even dig more and more and more into human potential, into, you know, limits of the human soul. Still, coming in second place at Ultraman was no disaster. I raised good money for families in need and booked more positive ink for the SEALs in triathlete and competitor magazines. Navy Brass took notice. One morning, I was called into a meeting with Admiral Ed Winters, a two-star admiral, and a top man at Naval Special Warfare Command. 
When you're an enlisted guy and hear an admiral wants a word, your ass sort of puckers up. He wasn't supposed to seek me out. There was a chain of command in place specifically to prevent conversations between rear admirals and enlisted men like me. Without any warning, that was all out the window, and I had a feeling it was my own fault. Thanks to the positive media I generated, I had received orders to join the recruitment division in 2007, and by the time I was ordered into the admiral's office, I'd done plenty of public speaking on behalf of the Navy SEALs. But I was different than most of the other recruiters. I didn't just parrot the Navy's script. I always included my own life story, off the cuff. As I waited outside the admiral's office, I closed my eyes and flipped through memory files, searching for when and how I'd overstepped and embarrassed the SEALs. I was the picture of tension, sitting stiff and alert, sweating through my uniform when he opened the door to his office. Goggins, he said. Good to see you. Come on in. I opened my eyes, followed him inside, and stood straight as an arrow, locked at attention. Sit down, he said, with a smile, gesturing to a chair facing his desk. I sat, but maintained my posture and avoided all eye contact. Admiral Winters sized me up. He was in his late fifties, and though he appeared relaxed, he maintained perfect posture. To become an admiral is to rise through the ranks of tens of thousands. He'd been a SEAL since 1981 and was an operations officer at DevGru and a commander in Afghanistan and Iraq. At each stop, he stood taller than the rest and was among the strongest, smartest, shrewdest, and most charismatic men the Navy had ever seen. He also fit a certain standard. Admiral Winters was the ultimate insider, and I was as outside the box as you could get in the United States Navy. Hey, relax, he said. You aren't in any trouble. You're doing a great job in recruiting. He gestured to a file on his otherwise immaculate desk. It was filled with some of my clips. You're representing us really well, but there's some men out there we need to do a better job of reaching out to, and I'm hoping you can help. That's when it finally hit me. A two-star admiral needed my help. The trouble we faced as an organization, he said, was that we were terrible at recruiting African Americans into the SEAL teams. I knew that already. Black people made up only 1% of all special forces, even though we are 13% of the general population. I was just the 36th African American ever to graduate, Buds. And one of the reasons for that was we weren't hitting the best places to recruit black men into the SEAL teams. And we didn't have the right recruiters either. The military likes to think of itself as a pure meritocracy. It isn't. Which is why for decades this issue was ignored. I called Admiral Winters recently, and he had this to say about the problem which was originally flagged by the Pentagon during the second Bush administration and sent to the Admiral's desk to fix. We were missing an opportunity to get great athletes into the teams and make the teams better, he said, and we had places we needed to send people where, if they looked like me, they would be compromised. In Iraq, Admiral Winters made his name building elite counterterrorism forces. That's one of the primary missions in special forces, to train allied military units so they can control social cancers like terrorism and drug trafficking, and maintain stability within borders. By 2007, Al-Qaeda had made inroads into Africa, allied with existing extremist networks, including Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. And there was talk of building up counterterrorism forces in Somalia, Chad, Nigeria, Mali, Cameroon, Burkina Faso, and Niger. Our operations in Niger made international news in 2018 when four American special operations soldiers were killed in an ambush, drawing public scrutiny to the mission.
But back in 2007, almost nobody knew we were about to get involved in West Africa or that we lacked the personnel to get it done. As I sat in his office, what I heard was the time had finally come when we needed black people in special forces. And our military leaders were clueless as to how to meet that need and entice more of us into the fold. It was all new information to me. I didn't know anything about the African threat. The only hostile terrain I knew about was in Afghanistan and Iraq. That is until Admiral Winters dropped a whole new detail on me, and the military's problem officially became my problem. I'd report to my captain and the admiral, he said, and hit the road, visiting 10 to 12 cities at a time, with the goal of spiking recruiting numbers in the people of color category. We made the first stop on this new mission together. It was at Howard University in Washington, D.C., probably the best-known historically black university in America. We dropped in to speak to the football team, and though I knew almost nothing about historically black colleges and universities, I knew students who attended them aren't usually the type to think of the military as an optimal career choice. Thanks to our country's history and the rampant racism that continues to this day, black political thought trends left of center at these institutions. And if you're recruiting for the Navy SEALs, there are definitely better choices than the Howard University practice field to find a willing heir. But this new focus required work in hostile territory, not mass enthusiasm. We were looking for one or two great men at each stop. The Admiral and I walked onto the field, dressed in uniform, and I noted suspicion and disregard in the eyes of our audience. Admiral Winters had planned to introduce me, but our icy reception told me we had to go another way. You were shy at first, Admiral Winters remembered, but when it was time to speak, you looked at me and said, I got this, sir. I launched right into my life story. I told those athletes what I've already told you and said we were looking for guys with heart, men who knew it was going to be hard tomorrow and the day after that and welcomed every challenge, men who wanted to become better athletes and smarter and more capable in all aspects of their life. We wanted guys who craved honor and purpose and were open-minded enough to face their deepest fears. By the time you were done, you could have heard a pin drop, Admiral Winters recalled. From then on, I was given command of my own schedule and budget and leeway to operate, as long as I hit certain recruitment thresholds. I had to come up with my own material and knew that most people didn't think they could ever become a Navy SEAL, so I broadened the message. I wanted everyone who heard me out to know that even if they didn't walk in our direction, they could still become more than they ever dreamed. I made sure to cover my life in its entirety, so if anyone had any excuse, my story would void all that out. My main drive was to deliver hope that with or without the military, anybody could change their life, so long as they kept an open mind, abandoned the path of least resistance, and sought out the difficult and most challenging tasks they could find. I was mining for diamonds in the rough, like me. From 2007 to 2009, I was on the road for 250 days a year and spoke to 500,000 people at high schools and universities. I spoke at inner-city high schools in tough neighborhoods, at dozens of historically black colleges and universities, and at schools with all cultures, shapes, and shades well represented. I'd come a long way from fourth grade when I couldn't stand up in front of a class of 20 kids and say my own name without stuttering. Teenagers are walking, talking bullshit detectors. But the kids who heard me speak bought into my message because everywhere I stopped, I also ran an ultra race 
and rolled my training runs and races into my overall recruitment strategy. I'd usually land in their town midweek, make my speeches, then run a race on Saturday and Sunday. In one stretch in 2007, I ran an ultra almost every weekend. There were 50-mile races, 100-kilometer races, 100-mile races, and longer ones, too. I was all about spreading the Navy SEAL legend that I loved and wanted to be true, and living our ethos. Essentially, I had two full-time jobs. My schedule was jammed full, and while I know that having the flexibility to manage my own time contributed to my ability to train for and compete on the ultra circuit, I still put in 50 hours a week at work, clocking in every day from about 7.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. My training hours came in addition to, not instead of, my work commitments. I appeared at upwards of 45 schools every month, and after each appearance, I had to file an after-action report, detailing how many separate events, an auditorium speech, a workout, etc., I organized, how many kids I spoke to, and how many of those were actually interested. These after-action reports, or AARs, went directly to my captain and the admiral. I learned quickly that I was my own best prop. Sometimes I'd dress in a SEAL t-shirt with a trident on it, run 50 miles to a speaking engagement, and show up soaking wet. Or I would do push-ups for the first five minutes of my speech, or roll a pull-up bar out on stage and do pull-ups while I was talking. That's right. The shit you see me do on social media isn't new. I've been living this life for 11 years. Wherever I stopped, I invited the kids who were interested to come train with me before or after school, or crew on one of my ultra races. Word got out, and soon the media, local television, print, and radio, showed up, especially if I was running between cities to get to the next gig. I had to be articulate, well-groomed, and do well in the races I entered. I remember landing in Colorado the week of the legendary Leadville 100 trail race. The school year had just started, and on my first night in Denver, I mapped out the five schools on my roster in relation to the trails I wanted to hike and run. At each stop, I'd invite the kids to train with me, but warn them that my day started early. At 3 a.m., I would drive to a trailhead, meet up with all the students who dared to show, and by 4 a.m., we'd begin power hiking up one of Colorado's 58 summits above 14,000 feet. Then we'd sprint down the mountain to strengthen our quads. At 9 a.m., I'd hit another school, and then another. After the bell rang, I worked out with the football, track, or swim teams at the schools I visited, then ran back into the mountains to train until sunset. All of that to recruit stud athletes and acclimatize for the highest altitude ultramarathon in the world. The race started at 4 a.m. on a Saturday, departing from the city of Leadville, a working-class ski town with frontier roots, and traversing a network of beautiful and harsh Rocky Mountain trails that ranged from 9,200 feet to 12,600 feet in elevation. When I finished at 2 a.m. on Sunday, a teenager from Denver, who attended a school I'd visited a few days earlier, was waiting for me at the finish line. I didn't have a great race. I came in 14th place rather than my typical top five, but I always made sure to finish strong. And when I sprinted home, he approached me with a wide smile and said, I drove two hours just to see you finish. The lesson, you never know who you're affecting. My poor race results meant less than nothing to that young man because I had helped open his eyes to a new world of possibility and capability that he sensed within himself. He'd followed me from his high school auditorium to Leadville because he was looking for absolute proof, my finishing the race, that it was possible to transcend the typical 
and become more. And as I cooled down and toweled off, he asked me for tips so he could one day run all day and night through the mountains in his backyard. I have several stories like that. More than a dozen kids came out to pace and crew for me at the McNaughton Park Trail Race, a 150-miler held outside of Peoria, Illinois. Two dozen students trained with me in Minot, North Dakota. Together we ran the frozen tundra before sunrise in January, when it was 20 below zero. Once I spoke at a school in a majority black neighborhood in Atlanta. And as I was leaving, a mother showed up with her two sons, who had long dreamed of becoming Navy SEALs, but kept it a secret because enlisting in the military wasn't considered cool in their neighborhood. When summer vacation broke out, I flew them to San Diego to live and train with me. I woke their asses up at 4 a.m. and beat them down on the beach like they were in a junior version of first phase. They did not enjoy themselves, but they learned the truth about what it takes to live the ethos. Wherever I went, whether the students were interested in a military career or not, they always asked if they had the same hardware I had. Could they run 100 miles in one day? What would it take to reach their full potential? This is what I'd tell them. Our culture has become hooked on the quick fix, the life hack, efficiency. Everyone is on the hunt for that simple action algorithm that nets maximum profit with the least amount of effort. There's no denying this attitude may get you some of the trappings of success, if you're lucky, but it will not lead to a callous mind or self-mastery. If you want to master the mind and remove your governor, you'll have to become addicted to hard work because passion and obsession, even talent, are only useful tools if you have the work ethic to back them up. My work ethic is the single most important factor in all of my accomplishments. Everything else is secondary. And when it comes to hard work, whether in the gym or on the job, the 40% rule applies. To me, a 40-hour work week is a 40% effort. It may be satisfactory, but that's another word for mediocrity. Don't settle for a 40-hour work week. There are 168 hours in a week. That means you have the hours to put in that extra time at work without skimping on your exercise. It means streamlining your nutrition, spending quality time with your wife and kids. It means scheduling your life like you're on a 24-hour mission every single day. The number one excuse I hear from people as to why they don't work out as much as they want to is that they don't have time. Look, we all have work obligations. None of us wants to lose sleep. And you'll need time with the family or they'll trip the fuck out. I get it. And if that's your situation, you must win the morning. When I was full-time with the SEALs, I maximized the dark hours before dawn. When my wife was sleeping, I would bang out a six to 10 mile run. My gear was all laid out the night before, my lunch was packed, and my work clothes were in my locker at work, where I'd shower before my day started at 7.30 a.m. On a typical day, I'd be out the door for my run just after 4 a.m. and back by 5.15 a.m. Since that wasn't enough for me, and because we only owned one car, I rode my bike, I finally got my own shit, 25 miles to work. I'd work from 7.30 a.m. to noon and eat at my desk before or after my lunch break. During the lunch hour, I'd hit the gym or do a four to six mile beach run, work the afternoon shift and hop on my bike for the 25 mile ride home. By the time I was home at 7 p.m., I'd have run about 15 miles, rocked 50 miles on the bike and put in a full day at the office. I was always home for dinner and in bed by 10 p.m., so I could do it all over again the next day. On Saturdays, I'd sleep in until 7 a.m., hit a three-hour workout, 
and spend the rest of the weekend with Kate. If I didn't have a race, Sundays were my active recovery days. I'd do an easy ride at a low heart rate, keeping my pulse below 110 beats per minute to stimulate healthy blood flow. Maybe you think I'm a special case or an obsessive maniac. Fine, I won't argue with you. But what about my friend Mike? He's a big-time financial advisor in New York City. His job is high pressure, and his workday is a hell of a lot longer than eight hours. He has a wife and two kids, and he's an ultra-runner. Here's how he does it. He wakes up at 4 a.m. every weekday, runs 60 to 90 minutes each morning while his family is still snoozing, rides a bike to work and back, and does a quick 30-minute treadmill run after he gets home. He goes out for longer runs on weekends, but he minimizes its impact on his family obligations. He's high-powered, wealthy as fuck, and could easily maintain his status quo with less effort and enjoy the sweet fruits of his labors. But he finds a way to stay hard, because his labors are his sweetest fruits. And he makes time to get it all in by minimizing the amount of bullshit clogging his schedule. His priorities are clear, and he remains dedicated to his priorities. I'm not talking about general priorities here, either. Each hour of his week is dedicated to a particular task, and when that hour shows up in real time, he focuses 100% on that task. That's how I do it, too, because that is the only way to minimize wasted hours. Evaluate your life in its totality. We all waste so much time doing meaningless bullshit. We burn hours on social media and watching television, which by the end of the year would add up to entire days and weeks if you tabulated time like you do your taxes. You should, because if you knew the truth, you'd deactivate your Facebook account stat and cut your cable. When you find yourself having frivolous conversations or becoming ensnared in activities that don't better you in any way, move the fuck on. For years, I've lived like a monk. I don't see or spend time with a lot of people. My circle is very tight. I post on social media once or twice a week, and I never check anybody else's feeds because I don't follow anyone. That's just me. I'm not saying you need to be that unforgiving because you and I probably don't share the same goals. But I know you have goals too, and room for improvement, or you wouldn't be listening to my book. And I guarantee that if you audited your schedule, you'd find time for more work and less bullshit. It's up to you to find ways to eviscerate your bullshit. How much time do you spend at the dinner table talking about nothing after the meal is done? How many calls and texts do you send for no reason at all? Look at your whole life. List your obligations and tasks. Put a timestamp on them. How many hours are required to shop, eat, and clean? How much sleep do you need? What's your commute like? Can you make it there under your own power? Block everything into windows of time. And once your day is scheduled out, you'll know how much flexibility you have to exercise on a given day and how to maximize it. Perhaps you aren't looking to get fit, but have been dreaming of starting a business of your own or have always wanted to learn a language or an instrument you're obsessed with. Fine. The same rule applies. Analyze your schedule, kill your empty habits, burn out the bullshit, and see what's left. Is it one hour per day? Three? Now maximize that shit. That means listing your prioritized tasks every hour of the day. You can even narrow it down to 15-minute windows. And don't forget to include backstops in your day-to-day -day schedule. Remember how I forgot to include backstops in my race plan at Ultraman? You need backstops in your day-to-day -day schedule, too. If one task bleeds into overtime, make sure you know it and begin to transition into your next prioritized task straight away. 
Use your smartphone for productivity hacks, not clickbait. Turn on your calendar alerts. Have those alarms set. If you audit your life, skip the bullshit and use backstops. You'll find time to do everything you need and want to do. But remember that you also need rest. So schedule that in. Listen to your body. Sneak in those 10 to 20 minute power naps when necessary. And take one full rest day per week. If it's a rest day, truly allow your mind and body to relax. Turn your phone off. Keep the computer shut down. A rest day means you should be relaxed, hanging with friends or family, and eating and drinking well, so you can recharge and get back at it. It's not a day to lose yourself in technology or stay hunched at your desk in the form of a damn question mark. The whole point of the 24-hour mission is to keep up a championship pace, not for a season or a year, but for your entire life. That requires quality rest and recovery time, because there is no finish line. There is always more to learn, and you will always have weaknesses to strengthen if you want to become as hard as woodpecker lips, hard enough to hammer countless miles and finish that shit strong. David Goggins, there's a lot here to unpack, um, you know, from the eviscerating the bullshit to the way you schedule it. Um, you want to talk about how you kind of came up with this, uh, this approach? Yeah, I mean, you know, in life, life gets in the way big time, and people use that the unexpected, you know, you have a blowout going to work, your your wife or husband call you and say, hey, you got to pick the kid up. And we use all these things for excuses like, oh, man, now I can't go get my running or get my studying in or whatever it may be. And that becomes I got, you know, I have to change my whole schedule around so I can't get it in. That's just a good way of just giving you another excuse. You have to find a way to get it in. Like I said, there's 24 hours in a day. You have to use those backstops, you know, take a second and rethink what's going on. And this is another reason why this whole big thing now of accountability coaches, you know, people need them. Hmm. You know, people need these, uh, people making a lot of money off of people's weaknesses. There's accountability coaches? I've never heard of that. Dude, you know what? I just, I was watching some show with my fiance and there is uh, this reality TV show and this girl makes money off of you know, people's weaknesses, being an accountability coach. I mean, like, seriously, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? So what, you, you, you need to call somebody? So you're going to call somebody that's probably not doing shit with their life. You know, I mean, seriously, think about all the shrinks out here in this world, man, who are listening to your problems, and then that shrink goes to see another shrink because they're crazy, you know, because they have problems. It's just, and you know, these accountability coaches are sitting back with a daggone ding-dong, ho-hos, you know, Mountain Dew on the phone talking to you about saying, hey, you need to get your ass up and go work out. You know, no, man, no, you got it all wrong. You're giving a lot of people money because you can't do these things. It's about getting up and making yourself uncomfortable. And pretty soon, all this stuff that you're reading or that you're listening to right now, it becomes a habit. It becomes a habit. The more you do and the more you do and the more you rewire your brain to say, oh, at first, yeah, this sucks. This is horrible. My God, this is a lot of stuff to do. Pretty soon it's like, hey, you know what? Roger that. Every day I go run. Every day I go to the gym. Every day I study. It's like breathing air. It's like breathing air. You know no matter what goes on. So, for instance, for me, 
if I know I have to be here at four o'clock in the morning to start, you know, reading this book and doing the audio, I know, hey, that means it's an hour to get here. I need to be up at 1.30 to get up, get my workout in, and then get there. It's mm. not like, oh, I got to be there at four o'clock in the morning. That means, ah, uh, I can't get it in. That's how people think. So people think that the schedule dictates their day. No, no, no. The schedule only tells you how to schedule your day. Mm. That's what that is. So you got to rework all that stuff, man. I love it. I mean, it's a great approach because uh, when we first started to talk about this, I, I mean, 40-hour work week always to me sounded like, okay, that's fine. I mean, yes, I work more than 40 hours typically, but I never like looked down on the 40-hour work week. But when you when you look at that compared to 168 hours right, a week, right. it does sound pretty pretty flimsy. Oh, and, and think about <laughs> how much time you're wasting. Yeah. If you're spending 40 hours a week working, and it's a hundred and sixty-eight hour, you know, hundred sixty hour, you know, hundred and sixty hours in a week. There's a lot of daggone fudge time in there, man. There's a lot of first time that we don't even look at, you know, so And even gonna... people at work, they're not working the full forty straight anyway, usually. Oh no, not at all, man. There's so much time in there that they're bullshitting or whatever. And we're giving a lot of money to a lot of people to keep us accountable, which is crazy, man. Like we need trainers. So we go hire like a you know, for me to push myself, I'm going to hire a trainer to give me 20 workouts. But after that 20, you know, 20 workouts is done, what are you doing now? You know, are you back on the couch sitting down, chilling out? You know, you got to use all these things as starters. So, you know, if, if you need a trainer, if you need an accountability coach, don't use it as a crutch. Use it as a kindling to start the fire. That's all it is. I like the mechanics you set out here. I mean, this is very clear, and it's easy for someone to really replicate more than some of the, even some of the others, which are a little bit more, um, I guess, subtle or or uh, you know they're they're open to interpretation. This one is pretty clear. Right. Yeah. Right. You have to get you throw away all the bullshit, man. Eviscerate it. Yeah, but you know something you mentioned, er, you know, just a couple of minutes ago is the unexpected can sometimes descend. And, and uh, sometimes that unexpected isn't just a flat tire, it's some chaos. And that'll, that'll kind of take, take over everything. And you're, you have not been immune to that, as we know from your early life. But uh, in this section, readers are about, or listeners are about to uh, hear a whole new episode. Oh, yeah. The unexpected is my best friend. In 2008, I was back in Kona for the Ironman World Championships. I was in peak visibility mode for the Navy SEALs, and Commander Keith Davids, one of the best athletes I ever saw in the SEAL teams, and I were slated to do the race. The NBC Sports broadcast tracked our every move and turned our race within the race into a feature the announcers could cut to between clocking the main contenders. Our entrance was straight out of a Hollywood pitch meeting. While most athletes were deep into their pre-race rituals and getting psyched up for the longest day of their racing lives, we buzzed overhead in a C-130, jumped from 1,500 feet, and parachuted into the water, where we were scooped up by a Zodiac and motored to shore just four minutes before the gun. That was barely enough time for a blast of energy gel, a swig of water, and a change into our Navy SEAL triathlon suits. You know by now that I'm slow in the water and David's destroyed my ass on the 2.4-mile swim. I'm just as strong as he is on a bicycle, but my lower back tightened up that day, 
and at the halfway point, I had to stop and stretch out. By the time I coasted into the transition area, after a 112-mile bike ride, David's had 30 minutes on me, and early on in the marathon, I didn't do a great job of getting any of it back. My body was rebelling, and I had to walk those early miles, but I stayed in the fight, and at mile 10 found a rhythm and started clipping time. Somewhere ahead of me, David's blew up, and I inched closer. For a few miles, I could see him plodding in the distance, suffering in those lava fields, heat shimmering off the asphalt in sheets. I knew he wanted to beat me because he was a proud man. He was an officer, a great operator, and a stud athlete. I wanted to beat him too. That's how Navy SEALs are wired, and I could have blown by him. But as I got closer, I told myself to humble up. I caught him with just over two miles to go. He looked at me with a mix of respect and hilarious exasperation. Fucking Goggins, he said with a smile. We jumped into the water together, started the race together, and we were going to finish this thing together. We ran side by side for the final two miles, crossed the finish line, and hugged it out. It was terrific fucking television. Everything was going well in my life. My career was spit-shined and gleaming. I'd made a name for myself in the sports world, and I had plans to get back onto the battlefield like a Navy SEAL should. But sometimes, even when you are doing everything right in life, shit storms appear and multiply. Chaos can and will descend without warning. And when, not if, that happens, there won't be anything you can do to stop it. If you're fortunate, the issues or injuries are relatively minor. And when those incidents crop up, it's on you to adjust and stay after it. If you get injured or other complications arise that prevent you from working on your primary passion, refocus your energy elsewhere. The activities we pursue tend to be our strengths because it's fun to do what we're great at. Very few people enjoy working on their weaknesses. So if you're a terrific runner with a knee injury that will prevent you from running for 12 weeks, that is a great time to get into yoga, increasing your flexibility and your overall strength, which will make you a better and less injury-prone athlete. If you're a guitar player with a broken hand, sit down at the keys and use your one good hand to become a more versatile musician. The point is not to allow a setback to shatter our focus or our detours to dictate our mindset. Always be ready to adjust, recalibrate, and stay after it to become better somehow. The sole reason I work out like I do isn't to prepare for and win ultra races. I don't have an athletic motive at all. It's to prepare my mind for life itself. Life will always be the most grueling endurance sport, and when you train hard, get uncomfortable, and callous your mind, you will become a more versatile competitor, trained to find a way forward no matter what. Because there will be times when the shit life throws at you isn't minor at all. Sometimes life hits you dead in the fucking heart. My two-year stint on recruitment detail was due to end in 2009. And while I enjoyed my time inspiring the next gen, I was looking forward to getting back out and operating in the field. But before I left my post, I planned one more big splash. I would ride a bicycle from the beach in San Diego to Annapolis, Maryland, in a legendary endurance road race, the Race Across America. The race was in June, so from January to May, I spent all my free time on the bike. I woke up at 4 a.m. and rode 110 miles before work, then rode 20 to 30 miles home at the end of a long work day. On weekends, I put in at least one 200-mile day and averaged over 700 miles per week.
The race would take about two weeks to complete. There would be very little sleep involved, and I wanted to be ready for the greatest athletic challenge of my entire life. Then, in early May, everything capsized. Like a malfunctioning appliance, my heart went on the blink, almost overnight. For years, my resting pulse rate was in the 30s. Suddenly, it was in the 70s and 80s, and any activity would spike it until I verged on collapse. It was as if I'd sprung a leak, and all my energy had been sucked from my body. A simple five-minute bike ride would set my heart racing to 150 beats per minute. It pounded uncontrollably during a short walk up a single flight of stairs. At first, I thought it was from overtraining, and when I went to the doctor, he agreed, but scheduled an echocardiogram for me at Balboa Hospital, just in case. When I went in for the test, the tech gelled up his all-knowing receiver and rolled it over my chest to get the angles he'd need while I lay on my left side, my head away from his monitor. He was a talker and kept bullshitting about a whole lot of nothing while he checked out all my chambers and valves. Everything looked solid, he said, until suddenly, 45 minutes into the procedure, this chatty motherfucker stopped talking. Instead of his voice, I heard a lot of clicking and zooming, then he left the room and reappeared with another tech a few minutes later. They clicked, zoomed, and whispered, but didn't let me in on their big secret. When people in white coats are treating your heart as a puzzle to be solved right in front of you, it's hard not to think that you're probably pretty fucked up. Part of me wanted answers immediately, because I was scared as shit. But I didn't want to be a bitch and show my cards, so I opted to stay calm and let the professionals work. Within a few minutes, two other men walked into the room. One of them was a cardiologist. He took over the wand, rolled it on my chest, and peered into the monitor with one short nod. Then he patted me on the shoulder like I was his fucking intern and said, Okay, let's talk. You have an atrial septal defect, he said, as we stood in the hallway. His techs and nurses pacing back and forth, disappearing into and reappearing from rooms on either side of us. I stared straight ahead and said nothing, until he realized I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. You have a hole in your heart. He scrunched his forehead and stroked his chin. A pretty good size one, too. Holes don't just open in your heart, do they? No, no, he said with a laugh. You were born with it. He went on to explain that the hole was in the wall between my right and left atria, which was a problem because when you have a hole between the chambers in your heart, oxygenated blood mixes with the non-oxygenated blood. Oxygen is an essential element that every single one of our cells needs to survive. According to the doctor, I was only supplying about half of the necessary oxygen my muscles and organs needed for optimal performance. That leads to swelling in the feet and abdomen, heart palpitations, and occasional bouts of shortness of breath. It certainly explained the fatigue I've been feeling recently. It also impacts the lungs, he said, because it floods the pulmonary blood vessels with more blood than they can handle, which makes it much more difficult to recover from overexertion and illness. I flash back to all the issues I had recovering after contracting double pneumonia during my first hell week. The fluid I had in my lungs never fully receded. During subsequent hell weeks and after getting into ultras, I found myself hawking up phlegm during and after finishing races. Some nights, there was so much fluid in me, I couldn't sleep. I'd just sit up and spit phlegm into empty Gatorade bottles, wondering when that boring ritual would play itself out. Most people, when they become ultra-obsessed, may deal with overuse injuries, but their cardiovascular system is finely tuned, 
Even though I was able to compete and accomplish so much with my broken body, I never felt that great. I learned to endure and overcome, and as the doctor continued to download the essentials, I realized for the first time in my entire life I'd also been pretty fucking lucky. You know, the backhanded brand of luck, where you have a hole in your heart, but are thanking God that it hasn't killed you yet. Because when you have an ASD like mine, and you dive deep underwater, gas bubbles, which are supposed to travel through the pulmonary blood vessels to be filtered through the lungs, might leak from that hole upon ascent and recirculate as weaponized embolisms that can clog blood vessels in the brain and lead to a stroke, or block an artery to the heart and cause cardiac arrest. It's like diving with a dirty bomb floating inside you, never knowing when or where it might go off. I wasn't alone in this fight. One out of every ten children are born with this same defect. But in most cases, the hole closes on its own, and surgery isn't required. In just under 2,000 American children each year, surgery is required, but is usually administered before a patient starts school, because there are better screening processes these days. Most people my age who are born with ASD left the hospital in their mother's arms and lived with a potential deadly problem without a clue. Until, like me, their hearts started giving them trouble in their 30s. If I had ignored my warning signs, I could have dropped dead during a four-mile run. That's why, if you're in the military and are diagnosed with an ASD, you can't jump out of airplanes or scuba dive. And if anyone had known of my condition, there is no way the Navy ever would have let me become a SEAL. It's astonishing I even made it through Hell Week, Badwater, or any of those other races. I'm truly amazed you could do all you've done with this condition, the doctor said. I nodded. He thought I was a medical marvel, some kind of outlier, or simply a gifted athlete blessed with amazing luck. To me, it was just further evidence that I didn't owe my accomplishments to God-given talent or great genetics. I had a fucking hole in my heart. I was running on a tank perpetually half full, and that meant my life was absolute proof of what's possible when someone dedicates themselves to harnessing the full power of the human mind. Three days later, I was in surgery. And boy, did the doctor fuck that one up. First off, the anesthesia didn't take all the way, which meant I was half awake as the surgeon sliced through my inner thigh, inserted a catheter into my femoral artery, and once it reached my heart, deployed a helix patch through that catheter and moved it into place, supposedly patching the hole in my heart. Meanwhile, they had a camera down my throat, which I could feel as I gagged and struggled to endure the two-hour-long procedure. After all of that, my troubles were supposed to have been over. The doctor mentioned that it would take time for my heart tissue to grow around and seal the patch, but after a week, he cleared me for light exercise. Roger that, I thought, as I dropped to the floor to do a set of push-ups as soon as I got home. Almost immediately, my heart went into atrial fibrillation, also known as AFib. My pulse spiked from 120 to 230, back to 120, then up to 250. I felt dizzy and had to sit down as I stared at my heart rate monitor while my breathing normalized. Once again, my resting heart rate was in the 80s. In other words, nothing had changed. I called the cardiologist who tagged it as a minor side effect and begged patience. I took him at his word and rested for a few more days, then hopped on the bike for an easy ride home from work. At first, all went well, but after about 15 miles, my heart went into AFib once again. My pulse rate bounced from 120 to 230 and back again across the imaginary graph in my mind's eye with no rhythm whatsoever. 
Kate drove me straight to Balboa Hospital. After that visit and second and third opinions, it was clear that the patch had either failed or was insufficient to cover the entire hole and that I'd need a second heart surgery. The Navy didn't want any part of that. They feared further complications and suggested I scale back my lifestyle, accept my new normal and a retirement package. Yeah, right. Instead, I found a better doctor at Balboa who said we'd have to wait several months before we could even contemplate another heart surgery. In the meantime, I couldn't jump or dive and obviously couldn't operate in the field. So I stayed in recruitment. It was a different life, no doubt, and I was tempted to feel sorry for myself. After all, this thing that hit me out of the clear blue changed the entire landscape of my military career. But I'd been training for life, not ultra races, and I refused to hang my head. I knew that if I maintained a victim's mentality, I wouldn't get anything at all out of a fucked up situation, and I didn't want to sit home defeated all day long. So I used the time to perfect my recruitment presentation. I wrote up sterling AARs and became much more detail-oriented in my administrative work. Does that sound boring to you? Fuck yes, it was boring. But it was honest, necessary work, and I used it to keep my mind sharp for when the moment came that I'd be able to drop back into the fight for real. Or so I hoped. A full 14 months after the first surgery, I was once again rolling through a hospital corridor on my back, staring at the fluorescent lights in the ceiling, headed to pre-op with no guarantees. While the techs and nurses shaved me down and prepped me up, I thought about all I'd accomplished in the military and wondered, was it enough? If the docs couldn't fix me this time, would I be willing to retire, satisfied? That question lingered in my head until the anesthesiologist placed an oxygen mask over my face and counted down softly in my ear. Just before lights out, I heard the answer erupt from the abyss of my jet black soul. Fuck no! There's so much to unpack here, <laughs> but I'm going to start with a simple question. Yes, sir. Which is, your resting heart rate in the 30s? Yeah, it was sick, man. I had a, I had trained so much. So, as you know, my I did a bunch of heart rate training. So I never, so I was really big into zone training. So I did 80 to 90 percent of my runs at a zone two. So there's like five zones. Zone five being like uh, Usain Bolt, where you're trying to run a hundred yard dash. That's as fast as you can go. So zone one. So that's so that's zone five. Fast you can go. Zone one is like that recovery thing I would do on, on Sunday sometimes. I would sit down the bike and I would spin real low at like a 90 to 110 heart rate. That's recovery. Zone two was my literally, that's where I would do all the fat burning. Right. And that, that was my all day zone. And that trained my heart. Is that is that like orange or is that yellow? I'm not for sure exactly what color it's that different, is. It's different now, yep, right? It's different colors. Okay. So for me, though, I just knew that I was like between like a 140 and 150 heart rate. And I would do that all the time, but for hours and hours a day. So it got my my actual like um, resting heart rate down to the 30s. It's amazing because, you know, you most most like people who I guess work weekend warriors who, who are, are at least working out four times a week or something can be in the 60s. Right. Right. And then athletes, professional athletes tend to be 40s and 50s. Right. Right. But 30s is pretty low. Oh, yeah. 30s is real low, man. Like, 
You that's like at, some Yoda shit, bro. Yeah, that's some Yoda <laughs> shit. Well, I put some Yoda time in, man, but there was no Jedi Force. It was Goggins Force. <laughs> that's it. Um, anything you want to say? I mean, we, we cover it pretty well. We, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if you want to underline anything about that period in your life. Well, one big thing here that kept me going is I kept on, and, the, and there's a lot more challenges to come. I mean, we're, you know, we're just eight chapters in, and what's funny is every chapter there's a new challenge for me, a new big hurdle to overcome. And like I said before, you know, obstacles in your life, you need friction to grow. And those obstacles are friction. And that's how I started looking at everything in life. It's how you look at the obstacles in your life versus like, woe is me. You know, my life sucks. God, why me? Why me? Why me? My mentality was like, hey, man, you know what? If I can get through this, I'm even harder than I was before. You know, like, like the more I got hit, the harder I got hit, the more I was like, okay, man, you know what? Yeah, I would get sad. You know, you wouldn't have fucking heart surgery. I mean, it was killing, but I was like, hey, man, you're going to have heart surgery regardless. It is yours to own. I can approach it two ways. Either like all negative, man, my, my life sucks, woe is me, or hey, man, I'm having heart surgery. Let's see how fast I can get better. Let's see this. Let's see that. Let's have a great attitude. And another thing that kept me going was back in the day, I always thought growing up, I was the weakest man that God ever created. And my whole goal in life, you know, I wanted to, you know, see these uncommon men and, and, and work with them and, and, and do all these hard things and overcome all these obstacles. But my goal was to be the hardest man that God ever created. And that whole thing, you know, it wasn't about being a SEAL. It wasn't about being, you know, about being a Ranger and all these other things I did in my life. It was strictly about when these times came up, like, hey, Goggins, you're going to have heart surgery. How do you attack that? That's what me, you know, that's what hardness means to me. All the obstacles in your life, it's not about running fast or being some guy who can handle cold water. How do you handle what life throws at you? And I realized that's what I want to do good at. That's what I want to be an all-star at. And that's, you know, this was another time for me to say, okay, man, this is your second heart surgery. How are you going to handle it? Well, there's no doubt you're an all-star at it. I mean, and I think we could, we have to go back to childhood where you did have the time where you were in the woe is me. Right. You did live in woe is me in times. And it doesn't mean that you didn't have, uh, you didn't have, uh, you know, some parts of your childhood that you loved. You had oh, your, yeah. you had your friends. You yeah. you were you had your popularity. You played ball. Yep. But you also had a lot of woe is me, and you felt it. And then you fix that. Right. And then you fell back into it. And then you fix it again. And I always say, you know, to me, life is reps, right? All it about takes it. reps. And you got those reps in early. And that, I think, you have to, had to contribute to your attitude here. Well, think about all those, you know, all those friends and all those good times and all that crap. Yeah, it's true. I had them. But the one thing our mind does is that we focus on the one small thing we don't have. You know, we could have a great life, great wife, great husband, beautiful home, all this shit. But I have this one small thing in my life that's not so great. And that's what you focus on. And that's what I learned that I was doing. I was like, my God, man, my life isn't that bad. But I focus on that one kid at school who called me a nigger. The one kid at school, not the whole school. The one kid that was beating me down, that was my reality. Oh, my God, everybody hates me. That's not the truth, man. It's not the truth. So... I first had to find out the truth. I didn't see that. Then I had to realize this. I was a, I was a weak kid. 
my life had made me a very fragile, insecure, weak person. And in realizing that, I wanted to master my fears. I wanted to become a master of my fears. So many of us that are afraid of something, we just shy away from it. The best way to overcome anything in life is to become a master of what you're afraid of. Become a master of your insecurities. Become a master of all that stuff. Learn about it. A lot of times you just don't know what the hell you're afraid of. Well, it's, it's like you, you've been saying all along, it's yours to own. That's right. And once you own it and own the inevitability of the heart surgery, you can then spin it and use it in some way to grow. Exactly, man. A lot of this stuff in your life that's happening to you, it's not go. It, I mean, it's not going away. It's not going to go away. So you better go ahead and face it head on. Beautiful. All right, let's get into the challenge eight. And we know what it is. We talked about it in this chapter. Challenge eight. Schedule it in. It's time to compartmentalize your day. Too many of us have become multitaskers, and that's created a nation of half-asses. This will be a three-week challenge. During week one, go about your normal schedule, but take notes. When do you work? Are you working nonstop or checking your phone? The Moment app will tell you. How long are your meal breaks? When do you exercise, watch TV, or chat to friends? How long is your commute? Are you driving? I want you to get super detailed and document it all with timestamps. This will be your baseline, and you'll find plenty of fat to trim. Most people waste four to five hours on a given day, and if you can learn to identify and utilize it, you'll be on your way toward increased productivity. In week two, build an optimal schedule. Lock everything into place in 15 to 30 minute blocks. Some tasks will take multiple blocks or entire days. Fine. When you work, only work on one thing at a time. Think about the task in front of you and pursue it relentlessly. When it comes time for the next task on your schedule, place that first one aside and apply the same focus. Make sure your meal breaks are adequate, but not open-ended. And schedule in exercise and rest too. But when it's time to rest, actually rest. No checking email or bullshitting on social media. If you are going to work hard, you must also rest your brain. Make notes with timestamps in week two. You may still find some residual dead space. By week three, you should have a working schedule that maximizes your effort without sacrificing sleep. Post photos of your schedule with the hashtags, hashtag can't hurt me, hashtag talent not required. Chapter nine, uncommon, amongst uncommon. The anesthesia took hold and I felt myself wheeling backward until I landed in a scene from my past. We were humping through the jungle in the dead of night. Our movement was stealthy and silent, but swift. Had to be. He who hits first wins the fight, most of the time. We crested a pass, took shelter beneath a thick stand of towering mahogany trees in the triple canopy jungle and tracked our targets through night vision goggles. Even without sunlight, the tropical heat was intense, and sweat slid down the side of my face like dewdrops on a window pane. I was 27 years old, and my platoon and Rambo fever dreams had become real as fuck. I blinked twice, exhaled, and on the OIC signal, opened fire. 
My entire body reverberated with the rhythm of the M60, a belt-fed machine gun firing 500 to 650 rounds per minute. As the 100-round belt fed the growling machine and flared from the barrel, adrenaline flooded my bloodstream and saturated my brain. My focus narrowed. There was nothing else but me, my weapon, and the target I was shredding with zero apologies. It was 2002. I was fresh out of buds, and as a full-time Navy SEAL, I was now officially one of the world's most fit and deadly warriors, and one of the hardest men alive. Or so I thought. But this was years before my descent into the ultra-rabbit hole. September 11th was still a fresh, gaping wound in the American collective consciousness, and its ripple effects changed everything for guys like us. Combat was no longer a mythical state of mind we aspired to. It was real, and ongoing in the mountains, villages, and cities of Afghanistan. Meanwhile, we were moored in fucking Malaysia, awaiting orders, hoping to join the fight. And we trained like it. After BUDS, I moved on to SEAL qualification training, where I officially earned my trident before landing in my first platoon. Training continued with jungle warfare exercises in Malaysia. We repelled and fast-roped up and down from hovering helicopters. Some men were trained as snipers, and since I was the biggest man in the unit, my weight was back up to 250 pounds by then, I scored the job of carrying the pig, the nickname for the M60, because it sounded like the grunt of a barnyard hog. Most people dreaded pig detail, but I was obsessed with that gun. The weapon alone was 20 pounds, and each belt of 100 rounds weighed in at 7 pounds. I carried 6 to 7 of those, one on the gun, four on my waist, and one in a pouch strapped to my rucksack. The weapon and my 50-pound ruck everywhere we went, and was expected to move just as fast as everyone else. I had no choice. We train as we fight, and live ammo is necessary to mimic true combat so we could perfect the SEAL battle maxim, shoot, move, communicate. That meant keeping barrel discretion on point. We couldn't let our weapons spray just anywhere. That's how friendly fire incidents happen, and it takes great muscle discipline and attention to detail to know where you're aiming in relation to the location of your teammates at all times, especially when armed with a pig. Maintaining a high standard of safety and delivering deadly force on target when duty calls is what makes an average SEAL a good operator. Most people think once you're a SEAL, you're always in the circle, but that's not true. I learned quickly that we were constantly being judged, and the second I was unsafe, whether I was still a new guy or a veteran operator, I'd be out. I was one of three new guys in my first platoon, and one of them had to have his gun taken away because he was so unsafe. For 10 days, we moved through the Malaysian jungle, sleeping in hammocks, paddling dugouts, carrying our weapons all day and night, and he was stuck hauling a fucking broomstick like the Wicked Witch of the West. Even then, he couldn't hack it and wound up getting booted. Our officers in that first platoon kept everybody honest, and I respected them for it. In combat, nobody just turns into Rambo, Dana DeCoster told me recently. Dana was second in command on my first platoon with SEAL Team 5. These days, he's director of operations at BUDS. 
We push ourselves hard, so when bullets do start flying, we fall back on really good training. And it's important that the point where we fall back is so high, we know we're going to outperform the enemy. We may not become Rambo, but we'll be damn close. A lot of people are fascinated by the weaponry and gunfights SEALs utilize and engage in, but that was never my favorite part of the job. I was damn good at it, but I preferred going to war with myself. I'm talking about strong physical training, and my first platoon delivered that too. We would go on long run-swim runs most mornings before work. We weren't just getting miles in either. We were competing, and our officers led from the front. Our OIC and Dana, his second, were two of the best athletes in the entire platoon, and my platoon chief, Chris Beck, who now goes by Kristen Beck and is one of the most famous trans women on Twitter, talk about being the only, was a hard motherfucker too. It's funny, Dana said. The OIC and I never really talked about our philosophy on PT. We just competed. I wanted to beat him, and he wanted to beat me, and that got people talking about how hard we were getting after it. There was never a doubt in my mind that Dana was off his damn rocker. I remember before we shipped out for Indonesia, with stops in Guam, Malaysia, Thailand, and Korea, we did a number of training dives off San Clemente Island. Dana was my swim buddy, and one morning he challenged me to do a training dive in 55-degree water without a wetsuit, because that's how the predecessors to the SEALs did it when they prepared the beaches in Normandy for the famous D-Day invasion during World War II. Let's go old school and dive in shorts with our dive knives, he said. He had the animalistic mentality I thrived on, and I wasn't about to back down from that challenge. We swam and dove together all over Southeast Asia, where we trained elite military units in Malaysia and sharpened the skills of Thai Navy SEALs, the crew of frogmen who saved the soccer kids in the cave in the summer of 2018. They were engaged with an Islamist insurgency in South Thailand. Wherever we deployed, I loved those PT mornings above all else. Pretty soon, every man in that platoon was competing against everyone else. But no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't seem to catch our two officers, and usually came in third place. Didn't matter. It wasn't important who won, because everybody was capping personal bests almost every day, and that's what stayed with me. The power of a competitive environment to amp up an entire platoon's commitment and achievement. This was exactly the environment I'd been dreaming of when I classed up for buds. We were all living the SEAL ethos, and I couldn't wait to see where it took us individually and as a unit once we tagged into the fight. But as war raged in Afghanistan, all we could do was sit tight and hope our number was called. We were in a Korean bowling alley when we watched the invasion of Iraq together. It was depressing as hell. We had been training hard for an opportunity like that. Our foundation had been reinforced with all that PT and filled out with robust weapons and tactical training. We'd become a deadly unit, frothing to be a part of the action, and the fact that we were passed over again pissed us all off. So we took it out on one another every morning. Navy SEALs were treated like rock stars at the bases we visited around the world, and some of the guys partied like it. In fact, most SEALs enjoyed their share of big nights out, but not me. I'd gotten into the SEALs by living a Spartan lifestyle and felt my job at night was to rest, recharge, and get my body and mind right for battle again the next day. I was forever mission ready, and my attitude earned respect from some. 
but our OIC tried to influence me to let go a little and become one of the boys. I had great respect for our OIC. He'd graduated from the Naval Academy and the University of Cambridge. He was clearly smart, a stud athlete, and a great leader, on his way to claiming a coveted spot on DevGrew. So his opinion mattered to me. It mattered to all of us, because he was responsible for evaluating us, and those evaluations have a way of following you around and affecting your military career going forward. On paper, my first evaluation was solid. He was impressed with my skills and all-out effort, but he also dropped some off-the-record wisdom. You know, Goggins, he said, you'd understand the job a little better if you hung out with the guys more. That's when I learned the most about operating in the field, hanging with the boys, hearing their stories. It's important to be part of the group. His words were a reality check that hurt. Clearly the OIC and probably some of the other guys thought I was a little different. Of course I was. I came from fucking nothing. I didn't get recruited to the Naval Academy. I didn't even know where the fuck Cambridge was. I wasn't raised around pools. I had to teach myself to swim. Fuck, I shouldn't even have been a SEAL, but I made it, and I thought that made me part of the group. But now, I realize I was part of the teams, not the brotherhood. I had to go out and socialize with the guys after hours to prove my value? That was a big ask for an introvert like me. Fuck that. I'd arrived in that platoon because of my intense dedication, and I wasn't about to let up. While people were out at night, I was reading up on tactics, weaponry, and war. I was a perpetual student. In my mind, I was training for opportunities that didn't even exist yet. Back then, you couldn't screen to join DevGrew until after you finished your second platoon. But I was already preparing for that opportunity, and I refused to compromise who I was to conform to their unwritten rules. DevGrew and the Army's Delta Force are considered the very best within the best of special operations. They get the tip of the spear missions, like the Osama bin Laden raid. And from that point on, I decided I wouldn't and couldn't be satisfied just being a vanilla Navy SEAL. Yeah, we were all uncommon, hard motherfuckers compared to civilians. But now I saw I was uncommon even among the uncommon. And if that's who I was, then so the fuck be it. I may as well separate myself even more. Not long after that evaluation, I won the morning race for the first time. I passed up Dana and the OIC in the last half mile and never looked back. Platoon assignments last for two years, and by the end of our deployment, most of the guys were ready for a breather before tackling their next platoon, which, judging by the wars we were involved in, were almost guaranteed to take them into combat. I didn't want or need a break because the uncommon among uncommon don't take breaks. After my first evaluation, I started studying the other branches in the military, Coast Guard not included, and read up on their special forces. Navy SEALs like to think that we're the best of them all, but I wanted to see for myself. I suspected all the branches employed a few individuals who stood out in the worst environments. I was on a hunt to find and train with those guys because I knew they could make me better. Plus, I'd read that Army Ranger School was known as one of the best if not the best leadership schools in the entire military. So during my first platoon, I put seven chits in with my OIC, hoping to get approval to go to Army Ranger School between deployments. I wanted to sponge more knowledge, I told them, and become more skilled as a special operator. Chits are special requests, and my first six were ignored. I was a new guy, after all. 
and some thought my focus should remain within naval special warfare, rather than stray into the dreaded army. But I'd earned my own reputation after serving two years in my first platoon, and my seventh request went up the ladder to the CO in charge of SEAL Team 5. When he signed off, I was in. Goggins, my OIC said after giving me the good news. You are the type of motherfucker who wishes you were a POW, just to see if you have what it takes to last. He was on to me. He knew the kind of person I was becoming. The type of man willing to challenge myself to the nth degree. We shook hands. The OIC was off to Devgru, and there was a chance we'd meet there soon. He told me that with two ongoing wars, for the first time, Devgru had opened their recruitment process to include guys off their first platoon. By always searching for more and preparing my mind and body for opportunities that didn't yet exist, I was one of a handful of men on the West Coast approved by SEAL Team 5 Brass to screen for Green Team, the training program for DevGru, just before I left for Army Ranger School. The Green Team screening process unfolds over two days. The first day is the physical fitness portion, which included a three-mile run, a 1,200-meter swim, three minutes of sit-ups and push-ups, and a max set of pull-ups. I smoked everybody because my first platoon had made me a much stronger swimmer and a better runner. Day two was the interview, which was more like an interrogation. Only three men from my screening class of 18 guys were approved for green team. I was one of them, which theoretically meant that after my second platoon, I'd be one step closer to joining DevGru. I could hardly wait. It was December 2003, and as imagined, my special forces career was zooming into hyperspace because I kept proving myself to be the most uncommon of motherfuckers and remained on track to become that one warrior. A few weeks later, I arrived in Fort Benning, Georgia for Army Ranger School. It was early December, and as the only Navy guy in a class of 308 men, I was greeted with skepticism by the instructors because a few classes before mine, a couple of Navy SEALs quit in the middle of training. Back then, they used to send Navy SEALs to Ranger School as punishment, so they may not have been the best representatives. I'd been begging to go, but the instructors didn't know that yet. They thought I was just another cocky special ops guy. Within hours, they stripped me and everyone else of our uniforms and reputations until we all looked the same. Officers lost rank, and minted special forces warriors like me became nobodies with a hell of a lot to prove. On day one, we were split into three companies, and I was appointed first sergeant in command of Bravo Company. I got the job because the original first sergeant had been asked to recite the Ranger Creed after a beatdown on the pull-up bar, and he was so tired, he fucked it up. To Rangers, their creed is everything. Our Ranger instructor was livid as he took stock of Bravo Company. All of us locked at attention. I don't know where you think you men are, but if you expect to become rangers, then I expect you to know our creed. His eyes found me. I know for a fact Old Navy here doesn't know the ranger creed. <laughs> you know, Goggins, I could keep reading this as is, but, you know, I think you should take it from here. Like, what, what, <laughs> what happened at that point? You know what? So I was a student of, of the military, and the funny thing about it is people know me for running and all this other crap I did, man. But my life was about the military. 
And so this guy had no idea. You know, he was looking at these guys, these other Navy SEALs that had quit. Man, I was studying the Ranger Creed, man, for months, for months, maybe even a year before I even got there, man. And I was going through it. So when he called me up in front, I was like, okay, motherfucker, Ross, this one. So he only wanted me to say the first stanza, you know. So I said the first stanza, and he tried to stop me. So it was like, it was, so I'll say it right now. I still know it. Recognizing that I volunteered as a ranger, fully knowing the hazards of my chosen profession, I will always endeavor to uphold the prestige, honor, and highest spirit core of the rangers. Acknowledging the fact that a ranger is a more elite soldier who arrives at the cutting edge of battle by land, sea, or air, I accept the fact that as a ranger, my country expects me to move further, faster, and fight harder than any other soldier. Never shall I fail my comrades. I will always keep myself mentally alert, physically strong, and morally straight. And I will shorter more than my share of the task, whatever it may be, 100% and then some. Gallantly, while I show the world that I'm a specially selected and well-trained soldier, my courtesy to superior officers, needless address, and care of equipment shall set the example for others to follow. Energetically, while I meet the enemies in my country, I shall defeat them on the field of battle, for I am better trained and will fight with all my might. Surrender is not a ranger word. I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall in the hands of the enemy and under no circumstances will ever embarrass my country. Readily will I display the intestinal fortitude required to fight onto the ranger objective and complete the mission, though I be the lone survivor. Rangers lead the way. So <laughs> that's I mean, amazing. So, I'm ready to I'm ready to charge at something. So I went to I mean, so I was up there, man, and my the hair in the back of my neck was going off. I mean, like I was bald. And by the time I got this in the Ranger Creek, I had a full afro head of hair. <laughs> I was just losing my fucking mind, dude. And I was fired up. But then he said, hey, Goggins, congratulations. You are now first sergeant. <laughs> and I was like, fuck. <laughs> now I got to be in charge of all these assholes, man, along with going to Ranger school. So it became challenging, man. But I, once again, I loved it. I loved it. He left me there in front of my platoon, speechless. It was now my job to march our platoon around and make sure every man was prepared for whatever lay in front of us. I became part boss, part big brother, and full-time quasi-instructor. In ranger school, it's hard enough to get yourself squared away enough to graduate. Now I had to look after a hundred men and make sure they had their shit together too. Plus, I still had to go through the same evolutions as everyone else. But that was the easy part, and actually gave me a chance to chill out. For me, the physical punishment was more than manageable. But the way I went about accomplishing those physical tasks had shifted. In Buds, I'd always led my boat crews, often with tough love. But in general, I didn't care how the guys in other boat crews were doing, or if they quit. This time, I wasn't just putting out. I was also looking after everybody. If I saw someone having trouble with navigation patrolling, keeping up on a run, or staying awake all night, I made sure we all rallied together to help. Not everybody wanted to. The training was so difficult that when some guys weren't on the clock being graded, they did the bare minimum and found opportunities to rest and hide. In my 69 days at ranger school, I didn't coast for a single second. I was becoming a true leader. The whole point of ranger school is to give every man a taste of what it takes to lead a high-level team. The field exercises were like an operator's scavenger hunt, blended with an endurance race. 
Over the course of six testing phases, we were evaluated on navigation, weapons, rope techniques, reconnaissance, and overall leadership. The field tests were notorious for their Spartan brutality and capped three separate phases of training. First, we were split into groups of 12 men and together spent five days and four nights in the foothills for Fort Benning phase. We were given very little food to eat, one or two MREs per day, and only a couple of hours sleep per night as we raced the clock to navigate cross-country terrain between stations, where we'd knock off a series of tasks to prove our proficiency in a particular skill. Leadership in the group rotated between men. Mountain phase was exponentially harder than Fort Benning. Now we were grouped into teams of 25 men to navigate the mountains in North Georgia. And buddy, Appalachia gets cold as fuck in wintertime. I'd read stories about black soldiers with sickle cell trait dying during mountain phase. And the army wanted me to wear special dog tags with a red casing to alert medics if something went wrong. But I was leading men and didn't want my crew to think of me as some sickly child. So the red casing never quite found its way to my dog tags. In the mountains, we learned how to rappel and rock climb, among other mountaineering skills, and became proficient in ambush techniques and mountain patrol. To prove it, we went out on two separate four-night field training exercises, known as FTXs. A storm blew in during our second FTX. 30-mile-per-hour winds howled with ice and snow. We didn't haul sleeping bags or warm clothes, and again we had very little food. All we could use to keep warm was a poncho liner and one another, which was an issue because the rancid odor in the air was our own. We'd burned so many calories without proper nutrition, we'd lost all our fat and were incinerating our own muscle mass for fuel. The putrid stink made our eyes water. It triggered the gag reflex. Visibility narrowed to a few feet. Guys wheezed, coughed, and jackhammered, their eyes wide with terror. I thought for sure someone was going to die from frostbite, hypothermia, or pneumonia that night. Whenever you stop to sleep during field tests, rest is brief and you're required to maintain security in four directions. But in the face of that storm, Bravo Platoon buckled. These were generally very hard men with a ton of pride, but they were focused on survival above all else. I understood the impulse, and the instructors didn't mind because we were in weather emergency mode. But to me, that presented an opportunity to stand apart and lead by example. I looked at that winter storm as a platform to become uncommon among uncommon men. No matter who you are, life will present you similar opportunities where you can prove to be uncommon. There are people in all walks of life who relish those moments. And when I see them, I recognize them immediately because they are usually that motherfucker who's all by himself. It's the suit who's still at the office at midnight while everyone else is at the bar. Or the badass who hits the gym directly after coming off a 48-hour op. She's the wildland firefighter who, instead of hitting her bedroll, sharpens her chainsaw after working a fire for 24 hours. That mentality is there for all of us. Man, woman, straight, gay, black, white, or purple fucking polka dot. All of us can be the person who flies all day and night only to arrive home to a filthy house, and instead of blaming family or roommates, cleans it up right then, because they refuse to ignore duties undone. All over the world, amazing human beings like that exist. It doesn't take wearing a uniform. 
It's not about all the hard schools they graduated from, all their patches and medals. It's about wanting it like there's no tomorrow, because there might not be. It's about thinking of everybody else before yourself and developing your own code of ethics that sets you apart from others. One of those ethics is the drive to turn every negative into a positive, and then when shit starts flying, being prepared to lead from the front. My thinking on that Georgia mountaintop was that in a real-world scenario, a storm like that would provide the perfect cover for an enemy attack. So I didn't group up and seek warmth. I dialed deeper, welcomed the carnage of ice and snow, and held the western perimeter like it was my duty, because it damn well was. And I loved every second of it. I squinted into the wind, and as hail stung my cheeks, I screamed into the night from the depths of my misunderstood soul. A few guys heard me, popped out of the tree line to the north, and stood tall. Then another guy emerged to the east, and another on the edge of the south-facing slope. They were all shivering, wrapped in their measly poncho liners. None of them wanted to be there, but they rose up and did their duty. In spite of one of the most brutal storms in ranger school history, we held a complete perimeter until the instructors radioed us to come in from the cold. Literally. They put up a circus tent. We filed in and huddled up until the storm passed. The final weeks in ranger school are called Florida phase, a 10-day FTX in which 50 men navigate the panhandle, GPS point by GPS point, as a single unit. It started with a static line jump from an aircraft at 1,500 feet into frigid swamplands near Fort Walton Beach. We waded and swam across rivers, set up rope bridges, and with our hands and feet shimmied back to the other side. We couldn't stay dry, and the water temperature was in the high 30s and low 40s. We'd all heard the story that during the winter of 1994, it got so cold, four would-be rangers died of hypothermia during Florida phase. Being near the beach, freezing my nuts off, reminded me of Hell Week. Whenever we stopped, guys were nut to butt and jackhammering. But as usual, I focused hard and refused to show any weakness. This time, it wasn't about taking the souls of our instructors. It was about giving courage to the men who were struggling. I'd cross the river six times if that's what it took to help one of my guys tie off his rope bridge. I'd walk them step by step through the process until they could prove their value to the ranger brass. We slept very little, ate even less, and continually knocked off reconnaissance tasks, hitting waypoints, setting up bridges and weapons, and preparing for ambush, while taking turns leading a group of 50 men. Those men were tired, hungry, cold, frustrated, and they did not want to be there anymore. Most were at their ultimate edge, their 100%. I was getting there too, but even when it wasn't my turn to lead, I helped out because in those 69 days of ranger school, I learned that if you want to call yourself a leader, that's what it takes. A true leader stays exhausted, abhors arrogance, and never looks down on the weakest link. He fights for his men and leads by example. That's what it meant to be uncommon among uncommon. It meant being one of the best and helping your men find their best too. It was a lesson I wish sunk in a lot deeper, because in just a few more weeks, I'd be challenged in a leadership department and come up well short. Ranger school was so demanding, and the standards were so high, that only 96 men graduated out of a class of 308 candidates, and the majority of them were from Bravo Platoon. I was awarded Enlisted Honor Man and received 100% peer evaluation. To me, that meant even more, because my classmates, 
my fellow knuckle-draggers, had valued my leadership in harsh conditions. And one look in the mirror revealed just how harsh those conditions were. I lost 56 pounds in ranger school. I looked like death. My cheeks were sunken. My eyes bugged out. I had no bicep muscle left. All of us were emaciated. Guys had trouble running down the block. Men who could do 40 pull-ups in one go now struggled to do a single one. The Army expected that and scheduled three days between the end of Florida phase and graduation to fatten us up before our families flew in to celebrate. As soon as the final FTX was called, we hustled straight to Chow Hall. I piled my tray with donuts, fries, and cheeseburgers and went looking for the milk machine. After drinking all those damn chocolate shakes when I was down and out, my body had become lactose intolerant and I hadn't touched dairy in years. But that day I was like a little child, unable to stifle a primordial yearning for a glass of milk. I found the milk machine, pulled the lever down, and watched confused as it funneled out chunky as cottage cheese. I shrugged and sniffed. It smelled all kinds of wrong, but I remember downing that spoiled milk like it was a fresh glass of sweet tea, courtesy of another hellacious special forces school that put us through so much, by the end, anybody who survived was grateful for their cold glass of spoiled milk. <laughs> man, how did that taste? Man, first of all, right, you know those old school milk machines like with that silver handle? Yeah. With the big old ball on Hell it yeah. and you pull them down? All I remember, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to see this nice milk pour out of here. And it kind of clumped into my glass. <laughs> and I was like, man, I was, but I remember thinking, man, I'm drinking this. <laughs> <laughs> because you wanted the milk so I was bad? thinking, man, you know what? If, if Uncle Sam has it in here, it must be good to drink. <laughs> you are all in. You know, I'm that I'm that kind of guy, man. That, you know, if you want me married in the military, Uncle Sam got to issue me a wife. <laughs> <laughs> that customer guy was married twice in the military. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Too bad Uncle Sam didn't do it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm telling you, man. You know, he didn't issue me the white right. You know, the, <laughs> the, the correct woman. <laughs> yes, that's it. But I will tell you this, man. A lot of people talk to me about... You know, because I was in the Air Force and then, you know, I was a Navy SEAL for, you know, 16 years or whatever and going through Ranger School and you're here in a second. I, I go through some more training somewhere else. I don't want to ruin it for you all. This school right here, it sucked real bad for yeah. me. Yeah. Because in SEAL training, what they do is, yeah, they kick the crap out of you, man. But at nighttime, you know, you go home, you know, if it's not Hell Week. You know, you go home, you know, you can watch TV, you can go on a date, you can do whatever you want, man. Get a lot of food. Here at Ranger School, man, you are locked tight at Ranger School. And they feed you hardly at all. Yeah. And for me, going, you know, going through buds so many times, you get used to eating. And food is your fuel. So the more you eat, the more energy you have. I, I mean, I'll never forget, you know, first day of buds, the, the doctor, can, you know, I mean, the doctor comes out and gives us his med brief. And he says, hey, so we're all thinking, you know, he's going to tell us about different kind of diets and what kind of nutrition, all sort of stuff. He goes, no. In Bud's, if you see a full-on pie or a cake, eat it. Mm. He said, because you're burning so many calories, if, if you don't get those calories back in your body, you know, you're going to have a hard time going through here. So at Ranger School, what they do so well is they don't feed you well and, you know, you get zero sleep. Right. So there's this one time, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. I was on one of my last patrols, and I was the PL, 
I was the um, you know the uh, platoon leader out there on a on a uh, operation, and we're going through, and I had my my navigator up front, and he puts his fist up, like hey stop, so I halt the whole group. Everybody puts a fist up to kind of pass the word back in line. And once you pass the word back in line, the scary thing about that is those guys now who are supposed to be taking the knee and then taking security while you're trying to figure out, you know, do like a map study. These guys in the back, you know, I mean, you have 50 guys now you're in charge of. They're falling asleep. Hmm. So they're back there falling asleep. This guy calls me up front and says, hey, Goggins, the RIs, which is Ranger instructors, they put a box of donuts up here. <laughs> and I'm like, really? So I'm walking up, man. I'm like, oh, man, this is great. You know, towards the end. So, you know, so you're thinking maybe they're hooking us up with some donuts. I walk up there. It's a log. I mean, this guy is out of his mind. He's starving. It's a freaking log. He <laughs> so he's hallucinating log. He's donuts. He's hallucinating his ass off. <laughs> it's an oasis. I mean, I want to beat the shit out of him right now, man, because I'm hungry as hell. And he told me some box of donuts up here. <laughs> so anyway, we start moving up. We get about a mile into the hump, a mile further into the hump. And so I call for, you know, like a head count to go back, pass it back up. So the guys are looking back around them. And one of our guys fell asleep by the tree a mile back. So if you show up at your soon-to-be new location and the, you know, RIs, range instructors, are checking you out. And I got, you know, and I'm down a guy. I'm getting kicked out. Yeah. So now we got to go back and get this guy. I mean, the whole school, man, it's attention to detail when you are the most fucked up on edge yeah sleepy hungry it's it's a it's a stressful school man because they you know you know they'll call you in charge at at 2 a.m hmm. hey goggins you know you are now in charge of these 50 men it's 2 a.m you're hungry it's, it's 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 raining sideways and you gotta you know you gotta roger up i love the idea of them stripping everyone of rank and and identity within the military too and how everyone's just kind of their own everyone's a private basically Oh, you know what? I love that probably the most because my whole mentality has always been, you know, a lot of people have this mentality of I've arrived. Mm. And my big, one of my big secrets is I've never arrived. And going to ranger school, I was a SEAL. You know, and most, you know, most SEALs have a little chip on their shoulder, you know. I'm not going to ranger school, you know. That's, that's beneath me. For me, I was like, this is great. I'm back to nobody. I'm back to, you know, Seaman Smuckatelli. I am I am fucking Seaman Smuckatelli. <laughs> I am nobody. I am not a SEAL. I'm not nothing. I'm just some punk ass. Give me a rucksack. Get your weapon and follow me. Mm. And I was like, Roger that. But that mentality you'll see here in a second, man, starts to, uh, you know, not pay off. So you'll see in a little bit. Most people take a couple weeks off to recover from Ranger School and put some weight back on. Most people do that. The day of graduation, on Valentine's Day, I flew into Coronado to meet up with my second platoon. Once again, I looked at that lack of lag time as an opportunity to be uncommon. Not that anybody else was watching, but when it comes to mindset, it doesn't matter where other people's attention lies. I had my own uncommon standards to live up to. At every stop I'd made in the SEALs, from Buds to that first platoon to Ranger School, I was known as a hard motherfucker. And when the OIC in my second platoon put me in charge of PT, I was encouraged because it told me that once again, I'd landed with a group of men who were driven to put out and get better. 
Inspired, I bent my brain to think of evil shit we could do to get us battle ready. This time we all knew we'd deploy to Iraq, and I made it my mission to help us become the hardest SEAL platoon in the fight. That was a high bar, set by the original Navy SEAL legend, still lodged like an anchor deep in my brain. Our legend suggested we were the type of men to swim five miles on Monday, run 20 miles on Tuesday, and climb a 14,000-foot peak on Wednesday. And my expectations were sky-fucking-high. For the first week, guys rallied at 5 a.m. for a run-swim-run or a 12-mile ruck, followed by a lap through the O-course. We carried logs over the berm and hammered hundreds of push-ups. I had us doing the hard shit, the real shit, the workouts that made us SEALs. Each day, the workouts were harder than the last, and over the course of a week or two, that wore people down. Every alpha male in special ops wants to be the best at everything they do, but with me leading PT, they couldn't always be the best, because I never gave them a break. We were all breaking down and showing weakness. That was the idea, but they didn't want to be challenged like that every day. During the second week, attendance flagged, and the OIC and the chief of our platoon took me aside. Look, dude, our OIC said, this is stupid. What are we doing? We aren't in buds anymore, Goggins, said the chief. To me, this wasn't about being in buds. This was about living the SEAL ethos and earning the trident every day. These guys wanted to do their own PT, which typically meant hitting the gym and getting big. They weren't interested in being punished physically and definitely weren't interested in being pushed to meet my standard. Their reaction shouldn't have surprised me, but it sure as hell disappointed me and made me lose all respect for their leadership. I understood that not everyone wanted to work out like an animal for the rest of their career because I didn't want to do that shit either. But what put distance between me and almost everybody else in that platoon is that I didn't let my desire for comfort rule me. I was determined to go to war with myself to find more because I believed it was our duty to maintain a buds mentality and prove ourselves every day. Navy SEALs are revered the world over and are thought to be the hardest men that God ever created. But that conversation made me realize that wasn't always true. I had just come from ranger school, a place where nobody has any rank at all. Even if a general had classed up, he'd have been in the same clothes we all had to wear, that of an enlisted man on day one of basic fucking training. We were all maggots reborn, with no future and no past, starting at zero. I loved that concept, because it sent a message that no matter what we'd accomplished in the outside world, as far as the rangers were concerned, we weren't shit. And I claim that metaphor for myself, because it's always and forever true. No matter what you or I achieve in sports, business, or life, we can't be satisfied. Life is too dynamic of a game. We're either getting better or we're getting worse. Yes, we need to celebrate our victories. There's power in victory that's transformative. But after our celebration, we should dial it down, dream up new training regiments, new goals, and start at zero the very next day. I wake up every day as if I am back in buds. Day one, week one. Starting at zero is a mindset that says my refrigerator is never full, and it never will be. We can always become stronger and more agile, mentally and physically. We can always become more capable and more reliable. Since that's the case, we should never feel that our work is done. There is always more to do. Are you an experienced scuba diver? Great. Shed your gear, take a deep breath, and become a 100-foot freediver. Are you a badass triathlete? Cool. Learn how to rock climb. Are you enjoying a wildly successful career? 
Wonderful. Learn a new language or skill. Get a second degree. Always be willing to embrace ignorance and become the dumb fuck in the classroom again, because that is the only way to expand your body of knowledge and body of work. It's the only way to expand your mind. During week two of my second platoon, my chief and OIC showed their cards. It was devastating to hear that they didn't feel that we needed to earn our status every day. Sure, all the guys I worked with over the years were relatively hard guys and highly skilled. They enjoyed the challenges of the job, the brotherhood, and being treated like superstars. They all loved being SEALs, but some weren't interested in starting at zero because just by qualifying to breathe rare air, they were already satisfied. Now that is a very common way of thinking. Most people in the world, if they ever push themselves at all, are willing to push themselves only so far. Once they reach a cushy plateau, they chill the fuck out and enjoy their rewards. But there's another phrase for that mentality. It's called getting soft, and that I could not abide. As far as I was concerned, I had my own reputation to uphold. And when the rest of the platoon opted out of my custom-made hellscape, the chip on my shoulder grew even bigger. I ramped up my workouts and vowed to put out so hard it would hurt their fucking feelings. As head of PT, that was not in my job description. I was supposed to inspire guys to give more. Instead, I saw what I considered a glaring weakness and let them know I wasn't impressed. In one short week, my leadership regressed light years from where I was in ranger school. I lost touch with my situational awareness and didn't respect the men in my platoon enough. As a leader, I was trying to bull my way through, and they bucked against that. Nobody gave an inch, including the officers. I suppose all of us took a path of least resistance. I just didn't notice it, because physically, I was going harder than ever. And I had one guy with me. Sledge was a hard motherfucker who grew up in San Bernardino, the son of a firefighter and a secretary. And like me, he taught himself to swim in order to pass the swim tests and qualify for buds. He was only a year older, but was already in his fourth platoon. He was also a heavy drinker, a little overweight, and looking to change his life. The morning after the chief, the OIC, and I had words, Sledge showed up at 5 a.m. ready to roll. I'd been there since 4.30 and had a lather of sweat working already. I like what you're doing with these workouts, he said, and I want to keep doing them. Roger that. From then on, no matter where we were stationed, whether that was Coronado, Nyland, or Iraq, we got after it every single morning. We'd meet up at 4 a.m. and get to it. Sometimes that meant running up the side of a mountain before hitting the O course at high speed and carrying logs up and over the berm and down the beach. In Buds, usually six men carried those logs. We did it with just the two of us. On another day, we rocked a pull-up pyramid, hitting sets of one all the way up to 20 and back down to one again. After every other set, we'd climb a rope 40 feet high. 1,000 pull-ups before breakfast became our new mantra. At first, Sledge struggled to rock one set of 10 pull-ups. Within months, he'd lost 35 pounds and was hitting 100 sets of 10. In Iraq, it was impossible to get long runs in, so we lived in the weight room. We did hundreds of deadlifts and spent hours on the hip sled. We went way beyond overtraining. We didn't care about muscle fatigue or breakdown, because after a certain point, we were training our minds, not our bodies. My workouts weren't designed to make us fast runners or to be the strongest men on the mission. I was training us to take torture so we'd remain relaxed in extraordinarily uncomfortable environments. And shit did get uncomfortable from time to time. Despite the clear divide within our platoon, Sledge and me versus everyone else, 
we operated well together in Iraq. Off-duty, however, there was a huge gulf between who the two of us were becoming and who I thought the men in my platoon were, and my disappointment showed. I wore my shitty attitude around like a shroud, thus earning me the platoon nickname, David, leave me alone, Goggins, and never woke up to realize that my disappointment was my own problem, not my teammate's fault. That's the drawback of becoming uncommon amongst uncommon. You can push yourself to a place that is beyond the current capability or temporal mindset of the people you work with, and that's okay. Just know that your supposed superiority is a figment of your own ego, so don't lord it over them, because it won't help you advance as a team or as an individual in your field. Instead of getting angry that your colleagues can't keep up, help pick your colleagues up and bring them with you. We are all fighting the same battle. All of us are torn between comfort and performance, between settling for mediocrity or being willing to suffer in order to become our best self all the damn time. We make those kinds of decisions a dozen or more times each day. My job as head of PT wasn't to demand that my guys live up to the Navy SEAL legend I loved. It was to help them become the best version of themselves. But I never listened, and I didn't lead. Instead, I got angry and showed up my teammates. For two years, I played the tough guy and never took a step back with a calm mind to address my original error. I had countless opportunities to bridge the gap I'd helped create, but I never did, and it cost me. I didn't realize any of that right away, because after my second platoon, I was ordered to freefall school, then made an assaults instructor. Both were posts scheduled to prep me for green team. Assaults was critical, because most people who get cut from green team are dismissed for sloppy house runs. They move too slow when clearing buildings, are too easily exposed, or are amped up and trigger happy and end up shooting friendly targets. Teaching those skills made me clinical, stealthy, and calm in confined environments, and I expected to receive my orders to train with DevGrew in Damn Neck, Virginia, any day, but they never came. The other two guys who'd rocked the screening with me received their orders. Mine went AWOL. I called leadership at Damn Neck. They told me to screen again, and that's when I knew something was off. I thought about the process I'd been through. Did I really expect to do better? I smoked that shit. But then I remembered the actual interview, which felt more like an interrogation, with two men playing good cop, bad cop. They didn't probe my skill set or Navy know-how. 85% of their questions had nothing to do with my ability to operate whatsoever. The bulk of that interview was about my race. We're a bunch of good old boys, one of them said, and we need to know how you're going to handle hearing black jokes, bro. Most of their questions were a variation on that one theme, and through it all, I smiled and thought, how are you white boys going to feel when I'm the baddest motherfucker in here? But that's not what I said, and it wasn't because I was intimidated or uncomfortable. I was more at home in that interview than anywhere I'd been in the military, because for the first time in my life, it was out in the fucking open. They weren't trying to pretend that being one of only a handful of black guys in perhaps the most revered military organization in the world didn't have its own unique set of challenges. One guy was challenging me with his aggressive posture and tone. The other guy kept it cool, but they were both being real. There were two or three black men in DevGrew already, and they were telling me that entry into their inner circle required my signing off on certain terms and conditions. And in a sick way, I loved that message and the challenge that came with it. DevGrew was a hard-ass, renegade crew within the SEALs, and they wanted it to stay that way. They didn't want to civilize anybody. They didn't want to evolve or change. And I knew where I was and what I was getting myself into. 
This crew was responsible for the most dangerous tip-of-the-spear missions. It was a white man's underworld, and these guys needed to know how I'd act if someone started to fuck with me. They needed assurances I could control my emotions, and once I saw through their language into the greater purpose, I couldn't be offended by their act. Look, I've experienced racism my entire life, I replied, and there is nothing any of you fuckers can say to me that I haven't heard 20 times before. But be ready, because I'm coming right the fuck back at you. At the time, they seemed to like the sound of that. Trouble is, when you're a black guy giving it back, it usually doesn't go over nearly as well. I will never know why I didn't receive my orders for Green Team, and it doesn't matter. We can't control all the variables in our lives. It's about what we do with the opportunities revoked or presented to us that determine how a story ends. Instead of thinking, I crushed the screening process once, I can do it again, I decided to start at zero and screen for Delta Force, the Army's version of DevGrew, instead. So David, let's talk about that. Um, you know, kind of the second platoon in general and, right. and the DevGrew experience. Uh, what's on your mind? So you know what? I don't talk about my military experience too much, probably because of this second platoon right here and how this kind of changed my whole outlook. So when I went through those three hell weeks and I started realizing more and more about me and I started realizing even in that third time when I got through that, that 235 in that buds class, that's when it started hitting me, man. Like, even if you're a bad motherfucker, I don't care if you're Roger Federer from tennis or, you know, whoever the hell you may be, LeBron James, whatever, I believe that we are all underachieving to a certain point, mm. which is why the best of the best are constantly training hard. Mm -hmm. Like LeBron James right now, man, he's still... You know, he's still trying to find, like, even more of an edge. Yep. And if you were to talk to all these guys after they retire, and, you know, let's say you were interviewing uh, Roger. I guarantee you, he'd look in your eyes as, you know, as, as the interviewer was saying, man, you were amazing, Roger. You were this, you were that. I guarantee you, he'd be looking back, not on the great success he had. He'd be looking back at all the times he missed that shot. Mm. Or he should have won that grand slam, but... And it, so that's what makes you great. So I started realizing, my God, man, anybody else would have quit in this hell week. My body was broken. You know, it had been, you know, it was my third time around. So I started, you know, realizing, my God, man, I could have easily went home on these broken legs saying, hey, man, that was my 100%. I'm out of here. But I didn't. And at that point, I realized, my God, man, there's so much more left in the tank. So I took that mentality and that's the mindset that separates us all from good to great. Right. That's the great separator. So I was like, you know what? I'm in the great place. I'm in the best place in the world to kind of like, you know, these seals, you know, we're supposed to be the hardest men ever. So I'm now going to take this mentality and I'm going to start sampling it. So I became the Stephen Hawking. You know, that, that guy became obsessed with, you know, you know with, with learning. I became obsessed with the mind. How much further can we go? And I thought I was in a great, you know, kind of like trial ground. So that became my problem. So be being the leader of PT for the second platoon was almost like you were the mad scientist with all right. these lab rats. And you could push them and see what happens because, and see if you can create more of you. Yeah, they're seals. Right. And after, you know what's funny? After every single hundred miler, even after Badwater, the first time I did Badwater, when I got through Badwater, 
not many people knew I was a SEAL. Once they found out I was a SEAL, they said, oh my God, you're a SEAL. This is probably easy for you. And all I'm thinking about is, I don't see SEALs doing this shit. <laughs> and so, no, you know, so, only you. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, even though, you know, some guys are deployed, some guys aren't. I was putting 100 mile weeks, you know, while I was doing all kind of SEAL shit. Yeah. It's just they didn't do that. Right. But in my mind, you know, before I got in, man, I was watching these movies and reading these fucking books and all this shit, man. And I put the SEALs on an almost impossible level in my mind. Yeah. So... When I was going through Hell Week, I was like, man, to be a Navy SEAL, you're supposed to be able to run on broken bones. Yeah. You're supposed to be a guy that, you know, cut your fucking arm off and still swim 200 miles. You know, that's the, that was the mentality I had because that's all that was said about them. Right. And so they motiv that, that and that motiv motivated you to get through that Hell Week, and which in turn kind of set you up for this other this path through ultras right but then you get to your second uh second platoon before the ultra thing really takes off and so you're still kind of living off of that third hell week and you've done two hell weeks and actually part of three and and you get that news that actually wait a second that legend isn't always accurate and that kind of like took the wind out oh it took more than the wind out because yeah. what what made me who i was at that time was that legend yeah that, and I'm not saying every guy, you know, isn't, you know, every guy is not getting after. Yeah, there are some guys who are getting after. Like, you know, we'll talk about Hawk here in a second. But it, it just wasn't. I thought everybody that had a trident on was just crushing shit. Right. I mean, every day fucking, hey, you want to go 50 miles? Let's go, motherfucker. Let's do it. You want to run? I mean, whatever it was. But I realized a lot of guys after that trident was on their chest, it was like, hey, man, you know what? I'm not killing my fucking self. And I realized I had a very grunt-like mentality. So I look at the SEALs and, and, and some of our special operations units. Yeah, they're great. They're truly amazing. But they are more of like the, the Harvard. You know, like, you know, like, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm good. I'm not going to break my ass anymore. And my mentality was, hey, man, I, I haven't come anywhere i haven't arrived at all yeah there were it, there were some satisfied guys is what right you saw. Yeah, yeah yeah very satisfied so that's what happened to me and it literally kind of fucked me up when i had that conversation with my oyc and my chief and my attitude got really foul right it got and, and, real foul and so and that's where it kind of comes around is you have to own that part of it because you didn't have to let that derail you but you did right and i mean it, and it, and it did big time but what happened also here was you know when I was growing up, I always wanted to be around the best because I always felt like I was the worst. So when I finally got there, I was like, man, this is great. You know, these are the best of the best. And on top of that, man, um, it just, it, it just, you know what? It was one of the situations in my life that truly jacked me up, man. And I was so used to trying to fit in back in the day. But by this time in my life, I had worked my ass off so hard you know, with losing the weight and learn how to read and write and overcoming so much on my own, I didn't give a fuck anymore who liked me or who didn't like. I wasn't trying to fit in with the SEAL teams. Right, and you think in the end that's probably what, what hurt your chances with Green Team and Dev Grew. It really wasn't most likely the racist interview, although no. you never know. But it was probably because... Um, you know, like it seems like Dev Grew should have been a hard kind of hardcore group that doesn't want necessarily likable people. They should want the best people. Right. But it turned out maybe they wanted a little bit of likable in there. Well, you know what? It is true 
the SEAL teams is a brotherhood. And there's a bunch of badass guys who are great shooters, movers, and communicators. You know, I wasn't part of the brotherhood. I was a Navy SEAL. Um, I was uh, I was part of the teams, but I was not part of the brotherhood, man. I, you know, I didn't do anything that they did. I was a good team player, but that also, that, that whole brotherhood thing was something that happened outside of actual work. The fraternity aspect. Yeah, the fraternity of it, you know, and I'm not a fraternity guy. Mm. So, you know, that ended up hurting me quite a bit, but it also drove me. Yeah. You know, I was like, hey, man, fuck it, man, let's go. You know, so, you know, we often eat our own. We, so, so in the SEAL teams, we, we eat our own. In, in a lot of special operations units, man, you, you eat your own. Yeah. But I actually love that mentality, truthfully, man. So there's a lot of things that happen, you know, within the platoon. Well, you eventually found your vantage point and it ended up getting you onto the ultra circuit and doing all that. But th so this is just kind of the, you know, we've told that story and now we're going back and this is kind of sets up that whole angle. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you got you to gotta pull out of all, you know, you got to pull something good out of all the bad. But you didn't stop trying to join the, the tip of the spear cruise uh you decided to go army and that also might have hurt you with the seals right <laughs> yeah that that wasn't a good deal because then it, so by this time when i didn't get orders to green team i had that kind of like you know what something was going on here i was like okay fuck you i'm gonna go ahead now and go over to the army and i'm gonna fucking knock that shit out but i also i was obsessed with the military so i actually saw this as like you know what this is kind of good man i can now screen for Delta Force, because why? I was on a hunt for the most uncommon people to ever live. So I was like, hey man, I've never sampled that. Let me go over there and see if these guys are, you know, better than the guys I work with. And this gave me a great opportunity to do that. Delta selection is rigorous, and I'd always been intrigued by it due to the elusive nature of the group. Unlike SEALs, you never heard about Delta. The screening for Delta Selection included an IQ test, a complete military resume, including my qualifications and war experience, and my evaluations. I pulled all of that together in a few days, knowing that I was competing against the best guys from every military branch, and that only the cream would be extended an invitation. My Delta orders came through in a matter of weeks. Not long after that, I landed in the mountains of West Virginia, ready to compete for a spot among the Army's very best soldiers. Strangely, there was no yelling or screaming in the Delta void. There was no muster and no OICs. The men that showed up there were all self-starters, and our orders were chalked on a board hanging in the barracks. For three days, we weren't allowed to leave the compound. Our focus was rest and acclimatization. But on day four, PT started up with the basic screening test, which included two minutes of push-ups, two minutes of sit-ups, and a timed two-mile run. They expected everyone to meet a minimum standard, and those that didn't were sent home. From there, things got immediately and progressively more difficult. In fact, later that same night, we had our first road march. Like everything in Delta, officially the distance was unknown, but I believe it was about an 18-mile course from start to finish. It was cold and very dark when all 160 of us took off, strapped with around 40-pound rucksacks. Most guys started out in a slow march, content to pace themselves and hike it out. I took off hot, and in the first quarter mile, left everyone behind. I saw an opportunity to become uncommon and seized it, and I finished about 30 minutes before anybody else. 
Delta Selection is the best orienteering course in the world. For the next 10 days, we hammered PT in the morning and worked on advanced land navigation skills into the night. They taught us how to get from A to B by reading the terrain instead of roads and trails on a map. We learned to read fingers and cuts, and that if you get high, you want to stay high. We were taught to follow water. When you start reading the land this way, your map comes alive. And for the first time in my life, I became great at orienteering. We learned to judge distance and how to draw our own topographic maps. At first, we were assigned an instructor to tail through the wildlands, and those instructors hauled ass. For the next few weeks, we were on our own. Technically, we were still practicing, but we were also being graded and watched to make sure we were moving cross-country instead of taking roads. It all culminated with an extended final exam in the field that lasted seven days and nights, if we even made it that far. This wasn't a team effort. Each of us was on our own to use our map and compass to navigate from one waypoint to the next. There was a Humvee at every stop, and the cadres, our instructors and evaluators there, noted our time and gave us the next set of coordinates. Each day was its own unique challenge, and we never knew how many points we'd have to navigate before the test was done. Plus, there was an unknown time limit that only the cadres were privy to. At the finish line, we weren't told if we passed or failed. Instead, we were directed to one of two covered Humvees. The good truck took you to the next camp. The bad truck motored back to base, where you would have to pack your shit and head home. Most of the time, I didn't know if I made it for sure until the truck stopped. By day five, I was one of roughly 30 guys still in consideration for Delta Force. There were only three days left, and I was rocking every test, coming in at least 90 minutes before drop-dead time. The final test would be a 40-mile ball kicker of a land navigation, and I was looking forward to that. But first, I had work to do. I splashed through washes, huffed up sloped woodlands, and rambled along ridgelines, point to point, until the unthinkable happened. I got lost. I was on the wrong ridge. I double-checked my map and compass and looked across a valley to the correct one, due south. Roger that. For the first time, the clock became a factor. I didn't know the drop-dead time, but knew I was cutting it close. So I sprinted down a steep ravine, but lost my footing. My left foot jammed between two boulders. I rolled over my ankle and felt it pop. The pain was immediate. I checked my watch, gritted my teeth, and laced my boot tight as quickly as I could, then hobbled up a steep hillside to the correct ridge. On the final stretch to the finish, my ankle blew up so bad, I had to untie my boot to relieve the pain. I moved slow, convinced I would be sent home. I was wrong. My Humvee unloaded us at the second-to-last base camp of Delta Selection, where I iced my ankle all night, knowing that thanks to my injury, the next day's land navigation test was likely beyond my capability. But I didn't quit. I showed up, fought to stay in the mix, but missed my time on one of the early checkpoints, and that was that. I didn't hang my head because injuries happen. I'd given it everything I had, and when you handle business like that, your effort will not go unnoticed. Delta cadres are like robots. Throughout selection, they didn't show any personality. But as I was getting ready to leave the compound, one of the officers in charge called me into his office. Goggins, he said, extending his hand. You are a stud. We want you to heal up, come back, and try again. We believe you will be a great addition to Delta Force someday. But when? I came to from my second heart surgery in a billowing cloud of anesthesia. I looked over my right shoulder to an IV drip and followed the flow to my veins. I was wired to the medical mind. 
Beeping heart monitors recorded data to tell a story in a language beyond my comprehension. If only I were fluent, maybe I'd know if my heart was finally whole, if there ever would be a someday. I placed my hand over my heart, closed my eyes, and listened for clues. After leaving Delta, I went back to the SEAL teams and was assigned to land warfare as an instructor instead of a warrior. At first, my morale flagged. Men who lacked my skills, commitment, and athletic ability were in the field in two countries, and I was moored in no man's land, wondering how it had all gone so haywire so quickly. It felt like I'd hit a glass ceiling, but had it always been there, or did I slide it into place myself? The truth was somewhere in between. I realized from living in Brazil, Indiana, that prejudice is everywhere. There is a piece of it in every person and each and every organization. And if you are the only in any given situation, it's on you to decide how you're going to handle it, because you can't make it go away. For years, I used it to fuel me, because there's a lot of power in being the only. It forces you to juice your own resources and to believe in yourself in the face of unfair scrutiny. It increases the degree of difficulty, which makes every success that much sweeter. That's why I continually put myself in situations where I knew I would encounter it. I fed off being the only one in a room. I brought the war to people and watched my excellence explode small minds. I didn't sit back and cry about being the only. I took action, said go fuck yourself, and used all the prejudice I felt as dynamite to blow up those walls. But that kind of raw material will only get you so far in life. I was so confrontational, I created needless enemies along the way. And I believe that's what limited my access to the top SEAL teams. With my career at a crossroads, I didn't have time to dwell on those mistakes. I had to find higher ground and turn the negative I'd created into another positive. I didn't just accept land warfare duty. I was the best instructor I could possibly be. And on my own time, I created new opportunities for myself by launching my UltraQuest, which revived my stalled career. I was right back on track until I learned I'd been born with a broken heart. Yet there was a positive side to that too. Tucked into my post-op hospital bed, I looked to be fading in and out of consciousness as conversations between doctors, nurses, my wife and mother bled into one another like white noise. They had no clue that I was wide awake the whole time listening to my wounded heart beat and smiling inside, knowing I finally had definitive scientific proof that I was as uncommon as any motherfucker who has ever lived. Well, there you go, chapter nine. Yes, sir, it's a great one. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're pulling the, the, the curtain back a little bit on the, the Navy SEAL legend, and let's not, let's not um, overstate it. I mean, we all know that the people who make it through Hell Week and become SEALs, they're hard motherfuckers, and you say that very clearly. But what you're saying is that there's some people that have a more uncommon way of thinking than others, and not everybody is like this uncommon motherfucker in the SEAL teams. But there, is, uh, there are some, you know, SBG is one, and then there is a guy named Hawk who, when you started doing the ultras, you, you started crossing paths with him in some funny ways. Now, let's not get it wrong, man. Navy SEAL training, you know, I've been through most all of it. It's some hard-ass shit. And I think it just, you know, it, it, it beats you down in a way where it's almost like, you know what, man, I'm going to work out, but I'm not going to go to that level of I kill myself. Because what they do so well in SEAL training, man, is they must make you afraid to go back in the water. You know, so all these things, you know, like, I mean, you, you run your ass into a nub. And so I'm not trying to get people to get out of jail free card, but my mindset had changed. 
you know, I was becoming very granimalistic right now at this time. And so there's a, there's a great story, man, about, so at this time now, you know, my whole mind's changed, you know, my, my, my whole mindset's different. And I'm kind of pissed off at some people and, and a whole bunch of people in the SEAL teams, man. You know what? They didn't like me. I didn't like them. I had a chip in my shoulder. And that's, truth be told, that's exactly what it was for me. And they didn't respect me. I didn't respect them. So I'm training right now um, for, uh, for, for Delta Force training. And, and a lot of their training is you have a, you know, a, a rucksack on your back and you're going. So it's a Saturday morning and I'm going for a long, long ruck. And I was out there by myself thinking, man, you know, I'm going to get after it, man, by myself, all alone. That's how I, you know, I, I love being alone in my own mind and just being hard because no one was out there. No one saw me. And that's how I liked it. But I'll never forget this day. I'm out there rucking. I was doing a 20 mile ruck and I look up on this road with no cars, nobody around early in the morning. And I see another guy. I'm running. This guy's he's, he's hiking real fast. And I can tell he has some straps coming down on his shoulders. I'm like, this guy's got a pack on. So I get closer. He's a fairly big guy. And as we're getting real close, I look up, and it's a, a buddy of mine named Hawk. He's a fellow, you know, team guy, and he was at Dev Grew and stuff like this. And we share a lot of the same mentality. So, as I, you know, as I was passing him, he was going 30 miles. This cat was doing 30. I was running 20, and it literally threw like a bolt of energy through me because I was like, oh my God, there's one of them right there. He gets it. So we still talk about it today, a lot of the training we did together. Just, in, I mean, we see each other all the time. Yeah, I remember you, when we, we talked to him for two and a half hours or something, at least the first conversation. Right. And, and he, uh, I remember he recalled one time when you were, when you were commuting to Coronado by running, when <laughs> yep. you were getting ready for Hurt, I think it was, or yep. it might have been Badwater Days, I forget, but it was in those early... Um, early ultra days and you'd be turned down onto the onto the silver strand bike path and see this motherfucker like dragging tires in the sand yeah man so i <laughs> this cat man so i'd be running and i look over to my left and there was it was called like the uh, demo pit road this son bitch had a big old truck tire in his car and also carry like a, a pull-up bar like you know those old like them contraptions with the dip bar pull-up bar yeah he had that in the back of his truck this cat had strapped to him a, a tire, just pulling it through the soft sand. So he's collecting all that sand as he ran. And I was like, man, I want to work with you. And, that, and that's how I got along with, you know, like I'm with my first platoon, because the OYC and the AOYC, not everybody in that platoon really get after it, but most guys did. But the leaders were getting after it. So that's what fueled me. I wanted their respect. And in my second platoon, I no longer care if they respected me or not because I didn't respect them. And that was a bad, bad mindset. And one more story I'll give you about the whole rucking thing. So before my second heart surgery, um, I was going in and I knew at this time I was going to try to go back to uh, Delta Force training for another shot. I knew I was going to try to go back. And um, basically I'm sitting there. And I had to wait like a year or whatever for my second heart surgery. Yeah, 14 months. Yeah, 14 months. So I wasn't able to be, you know, an operator at all. I couldn't dive and jump, as you all know. But as my heart started healing up enough to where I could work out and the AFib wasn't, you know, too, too, too bad, I strapped on a ruck. 
So the day of my heart surgery, the day of it, <laughs> I strap on a 50-pound a, a ruck, and I went out for a 10-mile run before my heart surgery. And on that run, I saw Hawk again. He's like, hey, man, aren't you supposed to be in heart surgery? <laughs> I'm like, man, hey, look, dude, I know I'm going to be down for about six months, brother. I got to get every last bit of PT in. So that was just my mentality, and it rubbed guys the wrong way. You know what? And I don't blame them. If I had a guy like me that had, you know, I started discovering different levels of the mind and I was excited to share that with people, but I didn't really know how to communicate it. So if, if you didn't do it, I was like, man, you're a punk. You ain't nobody. So now I have a better way of, of uh, you know, kind of get my message across without being angry at you because you're not doing what the hell I'm doing. So, but it was a great ride. I wouldn't change anything for the world. It, uh, it, it, it taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about not putting people and different organizations on such such a high, high pedestal that it can hurt you like that. Like, I'll never forget, I met Michael Jordan when I was 12 years old. I met Michael Jordan, the great Michael Jordan, in his prime, and he was all over my wall. I met him when I was 12 years old, and I'll never forget me looking at Michael Jordan. I saw he was human. When I shook his hand, I saw he was just another human being, and I and I didn't look at Michael Jordan, you know, like like the same way ever again. It was crazy. Interesting. I mean, for, for people, civilians like me and and people I know, to hear that, that a personality conflict uh, kind of is limited your ascension in the teams and keeping like a, a, a really impressive person and soldier out of out of the out of the you know, the fight, it seems almost like you're defeating yourself just because of a personality conflict. You're, you're not putting your best assets out there. It just sounds strange. But I know it's easier to say from the outside looking in. But to me, it seems like it just shows you that systems and organizations are just made up of human beings. And human beings are super fa fallible. And that makes every organization fallible. And, and it just kind of limited you because of, because of all that. Well, see, one thing also, Adam, is this is a flashback. So as people know, I was in recruiting, and so I I had done two you know you know two platoons before, and then I went on to uh, trade at which you know I was a land warfare instructor and also a CQC instructor, and then I went into recruiting. So when you do all this and then go into recruiting, that also hurt my career too. You know a lot of guys are like oh you know I work for the admiral, I'm not in the platoon anymore. I'm out here you know going around running races and also doing um you know, speaking gigs and, and trying to recruit new SEALs, a lot of people just didn't understand that that was my job. Well, they also didn't know about the heart surgeries. Let's yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, once again, I wasn't the kind of guy to explain to people all this stuff. And, you know, I was like, you know what, fuck it. You know what? You don't like me. I like that. Right. I'm not going to sit and explain to you because, you know, because by that time in my life, I really liked who I was. I liked who I was. And that, and that was great for me. And who you were and are is an unusual, uncommon motherfucker. <laughs> and I will wear that like a badge of honor. Challenge number nine. This one's for the unusual motherfuckers in this world. A lot of people think that once they reach a certain level of status, respect, or success, that they've made it in life. I'm here to tell you that you always have to find more. Greatness is not something that if you meet it once, it stays with you forever. That shit evaporates like a flash of oil in a hot pan. 
If you truly want to become uncommon amongst uncommon, it will require sustaining greatness for a long period of time. It requires staying in constant pursuit and putting out unending effort. This may sound appealing, but will require everything you have to give and then some. Believe me, this is not for everyone, because it will demand singular focus and may upset the balance in your life. That's what it takes to become a true overachiever. And if you are already surrounded by people who are at the top of their game, what are you going to do differently to stand out? It's easy to stand out amongst everyday people and be a big fish in a small pond. It is a much more difficult task when you are a wolf surrounded by wolves. This means not only getting into Wharton Business School, but being ranked number one in your class. It means not just graduating buds, but becoming enlisted honor man in Army Ranger School, then going out and finishing Badwater. Torch the complacency you feel gathering around you your co-workers, and teammates in that rare air. Continue to put obstacles in front of yourself because that's where you'll find the friction that will help you grow even stronger. Before you know it, you will stand alone. Hashtag can't hurt me. Hashtag uncommon amongst uncommon. That is a great chapter and they can get a lot from that. And what do you mean by that challenge, though? You're kind of like leaving that one open-ended. This is kind of like almost right. like a hidden message. It's for the people who are reading or listening, who are fucking listening while they're running 80 <laughs> miles. <laughs> right. You know what? This is for you. So, like, for me, man, I, I started dipping into a world that on the other end of suffering, I found a whole nother world. And it was a beautiful world. It was a, it was a world that, uh, that the, there was no limitations. Mm. There was no finish line. There was endless energy, endless power, endless strength. And I was like, my God. I mean, and, and it made me very polarizing to a lot of people. Like, either you really love me or you really hate me. And in this world of trying to be uncommon amongst uncommon, you can really turn people off because a lot of people don't understand you, nor do they want to understand you because why? You're making them feel a certain way. You're making them feel bad about themselves. When you're constantly pushing and getting up earlier and getting up earlier and getting up earlier and fighting through pains and discomforts and you don't care about failure, you actually welcome it. That means you set the bar so high that it's like, oh, I failed. That's where I need to be. Now I got figured out. And people it's like, hey, man, fuck you, man. I don't like being around you. You make me feel like an underachiever. Even though you're not trying to do that, you're just trying to find more of yourself. So that's why here it's, it's really open to yourself to see where you want to go because it's not about being David Goggins. It's not about being me. It's not about doing all these record attempts and, and going through all this training. That's what I wanted to do. You have to be uncommon amongst uncommon in your world, whatever that is. So that's why it's open-ended here, and it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody because why? to be in this world, it takes everything. And then when you think you've given everything, you've just begun. Hmm. There you go. So uh, let's pull back a little bit. This is day four here in the Goggins capsule. <laughs> the Goggins podcast slash radio show <laughs> slash audio book <laughs> slash this is, uh, this is good stuff, man. It's the slash pod. It is, man. I, I don't <laughs> think anybody's ever done all the slashes that, that, that we're doing right now. Well, it fits, it fits what you've done. You're like the ultimate slash man. Yes, yes, I have definitely become that guy. Yeah, man. So day four, 
Uh, that last chapter uh, was recorded over two days because we were like we run up against six and seven hour uh, time limits in in studio rentals. So just so you guys, so we're because we're being so transparent. So yesterday we went up close to the limit and then felt it better to to start again. So we kind of broke that up into two days, and now we're back in uh, midway in our uh, in our day four. And I'm loving the process, man. But you are not loving Los Angeles traffic. You know what? It, it is killing <laughs> me. I, I'm i so glad that I do not live here. I lived in San Diego for like 12 years, man. This traffic is killing me. Everybody just kind of like, it's, it's, it's just nuts. It's nuts. It, it's nuts. I mean, in, in the city's defense, although it's tough to be in defense of Los Angeles traffic, a 4 p.m. meetup in, uh, in the San Fernando Valley is not always the best time to be on our roads. No, <laughs> no. I mean, I'm leaving an hour and a half early yeah. just in traffic, just cussing my ass off. I know Jennifer's like, oh, my God. You got to get that on radio. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think people probably think I cuss, you know, you know, cuss way too much. Do you get Do you get chastised for your for your uh, sailor? You know what? Uh, I, lexicon. It's, it's funny. There's there's some people who really hate it, but you know what? Once again, man, I'm very happy with who I am, and I'm not gonna try to tone myself down for people. If you don't like it, don't listen to me. And and on top of that, I had a very hard, difficult life, and my life. So check it out, Adam. Let's say I explain my life of getting beat by my father. Hey, yeah, my dad really beat me. No, man, he beat the fuck out of me. You know, because that's exactly what happened. That's exactly how I felt at that time. So when I talk about it, it's not like I walk around all day long just dropping F-bombs and this and that. But when you bring me back to my life, I'm going to give you the raw, real life that I lived. Well, the raw real is uh, the power of what you have to say, I think. And and um, and it comes back to this theme I was talking about with somebody else today. It's just that, and we've talked about it on this, on this recording, is that people don't want to hear things that are hard to hear. No. And, and that, and if you, and that limits you. It limits <laughs> you if you aren't willing to hear the hard to hear. It's unbelievable, man. Like people, I put a post up and I post like once, you know, every, every Monday I'll post something on my social media site. And I try to go through every comment, man, because I want people to know if if you're going to take the time to actually write a comment, I'm going to read it. I respond to a lot of them right now. I can't because of the book and I'm so busy. But I read some comments and people are so upset that they have to write in about me saying, you know, an F or an S or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, are you really that bothered? What did you get out of the daggone message? Right. Did you like the message? No, they didn't hear it, man. No, they didn't hear it because they're so worried about me right. saying fuck or shit. They're like, right. oh, my God. Nice is more important than good. It really is. Right. And I'm sorry, man. That's just not the world we live in no, today. No, it shouldn't be. It's just be. not. Yeah. No. Chapter 10, The Empowerment of Failure. On September 27th, 2012, I stood in a makeshift gym on the second floor of 30 Rockefeller Center, prepared to break the world record for pull-ups in a 24-hour period. That was the plan, anyway. Savannah Guthrie was there, along with an official from the Guinness Book of World Records, and Matt Lauer. Yeah, that fucking guy. Again, I was gunning to raise money, a lot of money this time, for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. But I also wanted that record. To get it, I had to perform under the Today Show spotlight. 
The number in my head was 4,020 pull-ups. Sounds superhuman, right? Did to me too, until I dissected it and realized if I could knock out six pull-ups on the minute, every minute, for 24 hours, I'd shatter it. That's roughly 10 seconds of effort and 50 seconds of rest each minute. It wouldn't be easy, but I considered it doable given the work I'd put in. Over the past five to six months, I'd rocked over 40,000 pull-ups and was stoked to be on the precipice of another huge challenge. After all the ups and downs since my second heart surgery, I needed this. The good news was the surgery worked. For the first time in my life, I had a fully functioning heart muscle, and I wasn't in a rush to run or ride. I was patient with my recovery. The Navy wouldn't clear me to operate anyway, and in order to stay in the SEALs, I had to accept a non-deployable, non-combat job. Admiral Winters kept me in recruiting for two more years, and I remained on the road, shared my story with willing ears, and worked to win hearts and minds. But all I really wanted to do was what I was trained to do, and that's fight. I tried to salve the wound with trips to the gun range, but shooting targets only made me feel worse. In 2011, after recruiting for four plus years and spending two and a half years on the disabled list due to my heart issues, I was finally medically cleared to operate again. Admiral Winters offered to send me anywhere I wanted to go. He knew my sacrifices and my dreams, and I told him I had unfinished business with Delta. He signed my papers, and after a five-year wait, my someday had arrived. Once again, I dropped into Appalachia for Delta selection. In 2006, after I smoked the 18-mile road ruck on our first real day of work, I heard some well-intentioned blowback from some of the other guys who were tapped into the rumor mill. In Delta Selection, everything is a secret. Yes, there are clear tasks and training, but nobody tells you how long the tasks are or will be. Even the 18-mile ruck was a best estimate based on my own navigation, and only the cadres know how they evaluate their candidates. According to the rumor mill, they use that first ruck as a baseline to calculate how long each navigation task should take, meaning if you go hard, you'll eat away at your own margin for error. This time, I had that intel going in, and I could have played it safe and taken my time, but I wasn't about to go out among those great men and give a half-assed effort. I went out even harder so I could make sure they saw my very best, and I broke my own course record, according to that reliable rumor mill, by nine minutes. Rather than hear it from me, I reached out to one of the guys who was in Delta Selection with me, and Blow is his first-hand account of how that ruck went down. Before I can talk about the road march, I have to give a little bit of context in the days leading up to it. Showing up to Selection, you have no idea what to expect. Everyone hears stories, but you do not have a complete grasp of what you are about to go through. I remember arriving at an airport waiting for a bus, and everyone was hanging out bullshitting. For many people, it is a reunion of friends that you haven't seen in years. This is also where you start sizing everyone up. I remember a majority of the people talking or relaxing. There was one person who was sitting on his bag, looking intense. That person, I would later find out, was David Goggins. You could tell right from the start he would be one of the guys at the end. Being a runner, I recognized him, but didn't really put it all together until after the first few days. There are several events that you know you have to do just to start the course. One of those is the road march. Without getting into specific distances, I knew it was going to be fairly far, but was comfortable with running a majority of it. 
Coming into selection, I had been in special forces for a majority of my career, and it was rare when someone finished before me in a road march. I was comfortable with a ruck on my back. When we started, it was a little cold and very dark, and as we took off, I was where I was most comfortable, out front. Within the first quarter mile, a guy blew by me. I thought to myself, no way he could keep that pace. But I could see the light on his headlamp continue to pull away. I figured I would see him in a few miles after the course crushed him. This particular road march course has a reputation of being brutal. There was one hill that as I was going up, I could almost reach out in front of me and touch the ground. It was that steep. At this point, there was only one guy in front of me, and I saw footprints that were twice as long as my stride length. I was in awe. My exact thought was, this is the craziest shit I have seen. That dude ran up this hill. Throughout the next couple of hours, I was expecting to come around a corner and find him laid up on the side of the road, but that never happened. Once finished, I was laying out my gear, and I saw David hanging out. He had been done for quite a while. Though selection is an individual event, he was the first to give a high five and say, nice work. T, in an email dated June 25th, 2018. That performance left an impression beyond the guys in my selection class. I heard recently from Hawk, another SEAL, that some Army guys he worked with on deployment were still talking about that ruck, almost like it was an urban legend. From there, I continued to smash through Delta Selection at or near the top of the class. My land navigation skills were better than they'd ever been, but that doesn't mean it was easy. Roads were off limits. There was no flat ground, and for days we bushwhacked up and down steep slopes in below freezing temperatures, taking waypoints, reading maps, and the countless peaks, ridges, and draws that all looked the same. We moved through thick brush and deep snowbanks, splashed through icy creeks, and slalomed the winter skeletons of towering trees. It was painful, challenging, and fucking beautiful, and I was smoking it, mashing every test they could conjure. On the second to last day of Delta Selection, I hit my first four points as fast as usual. Most days there were five waypoints to hit in total. So when I got my fifth, I was beyond confident. In my mind, I was the black Daniel Boone. I plotted my point and moseyed down another steep grade. One way to navigate foreign terrain is to track power lines, and I could see that one of those lines in the distance led directly to my fifth and final point. I hustled down country, tracked the line, turned my conscious mind off, and started dreaming ahead. I knew I was going to rock the final exam, that 40-mile land navigation, I didn't even get to attempt last time because I busted my ankle two days before. I considered my graduation a foregone conclusion, and after that, I'd be running and gunning in an elite unit again. As I visualized it, it became all the more real, and my imagination took me far away from the Appalachian Mountains. The thing about following the power supply is, you'd better make damn sure you're on the right line. According to my training, I was supposed to be constantly checking my map, so if I made a misstep, I could readjust and head in the right direction without losing too much time. But I was so overconfident, I forgot to do that, and I didn't chart backstops either. By the time I woke from Fantasyland, I was way off course and almost out of bounds. I went into panic mode, found my location on the map, humped it to the right power line, sprinted to the top of the mountain, and kept running all the way to my fifth point. I still had 90 minutes until drop dead time, but when I got close to the next Humvee, I saw another guy heading back toward me. Where are you headed, I asked as I jogged over. I'm off to my sixth point, he said, 
Shit, there's not five points today? Nah, there's six today, brother. I checked my watch. I had a little over 40 minutes before they called time. I reached the Humvee, took down the coordinates for checkpoint six, and studied the map. Thanks to my fuck-up, I had two clear options. I could play by the rules and miss drop dead time, or I could break the rules, use the roads at my disposal, and give myself a chance. The one thing on my side was that in special operations, they prize a thinking shooter, a soldier willing to do what it takes to meet an objective. All I could do was hope they'd have mercy on me. I plotted the best possible route and took the fuck off. I skirted the woods, used the roads, and whenever I heard a truck rumbling in the near distance, I took cover. A half hour later, at the crest of yet another mountain, I could see the sixth point, our finish line. According to my watch, I had five minutes left. I flew downhill, sprinting all out, and made drop dead by one minute. As I caught my breath, our crew was divided and loaded into the covered beds of two separate Humvees. At first glance, my group of guys looked pretty squared away. But given when and where I received my sixth point, every cadre in the place had to know I'd skirted protocol. I didn't know what to think. Was I still in or asked out? At Delta Selection, one way to be sure you're out is if you feel speed bumps after a day's work. Speed bumps mean you're back at the base and you're heading home early. That day, when we felt the first one jar us out of our hopes and dreams, some guys started cursing. Others had tears in their eyes. I just shook my head. Goggins, what the fuck are you doing here? One guy asked. He was shocked to see me sitting alongside him. But I was resigned to my reality, because I'd been daydreaming about graduating Delta training and being part of the force when I hadn't even finished selection. I didn't do what they told me to do, I said. I fucking deserve to go home. Bullshit. You're one of the best guys out here. They're making a huge mistake. I appreciated his outrage. I expected to make it too, but I couldn't be upset by their decision. Delta Brass weren't looking for men who could pass a class with a C, B+, or even an A- effort. They only accepted A-plus students. And if you fucked up and delivered a performance that was below your capability, they sent you packing. Shit, if you daydream for a split second on the battlefield, that could mean your life and the life of one of your brothers. I understood that. No, it was my mistake, I said. I got this far by staying focused and delivering my best. And I'm going home because I lost focus. Let's talk about that, man. Let's talk about Delta. Um, uh, that's that second one. That that had to hurt. Oh man! Like even to this day, it feels the exact same. And this happened what seven, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels the same, man. I made the biggest mistake of my military career, and there's not one day that goes by that I don't think about it because I was out of the fight for so long with the heart surgeries and being a recruiter that, you know, I was ready to start a whole new career in a whole new, you know, in a whole new military with a whole new bunch of guys. And, and, you know, I, I, I loved everything about Delta, the selection process. And I did start daydreaming. I mean, I was there. I was in great shape. I was moving fast and my mind went to like daydreaming about, man, I'm about to get through this motherfucker. And I, and I know Delta Selection, there may be 11 guys that get through Delta Selection. You just start like they're there and next thing you know, they're gone. Mm. I mean, it's like no other selection process 
in the military. Even even less people make it through than uh, SEAL? Oh, 100%, man. Mm. Because the thing about Delta Selection, and I'm no, I have no idea how they do it, their, their process. I'm sure that... You know, a lot of it could be um, based on a good old boy system, you know, with the army. I have no idea. But that's what made it so amazing to me was literally there's only a couple handful of guys that get through it. But you never really end up knowing who makes it through. Mm. Like, you know, you leave and, you know, I had all so, these guys. So all the you don't really know who made it even after. No. every OK, because what happens is all these guys become friends, you know, you mean all these guys from, you know, I was the only Navy guy there. They're all Army guys. And so that was, you know, that, that made me stand out. And so you start talking to these guys from SF. And I was, a you know, I went to Ranger School also with a couple of guys that were there. So a couple of guys knew from Ranger School. And next thing I knew, you go from talking to these guys, you know, and then you're done. Like, you know, I had these guys' phone numbers before Delta Selection. And now they're ghost. Hmm. Like, it's the one organization, man. That you know they they become ghosts, man. They are gone, and I was like, "Fuck, man!" So they go off the radar completely. Yeah, they go off the grid pretty good, man. Like you know, I you know I um, emailed a few of them, and they're gone. Hmm. Yeah, they're they're just gone. I mean, they're just yeah, they're they're gone. Well, there you go. So then it was time back to back to the seals, yeah. Yeah, so it's back to the seals now. And by this time, man, my military career was coming to an end because that heart surgery took a lot out of me. And it, I lost a lot of years with the heart surgery. And now I was like three years from retirement. Hmm. I was three years from retirement. And so from there, man, I was like, my God, that was my one shot that I saw of me really getting to the elite of the elite. Yeah. And I, and I you fucked bricked, it up. And you bricked it by just doing something that was like a casual mistake, not even like... Yeah, yep. not, yeah. I mean, I bricked the hell out of it. It wasn't like I was having trouble. I just totally brain farted and got all happy and got complacent. And one thing complacency does, it kills you, man. Mm. It kills you. It was time to go back to being a SEAL. For the next two years, I based in Honolulu as part of a clandestine transport unit called SDV for SEAL delivery vehicles. Operation Red Wings is the best-known SDV mission, and you only heard about it because it was such big news. Most SDV work happens in the shadows and well out of sight. I fit in well over there, and it was great to be back operating again. I lived on Ford Island with a view of Pearl Harbor right out my living room window. Kate and I had split up, so now I was really living that Spartan life and still waking up at 5 a.m. to run into work. I had two routes, an 8-miler and a 10-miler, but no matter which I took, my body didn't react too well. After only a few miles, I'd feel intense neck pain and dizzy spells. There were several times during my runs that I would have to sit down due to vertigo. For years, I'd harbored a suspicion that we all had a limit on the miles we could run before a full-body breakdown, and I wondered if I was closing in on mine. My body had never felt so tight. I had a knot on the base of my skull that I first noticed after graduating BUDS. A decade later, it had doubled in size. I had knots above my hip flexors, too. I went to the doctor to get everything checked out, but they weren't even tumors, much less malignant. When the doctors cleared me of mortal danger, I realized I'd have to live with them and try to forget about long-distance running for a while. When an activity or exercise that you've always relied on gets taken away from you, like running was for me, it's easy to get stuck in a mental rut and stop doing any exercise at all. 
but I didn't have a quitter's mentality. I gravitated toward the pull-up bar and replicated the workouts I used to do with sledge. It was an exercise that allowed me to push myself and didn't make me dizzy because I could take a break between sets. After a while, I googled around to see if there was a pull-up record within reach. That's when I read about Stephen Hyland's many pull-up records, including the 24-hour record of 4,020. At the time, I was known as an ultra-runner, and I didn't want to be known for just one thing. Who does? Nobody thought of me as an all-around athlete, and this record could change that dynamic. How many people are capable of running 100, 150, or even 200 miles, and also knocking out over 4,000 pull-ups in a day? I called the Special Operations Warrior Foundation and asked if I could help raise a bit more money. They were thrilled, and next thing I knew, a contact of mine used her networking skills to book me on the damn Today Show. To prepare for the attempt, I did 400 pull-ups a day during the week, which took me about 70 minutes. On Saturday, I did 1,500 pull-ups in sets of 5 to 10 reps over 3 hours. And on Sunday, I dialed it back to 750. All that work strengthened my lats, triceps, biceps, and back, prepared my shoulder and elbow joints to take extreme punishment, helped me develop a powerful gorilla-type grip, and built up my lactic acid tolerance so my muscles could still function long after they were overworked. As game day approached, I shortened recovery and started doing five pull-ups every 30 seconds for two hours. Afterward, my arms fell to my side, limp as overstretched rubber bands. On the eve of my record attempt, my mom and uncle flew into New York City to help crew me, and we were all systems go until the SEALs nearly killed my Today Show appearance at the last minute. No Easy Day, a first-hand account of the Osama bin Laden raid, had just come out. It was written by one of the operators in the DevGru unit that got it done, and Naval Special Warfare brass were not happy. Special operators are not supposed to share the details of the work we do in the field with the general public and lots of people in the teams resented that book. I was given a direct order to pull out of the appearance, which didn't make any sense. I wasn't going on camera to talk about operations, and I wasn't on a mission to self-promote. I wanted to raise $1 million for Families of the Fallen, and the Today Show was the biggest morning show on television. I'd served in the military for nearly 20 years by that point, without a single infraction on my record. And for the previous four years, the Navy had used me as their poster boy. They put me on billboards. I was interviewed on CNN, and I jumped out of an airplane on NBC. They placed me in dozens of magazine and newspaper stories, which helped their recruitment mission. Now they were trying to stifle me for no good reason. Hell, if anybody knew the regulations of what I could and could not say, it was me. In the nick of time, the Navy's legal department cleared me to proceed. My interview is brief. I told a Cliff's Notes version of my life story and mentioned I'd be on a liquid diet, drinking a carbohydrate-loaded sports drink as my only nutrition until the record was broken. What should we cook for you tomorrow once it's all over? Savannah Guthrie replied. I laughed and played along, agreeable as hell. But don't get it twisted. I was way out of my comfort zone. I was about to go to war with myself, but I didn't look like it or act like it. As the clock wound down, I took my shirt off and was wearing only a pair of lightweight black running shorts and running shoes. Wow, it's like looking at myself in a mirror, Lauer joked, gesturing toward me. This segment just got even more interesting, said Savannah. All right, David, best of luck to you. We will be watching.
Someone hit play on Going the Distance, the Rocky theme song, and I stepped to the pull-up bar. It was painted matte black, wrapped with white tape, and stenciled with the phrase, show no weakness in white lettering. I got the last word in as I strapped on my gray gloves. Please donate to specialops.org, I said. We're trying to raise a million dollars. All right, are you ready? Lauer asked. Three, two, one, David, go! With that, the clock started, and I rocked a set of eight pull-ups. The rules laid down by the Guinness Book of World Records were clear. I had to start each pull-up from a dead hang with arms fully extended, and my chin had to exceed the bar. So it begins, Savannah said. I smiled for the camera and looked relaxed, but even those first pull-ups didn't feel right. Part of it was situational. I was a lone fish in a glass box aquarium that attracted sunshine and reflected a bank of hot show lights. The other half was technical. From the very first pull-up, I noticed that the bar had a lot more give than I was used to. I didn't have my usual power and anticipated a long fucking day. At first, I blocked that shit out. Had to. A looser bar just meant a stronger effort and gave me another opportunity to be uncommon. Throughout the day, people passed by on the street below, waved and cheered. I waved back, kept to my plan, and rocked six pull-ups on the minute every damn minute. But it wasn't easy because of that rickety bar. My force was getting dissipated, and after hundreds of pull-ups, dissipation took its toll. Each subsequent pull-up required a monumental effort, a stronger grip, and at the 1500 mark, my forearms hurt like hell. My massage therapist rubbed them down between sets, but they bulged with lactic acid, which seeped into every muscle in my upper body. After more than six long hours, and with 2,000 pull-ups in the bank, I took my first 10-minute break. I was well ahead of my 24-hour pace, and the sun angled lower on the horizon, which reduced the mercury in the room to manageable. It was late enough that the whole studio was shut down. It was just me, a few friends, a massage therapist, and my mother. Today's show cameras were set up and rolling to clock me and make sure I kept to regulations. I had more than 2,000 pull-ups still to go, and for the first time that day, doubt carved out a home in my brain. I didn't vocalize my negativity, and I tried to reset my mind for the second half push. But the truth was, my whole plan had gone to hell. My carbohydrate drink wasn't giving me the power I needed, and I didn't have a plan B. So I ordered and downed a cheeseburger. It felt good to have some real food. Meanwhile, my team tried to stabilize the bar by tying it to the pipes in the rafters. But instead of recharging my system like I'd hoped, the long break had an adverse effect. My body was shutting down, while my mind swirled with panic because I'd made a pledge and staked my name on a quest to raise money and break a record, and I already knew that there was no way on this earth I was going to be able to get it done. It took me five hours to do another 500 pull-ups. That's an average of under two pull-ups per minute. I was verging on total muscle failure after doing only 1,000 more pull-ups than I would rock in three hours at the gym on a typical Saturday with no ill effects. How was that possible? I tried to bull my way through, but tension and lactic acid had overwhelmed my system, and my upper body was a lump of dough. I had never hit muscle failure before in my life. I'd run on broken legs and buds, run nearly 100 miles on broken feet, and accomplished dozens of physical feats with a hole in my heart. But late at night, on the second floor of the NBC Tower, I pulled the plug. After my 2,500th pull-up, I could barely lift my hands high enough to grip the bar, let alone clear it with my chin. And just like that, it was over.
There would be no celebratory breakfast with Savannah and Matt. There would be no celebration at all. I failed, and I'd failed in front of millions of people. So, did I hang my head in shame and misery? Fuck no. To me, a failure is just a stepping stone to future success. The next morning, my phone was blowing up, so I left it in my hotel room and went for a run in Central Park. I needed zero distractions and time enough to go back through what I'd done well and where I'd fallen short. In the military, after every real-world mission or field exercise, we fill out after-action reports, AARs, which serve as live autopsies. We do them no matter the outcome, and if you're analyzing a failure like I was, the AAR is absolutely crucial, because when you're headed into uncharted territory, there are no books to study, no YouTube instructional videos to watch. All I had to read were my mistakes, and I considered all variables. First of all, I should never have gone on that show. My motivation was solid. It was a good idea to try to increase awareness and raise money for the foundation. And while I required exposure to raise the amount I'd hoped, by thinking of money first, always a bad idea, I wasn't focused on the task at hand. To break this record, I needed an optimal environment. And that realization blasted me like a surprise attack. I didn't respect the record enough going in. I thought I could have broken it on a rusty bar bolted to the back of a pickup truck with loose shocks. So even though I tested the bar twice before game day, it never bothered me enough to make a change. And my lack of focus and attention to detail cost me a shot at immortality. There were also way too many bubbly looky-loos buzzing in and out of the room, asking for pictures between sets. This was the beginning of the selfie era, and that sickness most definitely invaded my motherfucking safe space. Obviously, my break was too long. I figured massage would counteract the swelling and lactic acid buildup, but I was wrong about that too, and I should have taken more salt tablets to prevent cramping. Before my attempt, haters found me online and predicted my failure, but I ignored them and didn't fully absorb the hard truths couched in their negativity. I thought, as long as I trained hard, the record would be mine, and as a result, I wasn't as well prepared as I should have been. You can't prepare for unknown factors, but if you have a better pregame focus, you will likely only have to deal with one or two rather than ten. In New York, too many bubbled up, and unknown factors usually blaze a wake of doubt. Afterward, I was eye-to-eye -eye with my haters and acknowledged that my margin for error was small. I weighed 210 pounds, much heavier than anyone else who had ever tried to break that record, and my probability of failure was high. I didn't touch a pull-up bar for two weeks, but once back in Honolulu, I hammered sets at my home gym and noticed the difference in the bar right away. Still, I had to resist the temptation to blame everything on that loose bar because odds were that a firmer one wouldn't translate into an extra 1,521 pull-ups. I researched gymnast chalk, gloves, and taping systems. I sampled and experimented. This time I wanted a fan set below the bar to cool me down between sets, and I switched up my nutrition. Instead of running off pure carbs, I added in some protein and bananas to prevent cramping. When it came time to choose a location to attempt the record, I knew I needed to get back to who I am at my core. That meant losing the glitz and setting up shop in a dungeon. And on a trip to Nashville, I found just a place. A CrossFit gym a mile from my mother's house, owned by a former Marine named Nandor Tamaska. After emailing a couple of times, I ran over to CrossFit Brentwood Hills to meet him. It was set in a strip mall, 
a few doors down from a Target, and there was nothing fancy about the place. It had black mat floors, buckets of chalk, racks of iron, and lots of hard motherfuckers doing work. When I walked in, the first thing I did was grab the pull-up bar and shake it. It was bolted into the ground just like I'd hoped. Even a little sway in the bar would require me to adjust my grip mid-set. And when your goal is 4,021 pull-ups, all minuscule movements accumulate into a reservoir of wasted energy, which takes a toll. This is exactly what I need, I said, gripping the bar. Yeah, Nandor said. They have to be sturdy to double as our squat racks. In addition to its strength and stability, it was the right height. I didn't want a short bar, because bending your legs can cause cramping in the hamstrings. I needed it high enough that I could grab it when standing on my toes. I could tell right away that Nandor was a perfect co-conspirator for this mission. He had been an enlisted man, got into CrossFit, and moved to Nashville from Atlanta with his wife and family to open his first gym. Not many people are willing to open their doors and let a stranger take over their gym, but Nandor was down with the Warrior Foundation cause. My second attempt was scheduled for November, and for five straight weeks I did 500 to 1300 pull-ups a day at my home gym in Hawaii. During my last island session, I did 2,000 pull-ups in five hours, then caught a flight to Nashville, arriving six days before my attempt. Nandor rallied members of his gym to act as witnesses and my support crew. He took care of the playlist, sourced the chalk, and set up a break room in the back in case I needed it. He also put out a press release. I trained at his gym in the run-up to game day, and a local news channel came by to file a report. The local newspaper did a story, too. It was small-scale, but Nashville was growing curious, especially the CrossFit junkies. Several showed up to absorb the scene. I spoke with Nando recently, and I liked how he put it. People have been running for decades, and running long distances, but 4,000 pull-ups? The human body isn't designed to do that, so to get a chance to witness something like that was pretty neat. I rested the full day before the attempt, and when I showed up to the gym, I felt strong and prepared for the minefield ahead. Nandor and my mom collaborated to have everything dialed in. There was a sleek digital timer on the wall, which also tracked my count. Plus, they had two battery-powered wall clocks running as backups. There was a Guinness Book of World Records banner hanging over the bar, and a video crew because every rep had to be recorded for potential review. My tape was right, my gloves perfect, the bar was bolted solid, and when I started out, my performance was explosive. The numbers remained the same. I was gunning for six pull-ups every minute, on the minute, and during the first 10 sets, I rose up chest high. Then I remembered my game plan to minimize needless movement and wasted energy. On my initial attempt, I felt pressure to get my chin well over the bar, but while all that extra space made for a good show, it did not and would not help me get the damn record. This time, I told myself to barely clear the bar with my chin, and not to use my arms and hands for anything other than pull-ups. Instead of reaching down for my water bottle like I had in New York, I set it on a stack of wooden boxes, the kind used for box jumps, so all I had to do was turn and suck my nutrition through a straw. The first sip triggered me to dial back my pull-up motion, and from then on, I remained disciplined as I piled up numbers. I was on my game, and confident as hell. I wasn't thinking of just 4,020 pull-ups. I wanted to go the full 24 hours. If I did that, 5,000 was possible, or even 6,000. I remained hyper-vigilant, scanning for any physical issues that could crop up and derail the attempt. All was smooth, until after almost four hours, 
and 1,300 pull-ups. My hands started to blister. In between sets, my mom hit me with second skin so I could stay on top of the cuts. This was a new problem for me, and I remembered all the doubting comments I'd read on social media prior to my attempt. My arms were too long, they said. I weighed too much. My form wasn't ideal. I put too much pressure on my hands. I disregarded that last comment because during my first attempt, I didn't have palm issues. But in the midst of my second, I realized it was because the first bar had so much give. This time, I had more stability and power, but over time, that hard-ass bar did damage. Still, I labored on, and after 1,700 pull-ups, my forearms started aching. And when I bent my arms, my biceps pinched too. I remembered those sensations from my first go-round. It was the beginning of cramps, so between sets I downed salt tablets and ate two bananas, and that took care of my muscular discomfort. My palms just kept getting worse. 150 pull-ups later, I could feel them splitting down the middle beneath my gloves. I knew I should stop and try to fix the problem, but I also knew that might trigger my body to stiffen up and shut down. I was fighting two fires at once and didn't know where to strike first. I opted to stay on the minute-by-minute -minute pace and in between experimented with different solutions. I wore two pairs of gloves, then three. I resorted to my old friend, duct tape. Didn't help. I couldn't wrap the bar in pads because that was against Guinness rules. All I could do was try anything and everything to stay in the fight. Ten hours into the attempt, I hit a wall. I was down to three pull-ups a minute on the minute. The pain was excruciating, and I needed some relief. I took my right glove off. Layers of skin came off with it. My palm looked like raw hamburger. My mom called a doctor friend, Regina, who lived nearby, and the two of us went into the back room to wait for her and try to salvage my record attempt. When Regina showed up, she evaluated the situation, pulled out a syringe, loaded it with local anesthetic, and dipped the needle toward the open wound on my right hand. She looked over. My heart pounded. Sweat saturated every inch of my skin. I could feel my muscles cooling down and stiffening up. But I nodded, turned away, and she sunk that needle in deep. It hurt so fucking bad, but I held my primal scream inside. Show no weakness remained my motto, but that didn't mean I felt strong. My mom pulled off my left glove, anticipating the second shot. But Regina was busy examining the swelling in my biceps and the bulging spasms in my forearms. You look like you're in rhabdomyolysis, David, she said. You shouldn't continue. It's dangerous. I had no idea what the fuck she was talking about, so she broke it down. There's a phenomenon that happens when one muscle group has worked way too hard for way too long. The muscles become starved of glucose and break down, leaking myoglobin, a fibrous protein that stores oxygen in the muscle, into the bloodstream. When that happens, it's up to the kidneys to filter all those proteins out, and if they become overwhelmed, they shut down. People can die from rhabdo, she said. My hands throbbed with agony. My muscles were locking up, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Any rational person would have thrown in the towel, but I could hear going to distance booming from the speakers. I knew that this was my 14th round, cut-me-mick moment. Fuck rationality. I held up my left palm and had Regina sink her needle in. Waves of pain washed through me as a bumper crop of doubt flowered in my mind. She wrapped both palms in layers of gauze and medical tape and fitted me with a fresh pair of gloves. Then I stalked back out onto the gym floor and got back to work. I was at 2,900, 
and as long as I remained in the fight, I still believed anything was possible. I did sets of twos and threes on the minute for two hours, but it felt like I was gripping a red-hot melting rod, which meant I was down to using my fingertips to grip the bar. First I used four fingers, then three. I was able to gut out 100 more pull-ups, then 100 more. Hours ticked by. I crept closer, but with my body in rhabdo, breakdown was imminent. I did several sets of pull-ups with my wrists dangling over the bar. It sounds impossible, but I managed until the numbing agent stopped working. Then even bending my fingers felt like I was stabbing myself in the hand with a sharp knife. After eclipsing 3,200 pull-ups, I worked out the math and realized if I could do 800 sets of one, it would take 13 hours and change to break the record, and I would just beat the clock. I lasted 45 minutes. The pain was too much, and the vibe in the room went from optimistic to somber. I was still trying to show as little weakness as I could, but the volunteers could see me messing with my gloves and grip and knew something was drastically wrong. When I went into the back to regroup a second time, I heard a collective sigh that sounded like doom. Regina and my mother unwrapped the tape on my hands, and I could feel my flesh peeling like a banana. Both palms were filleted open down to the dermis, which is where our nerves lie. Achilles had his heel, and when it came to pull-ups, my gift and my undoing were my hands. The doubters were right. I wasn't one of those lightweight, graceful pull-up guys. I was powerful, and the power came from my grip, but now my hand better resembled a physiology mannequin than something human. Emotionally, I was wasted, not just because of my sheer physical exhaustion or because I couldn't get the record for myself, but because so many people had come out to help. I'd taken over Nandor's gym and felt like it disappointed everyone. Without a word, my mother and I slipped out the back door like we were escaping a crime scene. And as she drove to the hospital, I couldn't stop thinking, I'm better than this. While Nandor and his team broke down the clocks, untied the banners, swept up chalk and peeled bloody tape off their pull-up bar, my mom and I slumped into chairs in the ER waiting room. I was holding what was left of my glove. It looked like it was lifted from the O.J. Simpson crime scene, like it had been marinated in blood. She eyeballed me and shook her head. Well, she said, I know one thing. After a long pause, I turned to face her. What's that? You're going to do this again. She read my damn mind. I was already doing my live autopsy and would run through a complete AAR on paper as soon as my bloody hands would allow. I knew there was treasure in this wreckage and leverage to be gained somewhere. I just had to piece it together like a puzzle. And the fact that she realized that without my saying so fired me up. A lot of us surround ourselves with people who speak to our desire for comfort who would rather treat the pain of our wounds and prevent further injury than help us callous over them and try again. We need to surround ourselves with people who will tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear, but at the same time, not make us feel we're up against the impossible. My mother was my biggest fan. Whenever I failed in life, she was always asking me when and where I would go after it again. She never said, well, maybe it isn't meant to be. Most wars are won or lost in our own heads. And when we're in a foxhole, we usually aren't alone. And we need to be confident in the quality of the heart, mind, and dialogue of the person hunkered down with us. Because at some point, we will need some empowering words to keep us focused and deadly. In that hospital, in my own personal foxhole, I was swimming in doubt. I fell 800 pull-ups short, and I knew what 800 pull-ups felt like. That's a long fucking day. 
but there was nobody else I'd rather have been in that foxhole with. Don't worry, she said. I'll start calling those witnesses up as soon as we get home. Roger that, I said. Tell them I'll be back on that bar in two months. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a quick turnaround. Here we go again, <laughs> that's man. a quick turnaround, bro. It was two months from the first time. So my first record was, or my first record attempt was September. Then it was uh, November. And then the next one is in January, man. That's a quick turnaround. So walk us through that. So how, I mean, you know, I guess there's a lot of places to start. I know that... Uh, one place to start is after that failure, you had some pretty, you made some people pretty happy. Oh, yeah, man. You know what's funny about life is there's people out there who don't really want to see you succeed. And it's a lot of those people out there who aren't pushing themselves very hard. And like, once again, like I was talking about in the last chapter, those of us who are trying to overachieve and find their very best, you make people feel pretty small about themselves. So your failure makes them feel that much better about themselves. And it's a, it's, it's a horrible thing, but it's a very true thing. And I see you up here talking about my hand. Um, those of you who, you know, you guys aren't buying the actual book, you guys are listening to it, Google David Goggins' pull-up hand. Mm. And you'll see that disgusting, nasty uh, third-degree burn I had on that hand. It, was, it is filleted open real nice. It's crazy. that. And, and so how long did it take for that wound to heal? You know what's funny? I healed from that in about two weeks. I mean, that's quick. So, yeah, because so I, I had damaged my body so much through everything I had done that my body realized this guy's going to come back, whether it was running and my, you know, my, my legs were broken or whatever happened, my body would heal very fast because it knew he's not going to give us a lot of time to rest. Hmm. So literally, it would heal really fast. So I was back in the pull-up bar in a, in a couple of weeks, and did it become a callus type type streak, or what? What did it become like? Yeah, what? it was. It, it got like a real big, thick callus. Okay. So it actually came back even stronger. So it actually came back real strong. And there's another thing that happened during that second pull-up record. A whole mess of doubters came out of the woodwork, and it was. You know what's funny about that? I was trying to break a record of four thousand twenty. Not many people were going for this record, okay? And I had all these people in my ear who probably couldn't even do 10 pull-ups. That's the funny thing about it. There's a ton of armchair quarterbacks out there who are judging you on what you're doing. And that's just, you know, you can't let that stuff get in your head. People, don't listen to anybody who is not trying what you're trying to do or who's not putting forth the effort you're putting forth. Man, you got you to you really put that stuff out of your head. But then, you know, at the same time, you started to listening to them strategically in certain places because sometimes you could find some, some, uh, I guess, a tactical advantage in, in, how they're, in how they're coming at you. Exactly. So through all the hate, there were a lot of gifts. There were a lot of gifts throughout the hate. So I actually read it. And, you know, people were talking about hands, talking about this, talking about that. And I took it all into account. Hmm. And I ended up going through with, you know, like, you know, with the fine tooth comb and realize, you know what? Yeah, they're right here. They're right here. So it takes, once again, you know, we talked about it early in the book, thick skin. Some of the, you know, some of the harsh words I heard, they were the truth. Right. But we hate hearing the truth. I started loving the truth. Yeah, they were mean, some horrible comments. But in the, the day, there was a lot of truth in those horrible comments. 
And I was just getting them and writing them down and putting them on the, um, the uh, you know, accountability mirror. And you were able to focus harder, right? Much harder. Yeah. So I call it putting on the old Bose headphones. Even though I don't have Bose headphones, <laughs> or, or at least at that time I didn't have any. Um, but I would, I would literally like, you know, just like kind of visually put them on. Once I got all the information, I went and did my AARs. I uh, figured it all out. It was time now to stop listening to the noise. Mm. And I literally, in my mind, shut it out, put the Bulls headphones on, and went to work. And just like uh, negativity kind of couching some gifts or, or cloaking some gifts that you can use, failure you've come to look at as a total gift as well, right? Oh, failure is one of the biggest gifts of all. You know, because in failure, if you can get failure and dissect it, and in failure, you can find out, you know, exactly how to succeed in failure. So to me, it's one of the biggest gifts of life. In life, there is no gift as overlooked or inevitable as failure. I've had quite a few and have learned to relish them. Because if you do the forensics, you'll find clues about where to make adjustments and how to eventually accomplish your task. I'm not talking about a mental list either. After the second attempt, I wrote everything out longhand but didn't start with the obvious issue, my grip. Initially, I brainstormed everything that went well, because in every failure, a lot of good things will have happened, and we must acknowledge them. The best takeaway from the Nashville attempt was Nandor's place. His dungeon of a gym was the perfect environment for me. Yeah, I'm on social media and in the spotlight from time to time, but I am not a Hollywood person. I get my strength from a very dark place, and Nandor's gym wasn't a phony-ass happy factory. It was dark, sweaty, painful, and real. I called him the very next day and asked if I could come back to train and make another run at the record. I'd taken a lot of his time and energy and left behind a mess, so I had no idea how he'd respond. Yeah, motherfucker, he said. Let's go. It meant a lot to have his support again. Another positive was how I handled my second meltdown. I was off the mat and on the comeback trail before I even saw the ER doc. That's where you want to be. You can't let a simple failure derail your mission or let it worm so far up your ass it takes over your brain and sabotages your relationships with people who are close to you. Everyone fails sometimes, and life isn't supposed to be fair, much less bend to your every whim. Luck is a capricious bitch. It won't always go your way, so you can't get trapped in this idea that just because you've imagined a possibility for yourself that you somehow deserve it. Your entitled mind is dead weight. Cut it loose. Don't focus on what you think you deserve. Take aim on what you are willing to earn. I never blamed anyone for my failures, and I didn't hang my head in Nashville. I stayed humble and sidestepped my entitled mind because I knew damn well I hadn't earned my record. The scoreboard does not lie, and I didn't delude myself otherwise. Believe it or not, most people prefer delusion. They blame others or bad luck or chaotic circumstance. I didn't, which was positive. I listed most of the equipment we used on the positive side of the AAR as well. The tape and chalk worked, and even though the bar tore me the fuck up, it also got me 700 additional pull-ups, so I was headed in the right direction. Another positive was the support of Nandor's CrossFit community. It felt great to be surrounded by such intense, respectful people. But this time, I'd need to cut the number of volunteers in half. I wanted as little buzz in that room as possible. After listing out all the pluses, it was time to kick the tires on my mindset. And if you're doing your post-faceplant due diligence, 
you should do that too. That means checking yourself on how and what you were thinking during the preparation and execution phases of your failure. My commitment to preparation and determination in the fight are always there. They didn't waver. But my belief was shakier than I cared to admit. And as I prepared for my third go-round, it was imperative to move beyond doubt. That wasn't easy, because after my second failure in as many attempts, the doubters were everywhere online. The record holder, Stephen Highland, was light and spidery strong, with thick, muscular palms. He was the perfect build for the pull-up record, and everyone was telling me I was just too big, my form was too brutal, and that I should stop trying to go for it before I hurt myself even worse. They pointed to the scoreboard that doesn't lie. I was still over 800 pull-ups away from the record. That's more than I gained between my first and second attempts. From the beginning, some of them had predicted my hands would give out. And when that truth revealed itself in Nashville, it presented a big mental hurdle. Part of me wondered if those motherfuckers were right, if I was trying to achieve the impossible. Then I thought of an English middle-distance runner from back in the day named Roger Bannister. When Bannister was trying to break the four-minute mile in the 1950s, experts told him it couldn't be done, but that didn't stop him. He failed again and again, but he persevered, and when he ran his historic mile in 3 minutes, 59 seconds, and 4 tenths of a second, on May 6, 1954, he didn't just break a record. He broke open the floodgates simply by proving it possible. Six weeks later, his record was eclipsed, and by now over 1,000 runners have done what was once thought to be beyond human capability. We are all guilty of allowing so-called experts, or just people who have more experience in a given field than we do, to cap our potential. One of the reasons we love sports is because we also love watching those glass ceilings get shattered. If I was going to be the next athlete to smash popular perception, I'd need to stop listening to doubt, whether it streamed in from the outside or bubbled up from within. And the best way to do that was to decide that the pull-up record was already mine. I didn't know when it would officially become mine. It might be in two months or 20 years. But once I decided it belonged to me and decoupled it from the calendar, I was filled with confidence and relieved of any and all pressure because my task morphed from trying to achieve the impossible into working toward the inevitable. But to get there, I'd have to find the tactical advantage I'd been missing. A tactical review is the final and most vital piece of any live autopsy, or AAR. And while I had improved tactically from the first attempt, working on a more stable bar and minimizing wasted energy, I still fell 800 reps short, so we needed to dive deeper into the numbers. Six pull-ups per minute on the minute had failed me twice. Yes, it placed me on a fast track to 4,020, but I never got there. This time, I decided to start slower, to go further. I also knew from experience that I would hit some sort of wall after 10 hours, and that my response couldn't be a longer break. The 10-hour mark smacked me in the face twice, and both times I stopped for five minutes or longer, which led to ultimate failure pretty quickly. I needed to stay true to my strategy and limit any long breaks to four minutes max. Now, about that pull-up bar. Yeah, it would probably tear me up again, so I needed to find a workaround. According to the rules, I wouldn't be allowed to switch up the distance between my hands mid-attempt. The width would have to remain the same from the first pull-up. The only thing I could change would be how I was going to protect my hands. In the run-up to my third attempt, I experimented with all different types of gloves. I also got clearance to use custom foam pads to protect my palms. I remembered seeing a couple of SEAL buddies use slices of foam mattresses to protect their hands when they were lifting heavy weights. 
and called on a mattress company to custom design form-fitting pads for my hands. Guinness approved the equipment, and at 10 a.m. on January 19, 2013, two months after failing for the second time, I was back on the bar at CrossFit Brentwood Hills. I started slow and easy, with five pull-ups on the minute. I didn't strap my foam pads with tape. I just held them in place around the bar, and they seemed to work well. Within an hour, the foam had formed around my hands, insulating them from molten iron hell. Or so I fucking hoped. At around the two-hour, 600-rep mark, I asked Nandor to play going the distance on a loop. I felt something click inside and went full cyborg. I found a rhythm on the bar, and between sets I sat on a weight bench and stared at the chalk-dusted floor. My point of view narrowed into tunnel vision as I prepared my mind for the hell that was to come. When the first blister opened on my palm, I knew shit was about to get real. But this time, thanks to my failures and forensics, I was ready. That doesn't mean I was having any fun. I wasn't. I was over it. I didn't want to do pull-ups anymore. But achieving goals or overcoming obstacles doesn't have to be fun. Seeds burst from the inside out in a self-destructive ritual of new life. Does that sound like fucking fun? Like it feels good? I wasn't in that gym to get happy or do what I wanted to be doing. I was there to turn myself inside out, if that's what it took, to blast through any and all mental, emotional, and physical barriers. After 12 hours, I finally hit 3,000 pull-ups, a major checkpoint for me, and felt like I'd run headfirst into a wall. I was exasperated, in agony, and my hands were starting to come apart again. I was still a long way from the record, and I felt all the eyeballs in the room upon me. With them came the crushing weight of failure and humiliation. Suddenly, I was back in the cage during my third hell week, taping my shins and ankles before mustering up with a new buds class who'd heard it was my last chance. It takes great strength to be vulnerable enough to put your ass on the line, in public, and work toward a dream that feels like it's slipping away. We all have eyeballs on us. Our family and friends are watching. And even if you're surrounded by positive people, they will have ideas about who you are, what you're good at, and how you should focus your energy. That shit is just human nature. And if you try to break out of their box, you'll get some unsolicited advice that has a way of smothering your aspirations if you let it. Often, our people don't mean any harm. Nobody who cares about us actually wants us to get hurt. They want us to be safe, comfortable, and happy, and not to have to stare at the floor in a dungeon, sifting through shards of our broken dreams. Too bad. There's a lot of potential in those moments of pain. And if you figure out how to piece that picture back together, you'll find a hell of a lot of power there, too. I kept my break to just four minutes as planned, long enough to stuff my hands and those foam pads into a pair of padded gloves. But when I got back on the bar, I felt slow and weak. Nandor and his wife and the other volunteers saw my struggle, but they left me the fuck alone to put in my earbuds, channel Rocky Balboa, and keep grinding one rep at a time. I went from four pull-ups on the minute to three, and found my cyborg trance again. I went ugly. I got dark. I imagined my pain was the creation of a mad scientist named Stephen Highland, the evil genius who was in temporary possession of my record and my soul. It was him. That motherfucker was torturing me from across the globe, and it was up to me, and only me, to keep piling up numbers and steamroll toward him, if I wanted to take his motherfucking soul. To be clear, I wasn't angry with Highland. 
I don't even know him. I went there to find the edge I needed to keep going. I got personal with him in my head, not out of overconfidence or envy, but to drown out my own doubt. Life is a head game. This was just the latest angle I used to win a game within that game. I had to find an edge somewhere, and if you find it in the person standing in your way, that's potent. As the hours ticked past midnight, I started closing the distance between us, but the pull-ups weren't coming fast, and they weren't coming easy. I was tired mentally and physically, deep into rhabdo, and I was down to three pull-ups a minute. When I hit 3,800 pull-ups, I felt like I could see the mountaintop. I also knew it was possible to go from being able to do three pull-ups to no pull-ups in a flash. There are stories of people at Badwater who reached mile 129 and couldn't finish a 135-mile race. You never know when you'll reach your 100% and hit the point of total muscle fatigue. I kept waiting for that moment to come when I couldn't pick my arms up anymore. Doubt stalked me like a shadow. I tried my best to control it or silence it, yet it kept reappearing, following me, pushing me. After 17 hours of pain, around 3 a.m. on January 20th, 2013, I did my 4,020th and 4,021st pull-up, and the record was mine. Everyone in the gym cheered, but I stayed composed. After two more sets and 4,030 total pull-ups, I took my headphones out, stared into the camera, and said, I tracked you down, Stephen Highland. In one day, I'd lifted the equivalent of 846,030 pounds, nearly three times the weight of the space shuttle. Cheers spread to laughter as I pulled off my gloves and disappeared into the back room, but much to everyone's surprise, I was not in the mood to celebrate. Does that shock you too? You know that my refrigerator is never full, and it never will be, because I live a mission-driven life, always on the hunt for the next challenge. That mindset is the reason I broke that record, finished Badwater, became a SEAL, rocked Ranger School, and on down the list. In my mind, I'm that racehorse, always chasing a carrot I'll never catch, forever trying to prove myself to myself. And when you live that way and attain a goal, success feels anticlimactic. Unlike my initial shot at the record, my success barely made a ripple in the news cycle, which was just fine. I wasn't doing it for adulation. I raised some money, and I learned all I could from that pull-up bar. After logging more than 67,000 pull-ups in nine months, it was time to put them in my cookie jar and move on. Because life is one long motherfucking imaginary game that has no scoreboard, no referee, and isn't over until we're dead and buried. And all I'd ever wanted from it was to become successful in my own eyes. That didn't mean wealth or celebrity, a garage full of hot cars, or a harem of beautiful women trailing after me. It meant becoming the hardest motherfucker who ever lived. Sure, I stacked up some failures along the way, but in my mind, the record proved that I was close. Only the game wasn't over, and being hard came with a requirement to drain every drop of ability from my mind, body, and soul before the whistle blew. I would remain in constant pursuit. I wouldn't leave anything on the table. I wanted to earn my final resting place. That's how I thought back then anyway, because I had no clue how close to the end I already was. Man. The chills just came on me, brother. All right. Well, dude, congratulations. I mean, that's amazing. To, I mean, you were on that mission. You weren't going to be denied. You know what? And what's funny about that, if people, you know, those people who are listening to this book, man, 
this was all a process. And what happens when you get to chapter 10, you forget chapter one, two, and three. Yeah, it's at, true. At the place I was at. So now you start looking at where I'm at now. Don't forget where I started. Don't forget where my mindset was. I was the cheating guy that got caught, you know, that, that got called nigger all the time. Dad beat the hell out of me. My mom was always gone working, living a seven dollar a month place. I struggled. That was my foundation. That was my base. So to take that base, that foundation, once again, don't put a title on me. It is possible to achieve when you want to dissect and do a live autopsy on your brain and figure out what makes me tick. You have to figure that out. So don't forget all that. And another thing that's important here is during this time, Adam, all everything I did, self-talk is so important. Mm. And a lot of people write books on self-talk, yep. visualization, all that stuff. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. As you see here in the last couple of paragraphs, I did 67,000 pull-ups in nine months. What happened to me when things were getting really hard, I mean, all the time, but especially on this last record attempt when I finally got it, when I got to about 3,500, I was terrified. I thought for sure, man, because I knew how fast muscle failure happens. Cause, right. I mean, I have two contact points. They're my hands. And once those arms give out, man, you're done. It can happen at any pull-up at any time when, you, you know, when you're that deep into the dungeon. Yeah, you could never get comfortable. It could happen at any moment. At any moment, especially when you're 35,000, you know, I mean, I mean 3,500 reps in. Hell yeah. Which is like, what, 700 and some odd thousand pounds? You are already beyond known territory, so right. at any moment it could happen. So I was freaking out, so I went deep. That's why I had to put the, uh, the um, earbuds in yep. and kind of channel everything out and go within my own mind. And a lot of folks think it's just as easy as just talking to yourself. That's what self-talk is. No, that's you lying to yourself. Yeah. If you haven't put the actual work in, I was remembering the 67,000 pull-ups it took for me to get to this moment. That was my self-talk. It was those days in the gym where I cranked out 2,000 pull-ups. It was those, you know, everyday grind on that pull-up bar. So when things got really bad for me, I went back into the mindset, into the dungeon of all those hours and months on the pull-up bar. Yeah, well, you knew you knew you could do it. I mean, I tell I I go swimming, uh, you know, quarter mile offshore uh, all the time. This to this reef out off Malibu, and um, when I take people out there, uh, before I take them out there, I usually ask them to do like a thousand yards in a pool nonstop. Right. Because when they're off a quarter mile to a half mile offshore, that shit looks far. Right. And you need to know, you need to have that. Not, I don't care if they swam it fast. I just want them to know in their own heads, hey, I've swam farther this without stopping before. That's a true statement, So I can man. do this. So, so that's, it's all just for having those reps, right? It's, you know what? It's all about repetition. And that's what failure is about. Failure kind of sets that bar. And then you go, okay, my, you know, next time out, I'm going past where I failed. Mm. And it's a new bar. Yeah. Now you're going to fail again. But failing doesn't mean you quit. It means you failed, but get back up and continue to push that bar higher and higher and higher. And with that knowledge, that newfound knowledge, you can then make that failure a huge success. Failure doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you failed at one thing, one time. That's all it means, And it could man. be the 10th time you did it one time, but it's still just that one thing. You know what? In a lot of things that, that you're failing at, people, some people have never even tried. Right. And so people look at that, oh my God, I'm failing, and they look at it and they get all consumed with this shit, 
And that's all it is, man. Stop looking at it like some big failure. A lot of people aren't even trying what you're trying to do, and it's your life. Stop competing with the world. And it really, no one really gives a shit. Everybody's lives are so consumed with paying bills and, and their husband or wives and their kids. No one cares as much as you do. Trust me, it's not as bad as you think. What I love in this chapter also, though, that can be really applied to anything are the after action reports. So I know that's this challenge. So I'm going to read through the challenge and then maybe we can talk just a, a couple minutes a little bit more about your after action report discipline and why it's important. Roger that. Challenge 10. Think about your most recent and your most heart-wrenching failures. Break out that journal one last time. Log off the digital version and write them out longhand. I want you to feel this process because you are about to file your own belated after-action reports. First off, write out all the good things, everything that went well from your failures. Be detailed and generous with yourself. A lot of good things will have happened. It's rarely all bad. Then note how you handled your failure. Did it affect your life and your relationships? How so? How did you think throughout the preparation for and during the execution stage of your failure? You have to know how you were thinking at each step because it's all about mindset, and that's where most people fall short. Now, go back through and make a list of things you can fix. This isn't time to be soft or generous. Be brutally honest. Write them all out. Study them. Then look at your calendar and schedule another attempt as soon as possible. If the failure happened in childhood and you can't recreate the Little League All-Star game you choked in, I still want you to write that report because you'll likely be able to use that information to achieve any goal going forward. As you prepare, keep that AAR handy. Consult your accountability mirror and make all necessary adjustments. When it comes time to execute, keep everything we've learned about the power of a callous mind the cookie jar, and the 40% rule in the forefront of your mind. Control your mindset. Dominate your thought process. This life is all a fucking mind game. Realize that. Own it. And if you fail again, so the fuck be it. Take the pain, repeat these steps, and keep fighting. That's what it's all about. Share your stories from preparation, training, and execution on social media with the hashtags, hashtag can't hurt me, Hashtag empowerment of failure. You know, I just love this idea of going back through the old, the old failures, right? Whether they're they're recent or long time ago. I mean, I, I'll just say it right here. This little league thing is is my deal. You know, that's what happened to me. I made an error that cost us the, the game and kicked us out of the little league tournament, and. Uh, and I know how I handled it. I knew my mindset going in. I mean, I was a little kid. It's easy to let a little kid off the hook. But that coach had never believed in me. You know, I was an all-star because I did well that whole year. I was one of the best players. But that coach, for whatever reason, I was a small kid, didn't believe in me. And I let that mess with my game. Right, and right. Then, and then after the fact, I definitely let that affect my entire summer. Like, my summer was fucking gone. You know, and as a kid, you're resilient by nature, but I never fully let it go because I always was so ashamed. Well, I'll tell you something, and, and, and we talked about it during the uh, during this whole book process, was my very last basketball game, my senior year. Very last basketball game, man. I had a chance to win the game. There was uh, 18 or 17 seconds on the, on the clock. We were up by one point. 
and I'm at the foul line. It was uh, I had a one on one, so took took the shot, missed it, hit the front iron. They got the ball. I was guarding the best offensive player in the state of Indiana. I was the best defensive player, and he came down the court, and literally. He threw up this three-pointer. I was probably about two feet from him. I was straight up in the air, and there's an article out there called The Phantom Foul. Hmm. I was about two feet from him. He tried to lean into me, never touched me. Shot a hook shot from the uh, three-point line, top of the key. It didn't go in. We got the rebound, and I heard a whistle. Hmm. And they called me for the foul. He hit three free throws. They won the game. That was my very last basketball game I ever played and that's how it ended that's how it ended and all I had in high school pretty much was basketball and one thing about all this AAR stuff life isn't always going to be fun no it is not always we are looking you know we're in a time right now where everybody wants to be happy all the time all the time you're not always going to be happy and life isn't always going to be fun there's a time where you need to go into a dark place in a nice dark room and be brutally honest with who you are to get better. And that's what the whole after action report is. It's okay to be alone. Don't always have to be around people. Be alone, be alone in your own thoughts and really kind of break yourself down systematically. Figure out your weak points and then make those weak points your strong points. Well, what I love about the AR though is because yeah, you're gonna be, when life isn't fun and you don't have the tools though, and you're locked in this kind of negative mental health space. Right. If you're without the tools, it can just snowball on you fast. But the AR is actually a tool. That's right. So you're not alone. You're alone with tools. That's right. And that's a lot different. And then you can kind of whittle it down. And then by the time you come back out of that, you actually have ownership. Just like you're always saying, you got to own it. It's your life to own. It's your shit to own. The good shit and the bad shit. And what I love about this is, you know, there's good stuff. Like if I was a 12-year-old kid, you, you know, for you, it's like... Shit, I was the best defensive player. That's good. You know, I got I got to the line. That's good. Right. So there's all these things that are that are positives, and that's how you lead it. So I think this is a really really helpful tool. I never hear anybody talk about it. I really encourage this. I I personally am am getting into it. I love it, and uh, I think it's a tool. You're not alone in in your failure. You actually have tools to use. Well, the whole thing about being alone is that you, you you cannot have these people around you patting on your back saying, it's okay. Right. We don't need to try it again. Right. You know, those, that's the whole thing about it, man. It's about you owning this. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah not, to, not to, that it's bad to be yeah, alone, but you that you're alone this. with tools. That's right. You have, you have, you're, you're alone in the fucking, fa- in, the, in the laboratory But the thing tools. about it is that we all have the tools. Yeah. But we are so in a, in a poopy pants mentality that we forget that we have tools. Well, you've given them with this AR. Oh. This is a tool. So and these you, are all barbaric tools, man. None yeah. of this stuff is like, you know, groundbreaking stuff. This is the stone tools. That's it, man. <laughs> My whole thinking process, you know, this isn't like, you know, I went to Harvard or Yale. All Everything I've done in my life is some old school barbarian, you know, stuff that we've been, that, that it's, it's in us. You went to Knuckle Dragger University. That's it, man. It is in us. <laughs> This is how we act. This is how we are. But we don't want to do this stuff. This is Knuckle Dragger University. This is true. The school of hard knocks. And that's all it is. It's Once you look at it, it's in there, man. It's in there. Chapter 11. What if? 
Before the race even kicked off, I knew I was fucked. In 2014, the National Park Service wouldn't approve the traditional Badwater course. So Chris Kostman redrew the map. Instead of starting in Death Valley National Park and running 42 miles through the hottest desert on the planet, it would launch further upcountry at the base of a 22-mile climb. That wasn't my problem. It was the fact that I towed the line 11 pounds over my usual race weight and had gained 10 of those pounds in the previous seven days. I wasn't a fat ass. To the average eye, I looked fit. But Badwater wasn't an average race. To run and finish strong, my condition needed to be tip-top, and I was far from it. Whatever was happening to me came as a shock, because after two years of substandard running, I thought I'd gotten my powers back. The previous January, I'd won a 100-kilometer glacial trail race called Frozen Otter. It wasn't as hard as the Hurt 100, but it was close. Set in Wisconsin, just outside Milwaukee, the course laid out like a lopsided figure eight, with the start-finish at the center. We passed it between the two loops, which enabled us to stock up on food and other necessary supplies from our cars, and stuff them into our packs with our emergency supplies. The weather can turn evil out there, and race organizers compiled a list of necessities we were required to have on us at all times so we wouldn't die of dehydration, hypothermia, or exposure. The first lap was the larger loop of the two, and when we set off, the temperature was sitting at zero degrees Fahrenheit. Those trails were never plowed. In some places, snow piled into drifts. In others, the trails seemed purposefully glazed with slick ice, which presented a problem because I wasn't wearing boots or trail shoes like most of my competitors. I laced up my standard running shoes and tucked them into some cheap-ass crampons, which theoretically were supposed to grip the ice and keep me upright. Well, the ice won that war, and my crampons snapped off in the first hour. Nevertheless, I was leading the race and breaking trail in an average of 6 to 12 inches of snow. In some places, the drifts were piled much higher. My feet were cold and wet from the starting gun, and within two hours, they felt frozen through, especially my toes. My top half wasn't faring much better. When you sweat in below freezing temperature, salt on your body chafes the skin. My underarms and chest were cracking raspberry red. I was covered in rashes. My toes hurt with every step, but none of that registered too high on my pain scale because I was running free. For the first time since my second heart surgery, my body was beginning to put itself back together. I was getting 100% of my oxygen supply like everyone else. My endurance and strength were next level, and though the trail was a slippery mess, my technique was dialed in too. I was way out front and stopped at my car for a sandwich before the last 22-mile loop. My toes throbbed with evil pain. I suspected they were frostbitten, which meant I was in danger of losing some of them, but I didn't want to take off my shoes and look. Once again, doubt and fear were popping in my brain, reminding me that only a handful of people had ever finished the frozen otter, and that no lead was safe in that kind of cold. Weather more than any other variable can break a motherfucker down quick, but I didn't listen to any of that. I created a new dialogue and told myself to finish the race strong and worry about amputated toes at the hospital after I was crowned champion. I ran back onto the course. A blast of sun had melted some of the snow earlier in the day, but the cold wind iced up the trail nicely. As I ran, I flashed to my first year at Hurt 100 and the great Carl Meltzer. Back then, I was a plotter. I hit the turf with my heel first and peeling the muddy trail with the entire surface area of my foot 
increased my odds of slipping and falling. Carl didn't run like that. He moved like a goat, bouncing on his toes and running along the edges of the trail. As soon as his toes hit the ground, he fired his legs into the air. That's why he looked like he was floating. By design, he barely touched the ground, while his head and core remained stable and engaged. From that moment onward, his movements were permanently etched in my brain like a cave painting. I visualized them all the time and put his techniques into practice during training runs. They say it takes 66 days to build a habit. For me, it takes a hell of a lot longer than that, but I eventually get there. And during all those years of ultra running and competition, I was working on my craft. A true runner analyzes their form. We didn't learn how to do that in the SEALs, but being around so many ultra runners for years, I was able to absorb and practice skills that seemed unnatural at first. At Frozen Otter, my main focus was to hit the ground soft, to touch it just enough to explode. During my third BUDS class, and then my first platoon, when I was considered one of the better runners, my head bounced all over the place. My weight wasn't balanced, and when my foot hit the ground, all my weight would be supported by that one leg, which led to some awkward falls on slippery terrain. Through trial and error, and thousands of hours of training, I learned to maintain balance. At Frozen Otter, it all came together. With speed and grace, I navigated steep, slippery trails. I kept my head flat and still, my motion quiet as possible, and my steps silent by running on the front of my feet. When I picked up speed, it was as if I'd disappeared into a white wind, elevated into a meditative state. I became Carl Meltzer. Now it was me who looked to be levitating over an impossible trail, and I finished the race in 16 hours, smashing the course record and winning the Frozen Otter title without losing any toes. Two years earlier, I was stricken with dizzy spells during easy six-mile runs. In 2013, I was forced to walk over 100 miles of Badwater and finished in 17th place. I'd been on a downslide and thought my days of contention for titles were long passed over. After Frozen Otter, I was tempted to believe I'd made it all the way back and then some, and that my best ultra years were actually ahead of me. I took that energy into my preparations for Badwater 2014. I was living in Chicago at the time, working as an instructor in BUDS prep, a school that prepared candidates to deal with the harsh reality they would face in BUDS. After more than 20 years, I was in my final year of military service, and by being placed in a position to drop wisdom on the would-bees and wannabes, it felt like I'd come full circle. As usual, I would run 10 miles to work and back, and squeeze in another eight miles during lunch when I could. On the weekends, I'd do at least one 35 to 40 mile run. It all added up to a succession of 130 mile weeks, and I was feeling strong. As spring bloomed, I added a heat training component by slipping on four or five layers of sweats, a beanie, and a Gore-Tex jacket before hitting the streets. When I'd show up at work, my fellow SEAL instructors would watch, amazed, as I peeled off my wet clothes and stuffed them into black trash bags that together weighed nearly 15 pounds. You know, David, I gotta stop, dude. <laughs> Every time I hear you when you're four layers of clothes and a fucking beanie, dude, right. in the summertime, dude, looking crazy. I mean, that is absolutely mental. I can only imagine. Like, people must have thought you'd lost your mind. <laughs> well, I'm not, so the thing about it, is I was on some of the busiest streets. <laughs> so it wasn't like I was hiding out. So, you know, you see this guy running in like five, four or five layers of sweatpants, and I had a, 
like like a hoodie with a beanie. And I, I I guarantee you, man, I was getting some crazy looks. I just didn't look anybody. I just kept on running. Did you did you prefer training in Chicago to training in Nyland and and or did you, did some of you like did some part of you like training in California? Was it better to train in California because it was more a, a more kind of apt place to train given the terrain? California Nyland was medieval. Yeah, because it was damn near Death Valley. Right. You know, it was like 110, 115 degrees. Yeah. So I would go out there wearing all those layers, and it was almost exactly like, you know, Death Valley. In Chicago, there was times in the summertime, it'd be like 69 degrees. Right. So I'm running thinking, man, I'm not even getting, you know, I'm not getting good training in. Hmm. So it was uh, it was very difficult, but I swear to God, I'd get to work, and I would sit there, and I would get a trash can, and I would be in my office, and I had a guy there with me, another SEAL, and I would sit there and just wring out these clothes, and he'd be like, oh my God. God, dude, it'd be like literally that trash can would be full of water. Did you like to do it in front of the Bud's prep guys so they could see you and just like get scared? <laughs> you know what's crazy about that? I actually hid a lot of that uh. from them. But one thing I didn't hide was during the frozen order, I actually got done with that race. And we actually called all the Bud's prep in about 12 o'clock, had a surprise inspection. It was like midnight, had a surprise inspection. It was a day after. I just got through doing the frozen otter. And there's a picture in the book of my toe after, or my feet after frozen otter. And I walked around with sandals on. <laughs> just so, and so they were in the leaning rest position. So, you know, doing push ups. So my feet were right by their face. And my feet smell like hell because they're all infected and shit. So I made sure I said, hey, get down on there, buddy. <laughs> Jump on down, smell that toe, boy. Jump on down, smell that toe. So. <laughs> You know, you have fun with them a little bit, man. But, yeah, I had some ugly feet, man. The toenails are coming off. The blood was everywhere. And the picture's disgusting. So, yeah, it was a good time. That's funny. So you're on track. You're feeling good. Here, we'll go back in. I started my taper four weeks out and went from 130-mile weeks to an 80-mile week, then down to 60, 40, and 20. Tapering is supposed to generate an abundance of energy as you eat and rest enabling the body to repair all the damage done and get you primed for competition. Instead, I never felt worse. I wasn't hungry and couldn't sleep at all. Some people said my body was starved of calories. Others suggested I might be low on sodium. My doctor measured my thyroid, and it was a little off, but the readings weren't so bad to explain how shitty I felt. Perhaps the explanation was simple, that I was overtrained. Two weeks before the race, I considered pulling out. I worried it was my heart again, because on easy runs I felt a surge of adrenaline that I couldn't vent. Even a mellow pace sent my pulse racing into arrhythmia. Ten days before the race, I landed in Vegas. I'd scheduled five runs, but couldn't get past the three-mile mark on any of them. I wasn't eating that much, but the weight kept piling on. It was all water. I sought out another doctor who confirmed there was nothing physically wrong with me, and when I heard that, I was not about to be a pussy. During the opening miles, an initial climb of Badwater 2014, my heart rate ran high, but part of that was the altitude, and 22 miles later, I made it to the top in 6th or 7th place. Surprised and proud, I thought, let's see if I can go downhill. I've never enjoyed the brutality of running down a steep incline, because it shreds the quads, but I also thought it would allow me to reset and calm my breath. My body refused. I couldn't catch my breath at all. I hit the flat section at the bottom, 
slowed my pace, and began to walk. My competitors passed me by as my thighs twitched uncontrollably. My muscle spasms were so bad, my quads looked like there was an alien rattling around inside them. And still I didn't stop. I walked for four full miles before seeking shelter in a Lone Pine motel room, where the Badwater medical team had set up shop. They checked me out and saw that my blood pressure was a bit low, but easily corrected. They couldn't find a single metric that could explain how fucked I felt. I ate some solid food, rested, and decided to try one more time. There was a flat section leaving Lone Pine, and I thought if I could knock that out, perhaps I'd catch a second wind. But six or seven miles later, my sails were still empty, and I'd given all I had. My muscles trembled and twitched. My heart jumped up and down the chart. I looked over at my pacer and said, That's it, man. I'm done. My support vehicle pulled up behind us, and I climbed inside. A few minutes later, I was laying on that same motel bed with my tail between my legs. I'd lasted just 50 miles, but any humiliation that came with quitting, not something I was used to, was drowned out by an instinct that something was way the fuck off. It wasn't my fear talking or my desire for comfort. This time, I was certain that if I didn't stop trying to break through this barrier, I wouldn't make it out of the Sierras alive. We left Lone Pine for Las Vegas the next night. And for two days, I did my best to rest and recover, hoping my body would settle somewhere close to equilibrium. We were staying at the Wynn, and on that third morning, I went for a jog to see if I had anything in the tank. One mile later, my heart was in my throat, and I shut it down. I walked back to the hotel, knowing that despite what the doctor said, I was sick, and suspected that whatever I had was serious. Later that night, after seeing a movie in the Vegas suburbs, I felt weak as we strolled to a nearby restaurant, the Elephant Bar. My mom was a few paces ahead, and I saw her in triplicate. I clenched my eyes shut, released them, and there were still three of her. She held the door open for me, and when I stepped into the cool confines, I felt a bit better. We slid into a booth opposite one another. I was too unsteady to read the menu and asked her to order for me. From there, it got worse. And when the runner showed up with our food, my vision blurred again. I strained to open my eyes wide and felt woozy as my mother looked to be floating above the table. You're going to have to call an ambulance, I said, because I'm going down. Desperate for some stability, I laid my head on the table, but my mom didn't dial 911. She crossed to my side, and I leaned on her as we made our way to the hostess stand and then back to the car. On the way, I shared as much of my medical history as I could recall in short bursts, in case I lost consciousness and she did have to call for help. Luckily, my vision and energy improved enough for her to drive me to the emergency room herself. My thyroid had been flagged in the past, so that's the first thing the doctors explored. Many Navy SEALs have thyroid issues when they reach their 30s, because when you put motherfuckers in extreme environments like Hell Week and war, their hormone levels go haywire. When the thyroid gland is suboptimal, fatigue, muscle aches, and weakness are among more than a dozen major side effects. But my thyroid levels were close to normal. My heart checked out too. The ER docs in Vegas told me all I needed was rest. I went back to Chicago and saw my own doctor who ordered a battery of blood tests. His office tested my endocrine system and screened me for Lyme, hepatitis, rheumatoid arthritis, and a handful of other autoimmune diseases. Everything came back clean except for my thyroid, which was slightly suboptimal, 
but that didn't explain how I'd morphed so fast from an elite athlete capable of running hundreds of miles into a pretender who could barely muster the energy to tie his shoes, let alone run a mile without verging on collapse. I was in medical no man's land. I left his office with more questions than answers and a prescription for thyroid medication. Each day that went by, I felt worse. Everything was crashing on me. I had trouble getting out of bed. I was constipated and achy. They took more blood and decided I had Addison's disease, an autoimmune illness that occurs when your adrenals are drained and your body doesn't produce enough cortisol, which was common in SEALs because we're primed to run on adrenaline. My doctor prescribed the steroid hydrocortisone, DHEA, and Arimidex, among other meds. But taking his pills only accelerated my decline. And after that, he and the other doctors I saw were tapped out. The look in their eyes said it all. In their minds, I was either a crazy hypochondriac or I was dying, and they didn't know what was killing me or how to heal me. I fought through it the best I could. My coworkers didn't know anything about my decline because I continued to show no weakness. My whole life, I'd been hiding all my insecurities and trauma. I kept all my vulnerabilities locked down beneath an iron veneer. But eventually the pain became so bad, I couldn't even get out of bed. I called in sick and lay there, staring at the ceiling, and wondered, could this be the end? Peering into the abyss sent my mind reeling back through the days, weeks, years, like fingers flipping through old files. I found all the best parts and tacked them together into a highlight loop, streamed on repeat. I grew up beat down and abused, filtered uneducated through a system that rejected me at every turn, until I took ownership and started to change. Since then, I'd been obese. I was married and divorced. I had two heart surgeries, taught myself to swim, and learned to run on broken legs. I was terrified of heights, then took up high-altitude skydiving. Water scared the living shit out of me, yet I became a technical diver, an underwater navigator, which is several degrees of difficulty beyond scuba diving. I competed in more than 60 ultra-distance races, winning several, and set a pull-up record. I stuttered through my early years in primary school and grew up to become the Navy SEAL's most trusted public speaker. I'd served my country on the battlefield. Along the way, I became driven to make sure that I could not be defined by the abuse I was born into or the bullying I grew up with. I wouldn't be defined by talent either. I didn't have much, or my own fears and weaknesses. I was the sum total of the obstacles I'd overcome. And even though I told my story to students all over the country, I never stopped long enough to appreciate the tale I told or the life I'd built. In my mind, I didn't have the time to waste. I never hit snooze on my life clock because there was always something else to do. If I worked a 20-hour day, I'd work out for an hour and sleep for three, but I made sure to get that motherfucker in. My brain wasn't wired to appreciate. It was programmed to do work, scan the horizon, ask what's next, and get it done. That's why I piled up so many rare feats. I was always on the hunt for the next big thing. But as I lay there in bed, my body taut with tension and throbbing with pain, I had a clear idea what was next for me, the cemetery. After years of abuse, I'd finally shredded my physical body beyond repair. I was dying. For weeks and months, I searched for a cure to my medical mystery. But in that moment of catharsis, I didn't feel sad and I didn't feel cheated. I was only 38 years old, but I'd lived 10 lives, 
and experienced a hell of a lot more than most 80-year-olds. I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. It made sense that at some point the toll would come due. I spent hours reflecting back on my journey. This time, I wasn't sifting through the cookie jar while in the heat of battle, hoping to find a ticket to victory. I wasn't leveraging my life assets towards some new end. No, I was done fighting, and all I felt was gratitude. I wasn't meant to be this person. I had to fight myself at every turn, and my destroyed body was my biggest trophy. In that moment, I knew it didn't matter if I ever ran again, if I couldn't operate anymore, or if I lived or died. And with that acceptance came deep appreciation. My eyes welled with tears, not because I was afraid, but because at my lowest point, I found clarity. The kid I always judged so harshly didn't lie and cheat to hurt anyone's feelings. He did it for acceptance. He broke the rules because he didn't have the tools to compete and was ashamed for being dumb. He did it because he needed friends. I was afraid to tell the teachers I couldn't read. I was terrified of the stigma associated with special education. And instead of coming down on that kid for one more second, instead of chastising my younger self, I understood him for the first time. It was a lonely journey from there to here. I missed out on so much. I didn't have a lot of fun. Happiness wasn't my cocktail of choice. My brain had me on constant blast. I lived in fear and doubt, terrified of being a nobody and contributing nothing. I judged myself constantly, and I judged everyone else around me too. Rage is a powerful thing. For years, I'd raged at the world, channeled all my pain from my past, and used it as fuel to propel me into the motherfucking stratosphere. But I couldn't always control the blast radius. Sometimes my rage scorched people who weren't as strong as I'd become, or didn't work as hard, and I didn't swallow my tongue or hide my judgment. I let them know, and that hurt some of the people around me, and it allowed people who didn't like me to affect my military career. But lying in bed on that Chicago morning in the fall of 2014, I let all that judgment go. I released myself and everyone I ever knew from any and all guilt and bitterness. The long list of haters, doubters, racists, and abusers that populated my past, I just couldn't hate them anymore. I appreciated them because they helped create me. And as that feeling stretched out, my mind quieted down. I'd been fighting a war for 38 years, and now, at what looked and felt like the very end, I found peace. In this life, there are countless trails to self-realization, though most demand intense discipline, so very few take them. In Southern Africa, the sand people dance for 30 hours straight as a way to commune with the divine. In Tibet, pilgrims rise, kneel, then stretch out face down on the ground before rising again in a ritual of prostration for weeks and months as they cover thousands of miles before arriving at a sacred temple and folding into deep meditation. In Japan, there's a sect of Zen monks that run 1,000 marathons in 1,000 days in a quest to find enlightenment through pain and suffering. I don't know if you could call what I felt on that bed enlightenment, but I do know that pain unlocks a secret doorway in the mind, one that leads to both peak performance and beautiful silence. At first, when you push beyond your perceived capability, your mind won't shut the fuck up about it. It wants you to stop, so it sends you into a spin cycle of panic and doubt, which only amplifies your self-torture. But when you persist past that, to the point that pain fully saturates the mind, you become single-pointed. 
the external world zeroes out. Boundaries dissolve, and you feel connected to yourself and to all things in the depth of your soul. That's what I was after. Those moments of total connection and power, which came through me again in an even deeper way as I reflected on where I'd come from and all I'd put myself through. For hours, I floated in that tranquil space, surrounded by light, feeling as much gratitude as pain, as much appreciation as there was discomfort. At some point, the reverie broke like a fever. I smiled, placed my palms over my watery eyes, and rubbed the top and then the back of my head. At the base of my neck, I felt a familiar knot. It bulged bigger than ever. I threw off the covers and examined the knots above my hip flexors next. Those had grown too. Could it be that basic? Could my suffering be linked to those knots? I flashed back to a session with an expert in stretching and advanced physical and mental training methods the SEALs brought to our base in Coronado in 2010, named Joe Hippensteel. Joe was an undersized decathlete in college, driven to make the Olympic team. But when you're a 5'8 guy going up against world-class decathletes who average 6'3", that isn't easy. He decided to build up his lower body so he could override his genetics to jump higher and run faster than his bigger, stronger opponents. At one point, he was squatting twice his own body weight for 10 sets of 10 reps in one session. But with that increase in muscle mass came a lot of tension, and tension invited injury. The harder he trained, the more injuries he developed, and the more physical therapists he visited. When he was told he tore his hamstring before the trials, his Olympic dream died, and he realized he needed to change the way he trained his body. He began balancing his strength work with extensive stretching and noticed whenever he reached a certain range of motion in a given muscle group or joint, whatever pain lingered, vanished. He became his own guinea pig and developed optimal ranges of motion for every muscle and joint in the human body. He never went to the doctor or physical therapist again because he found his own methodologies much more effective. If an injury cropped up, he treated himself with a stretching regimen. Over the years, he built up a clientele and reputation among elite athletes in the area, and in 2010 was introduced to some Navy SEALs. Word spread at Naval Special Warfare Command, and he was eventually invited to introduce his range of motion routine to about two dozen SEALs. I was one of them. As he lectured, he examined and stretched us out. The problem with most of the guys, he said, was our overuse of muscles without the appropriate balance of flexibility and those issues trace back to Hell Week, when we were asked to do thousands of flutter kicks, then lie back in cold water with waves washing over us. He estimated it would take 20 hours of intensive stretching using his protocol to get most of us back to a normal range of motion in the hips, which can then be maintained, he said, with just 20 minutes of stretching every day. Optimal range of motion required a larger commitment. When he got to me, he took a good look and shook his head. As you know, I'd tasted three hell weeks. He started to stretch me out and said I was so locked up it was like trying to stretch steel cables. You're going to need hundreds of hours, he said. At the time, I didn't pay him any mind because I had no plans to take up stretching. I was obsessed with strength and power, and everything I'd read suggested that an increase in flexibility meant an equal and opposite decrease in speed and force. The view from my deathbed altered my perspective. I pulled myself up, staggered to the bathroom mirror, turned and examined the knot on my head. I stood as tall as I could. It looked like I'd lost not one, but nearly two inches in height. My range of motion had never been worse.
What if Joe was right? What if? One of my mottos these days is peaceful but never satisfied. It was one thing to enjoy the peace of self-acceptance and my acceptance of the fucked up world as it is. But that didn't mean I was going to lie down and wait to die without at least trying to save myself. It didn't mean then, and it doesn't mean now, that I will accept the imperfect or just plain wrong without fighting to change things for the better. I'd tried accessing the mainstream mind to find healing, but the doctors and their drugs didn't do shit except make me feel a whole lot worse. I had no other cards to play. All I could do is try to stretch myself back to health. The first posture was simple. I sat on the ground and tried to cross my legs, Indian style, but my hips were so tight, my knees were up around my ears. I lost my balance and rolled onto my back. It took all my strength to right myself and try again. I stayed in position for 10 seconds, maybe 15, before straightening my legs because it was too damn painful. Cramps squeezed and pinched every muscle in my lower body. Sweat oozed from my pores, but after a short rest, I folded up my legs and took more pain. I cycled through that same stretch on and off for an hour, and slowly, my body started to open. I did a simple quad stretch next, the one we all learned to do in middle school. Standing on my left leg, I bent my right and grabbed my foot with my right hand. Joe was right. My quads were so bulky and tight, it was like stretching steel cables. Again, I stayed on the posture until the pain was a 7 out of 10. Then I took a short break and hit the other side. That standing posture helped to release my quad and stretch out my psoas. The psoas is the only muscle connecting our spine to our lower legs. It wraps around the back of the pelvis, governs the hips, and is known as the fight or flight muscle. As you know, my whole life was fight or flight. As a young kid drowning in toxic stress, I worked that muscle overtime. Ditto during my three hell weeks, ranger school, and delta selection not to mention war. Yet I never did anything to loosen it up. And as an athlete, I continued to tap my sympathetic nervous system and had been grinding so hard, my psoas continued to stiffen, especially on long runs, where sleep deprivation and cold weather came into play. Now it was trying to choke me from the inside out. I'd learned later that it had tilted my pelvis, compressed my spine, and wrapped my connective tissue tight. It shaved two inches off my height. I spoke to Joe about it recently. What was happening to you is an extreme case of what happens to 90% of the population, he said. Your muscles are so locked up that your blood wasn't circulating very well. They were like a frozen steak. You can't inject blood into a frozen steak, and that's why you were shutting down. And it wouldn't let go without a fight. Each stretch plunged me into the fire. I had so much inflammation and internal stiffness, the slightest movement hurt say nothing of long hold poses meant to isolate my quads and psoas. When I sat down and did the butterfly stretch next, the torture intensified. I stretched for two hours that day, woke up sore as hell, and got back after it. On day two, I stretched for six full hours. I did the same three poses over and over, then tried to sit on my heels in a double quad stretch that was pure agony. I worked a calf stretch in too, each session started off rough, but after an hour or two, my body released enough for the pain to ease up. Before long, I was folded into stretches for upwards of 12 hours a day. I woke up at 6 a.m., stretched until 9 a.m., and then stretched on and off while at the desk at work, especially when I was on the phone. I'd stretch out during my lunch hour 
and then after I got home at 5 p.m., I'd stretch until I hit the sack. I came up with a routine, starting at my neck and shoulders before moving into the hips, psoas, glutes, quads, hamstrings, and calves. Stretching became my new obsession. I bought a massage ball to tenderize my psoas. I propped a board up against a closed door at a 70-degree angle and used it to stretch out my calf. I'd been suffering for the better part of two years, and after several months of continual stretching, I noticed the bump at the base of my skull had started to shrink, along with the knots around my hip flexors, and my overall health and energy level improved. I wasn't anywhere close to flexible yet, and I wasn't completely back to myself, but I was off all but my thyroid medication, and the more I stretched, the more my condition improved. I kept at it for at least six hours a day for weeks, then months and years. I'm still doing it. I retired from the military as a chief in the Navy in November 2015, the only military man ever to be part of Air Force TACP, three Navy SEAL Hell Weeks in one year, completing two of them, and graduate BUDS and Army Ranger School. It was a bittersweet moment because the military was a big part of my identity. It helped shape me and make me a better man, and I gave it everything I had. By then, Bill Brown had moved on too. He grew up marginalized like me, wasn't supposed to amount to much, and even got bounced from his first buds class by instructors who questioned his intelligence. Today, he is a lawyer at a major firm in Philadelphia. Freak Brown proved and continues to prove himself. Sledge is still in the SEAL teams. When I met him, he was a big-time boozer, but after our workouts, his mentality changed. He went from never running at all to running marathons from not owning a bicycle to becoming one of the fastest cyclists in San Diego. He's finished multiple Ironman triathlons. They say iron sharpens iron, and we proved that. Sean Dobbs never became a SEAL, but he did become an officer. He's a lieutenant commander these days, and he's still a hell of an athlete. He's an Ironman, an accomplished cyclist, was honor man in the Navy's advanced dive school, and later earned a graduate degree. One reason for all of his success is because he's come to own his failure in Hell Week, which means it no longer owns him. SBG is still in the Navy too, but he's not messing with Bud's candidates anymore. He analyzes data to make sure naval special warfare continues to become smarter, stronger, and more effective than ever. He's an egghead now, an egghead with an edge. But I was with him when he was at his physical peak, and he was a fucking stud. Since our dark days in Buffalo and Brazil, my mother has also completely transformed her life. She earned a master's degree in education and serves as a volunteer on a domestic violence task force when she's not working as a senior associate vice president at a Nashville medical school. As for me, stretching helped me get my powers back. As my time in the military wound down while I was still in the rehab zone, I studied to recertify as an EMT. Once again, I utilized my longhand memorization skills I'd been honing since high school to finish at the top of my class. I also attended Teak's Fire Training Academy, where I graduated top honor man in my class. Eventually, I started running again, this time with zero side effects, and when I got back into decent enough shape, I entered a few ultras and returned to the top spot in several, including the Strolling Gym 40-miler in Tennessee and Infinitus 88K in Vermont both in 2016. But that wasn't enough, so I became a wildland firefighter in Montana. After wrapping up my first season on the fire lines in the summer of 2015, 
I stopped by my mother's place in Nashville for a visit. At midnight, her phone rang. My mother is like me in the sense that she doesn't have a wide circle of friends and doesn't get many phone calls during decent hours, so this was either a wrong number or an emergency. I could hear Trunis Jr. on the other end of the line. I hadn't seen or spoken to him in over 15 years. Our relationship broke down the moment he chose to stay with our father rather than tough it out with us. For most of my life, I found his decision impossible to forgive or accept. But like I said, I'd changed. Through the years, my mother kept me updated on the basics. He'd eventually stepped away from our father and his shady businesses, earned a PhD, and became a college administrator. He's also a great father to his kids. I could tell by my mom's voice that something was wrong. All I remember hearing was my mom asking, Are you sure it's Kayla? When she hung up, she explained that Kayla, his 18-year-old daughter, had been hanging with friends in Indianapolis. At some point, looser acquaintances rolled up. Bad blood boiled, a gun was pulled, shots rang out, and a stray bullet found one of the teenagers. When his ex-wife called him in panic mode, he drove to the crime scene. But when he arrived, he was held outside the yellow tape and kept in the dark. He could see Kayla's car and a body under a tarp, but nobody would tell him if his daughter was alive or dead. My mother and I hit the road immediately. I drove 80 miles per hour through slanted rain for five hours straight to Indianapolis. We pulled into his driveway shortly after he returned from the crime scene where, while standing outside the yellow tape, he was asked to identify his daughter from a picture of her body taken on a detective's cell phone. He wasn't offered the dignity of privacy or time to pay respects. He had to do all that later. He opened the door, took a few steps toward us, and broke down crying. My mother got there first. Then I pulled my brother in for a hug, and all of our bullshit issues no longer mattered. The Buddha famously said that life is suffering. I'm not a Buddhist, but I know what he meant, and so do you. To exist in this world, we must contend with humiliation, broken dreams, sadness, and loss. That's just nature. Each specific life comes with its own personalized portion of pain. It's coming for you. You can't stop it, and you know it. In response, most of us are programmed to seek comfort as a way to numb it all out and cushion the blows. We carve out safe spaces. We consume media that confirms our beliefs. We take up hobbies aligned with our talents. We try to spend as little time as possible doing the tasks we fucking loathe, and that makes us soft. We live a life defined by the limits we imagine and desire for ourselves because it's comfortable as hell in that box. Not just for us, but for our closest family and friends. The limits we create and accept become the lens through which they see us, through which they love and appreciate us. But for some, those limits start to feel like bondage. And when we least expect it, our imagination jumps those walls and hunts down dreams that in the immediate aftermath feel attainable, because most dreams are. We are inspired to make changes little by little, and it hurts. Breaking the shackles and stretching beyond our own perceived limits takes hard fucking work, oftentimes physical work. And when you put yourself on the line, self-doubt and pain will greet you with a stinging combination that will buckle your knees. Most people who are merely inspired or motivated will quit at that point, and upon their return, their cells will feel that much smaller, their shackles even tighter.
the few who remain outside their walls will encounter even more pain and much more doubt, courtesy of those who we thought were our biggest fans. When it was time for me to lose 106 pounds in less than three months, everyone I talked to told me there was no way I could do it. Don't expect too much, they all said. Their weak-ass dialogue only fed my own self-doubt. But it's not the external voice that will break you down. It's what you tell yourself that matters. The most important conversations you'll ever have are the ones you'll have with yourself. You wake up with them. You walk around with them. You go to bed with them. And eventually, you act on them, whether they be good or bad. We are all our own worst haters and doubters because self-doubt is a natural reaction to any bold attempt to change your life for the better. You can't stop it from blooming in your brain, but you can neutralize it and all the other external chatter by asking, what if? What if is an exquisite fuck you to anyone who has ever doubted your greatness or stood in your way. It silences negativity. It's a reminder that you don't really know what you're capable of until you put everything you've got on the line. It makes the impossible feel at least a little more possible. What if is the power and permission to face down your darkest demons, your very worst memories, and accept them as part of your history? If and when you do that, you will be able to use them as fuel to envision the most audacious, outrageous achievement and go get it. We live in a world with a lot of insecure, jealous people. Some of them are our best friends. They are blood relatives. Failure terrifies them. So does our success. Because when we transcend what we once thought possible, push our limits and become more, our light reflects off all the walls they've built up around them. Your light enables them to see the contours of their own prison, their own self-limitations. But if they are truly the great people you always believe them to be, their jealousy will evolve, and soon their imagination might hop its fence, and it will be their turn to change for the better. I hope that's what this book has done for you. I hope that right now, you are nose to concrete with your own bullshit limits you didn't even know were there. I hope you're willing to do the work to break them down. I hope you're willing to change. You'll feel pain, but if you accept it, endure it, and callous your mind, you'll reach a point where not even pain can hurt you. There is a catch, however. When you live this way, there is no end to it. Thanks to all that stretching, I'm in better shape at 43 than I was in my 20s. Back then, I was always sick, wound tight, and stressed out. I never analyzed why I kept getting stress fractures. I just taped that shit up. No matter what ailed my body or my mind, I had the same solution. Tape it up and move the fuck on. Now I'm smarter than I've ever been, and I'm still getting after it. In 2018, I went back to the mountains to become a wildland firefighter again. I hadn't been in the field for three years, and since then, I'd gotten used to training in nice gyms and living in comfort. Some might call it luxury. I was in a plush hotel room in Vegas when the 416 fire sparked, and I got the call. What started as a 2,000-acre grass fire in the San Juan range of Colorado's Rocky Mountains was growing into a record-breaking 55,000-acre monster. I hung up and caught a prop plane to Grand Junction, loaded up in a U.S. Forest Service truck, and drove three hours to the outskirts of Durango, Colorado, where I suited up in my green Nomex pants and yellow long-sleeved button-down, my hard hat, field glasses, and gloves, and grabbed my Super Pulaski a wildland firefighter's most trusted weapon. I can dig for hours with that thing, and that's what we do. 
We don't spray water. We specialize in containment, and that means digging lines and clearing brush so there's no fuel in the path of an inferno. We dig and run, run and dig, until every muscle is spent. Then we do it all over again. On our first day and night, we dug fire lines around vulnerable homes as walls of flames marched forward from less than a mile away. We glimpsed the burn through the trees and felt the heat in the drought-stricken forest. From there, we were deployed to 10,000 feet and worked on a 45-degree slope, digging as deep as possible, trying to get to the mineral soil that won't burn. At one point, a tree fell and missed hitting one of my teammates by eight inches. It would have killed him. We could smell smoke in the air. Our sawyers, the chainsaw experts, kept cutting dead and dying trees. We hauled that brush out beyond a creek bed. Piles were scattered every 50 feet for over three miles. Each one measured roughly seven to eight feet tall. We worked like that for a week of 18-hour shifts at $12 an hour, before taxes. It was 80 degrees during the day and 36 degrees at night. When the shift was over, we laid out our mats and slept in the open, wherever we were. Then woke up and got back after it. I didn't change my clothes for six days. Most of the people on my crew were at least 15 years younger than me. All of them were hard as nails and among the very hardest working people I've ever met, including and especially the women. None of them ever complained. When we were done, we'd cleared a line 3.2 miles long, wide enough to stop a monster from burning down a mountain. At 43, my wildland firefighting career is just getting started. I love being part of a team of hard motherfuckers like them, and my ultra career is about to be born again too. I'm just young enough to bring hell on and still contend for titles. I'm running faster now than I ever have, and I don't need any tape or props for my feet. When I was 33, I ran at an eight minute, 35 second per mile pace. Now I'm running seven minute, 15 seconds per mile, very comfortably. I'm still getting used to this new, flexible, fully functioning body and getting accustomed to my new self. My passion still burns, but to be honest, it takes a bit longer to channel my rage. It's not camped out on my home screen anymore, a single unconscious twitch from overwhelming my heart and head. Now I have to access it consciously, but when I do, I can still feel all the challenges and obstacles, the heartbreak and hard work, like it happened yesterday. That's why you can feel my passion on podcasts and videos. That shit is still there, seared into my brain like scar tissue, tailing me like a shadow that's trying to chase me down and swallow me whole, but always drives me forward. Whatever failures and accomplishments pile up in the years to come, and there will be plenty of both, I'm sure, I know I'll continue to give it my all and set goals that seem impossible to most. And when those motherfuckers say so, I'll look them dead in the eye and respond with one simple question. What if? So there is a place beyond the suffering, isn't there? Oh, there's a big place. And this whole story, you know, everybody's heard right now, and they, they, they know my life. I kind of went to, you know, I was a Catholic for, for many years. I'm not a Catholic now. But, you know, I went to confession. I used to go to confession. I just kind of confess to you right now. It's not so much my sins, but I had to have the courage to confess my life. And at the other end of that, there's peace. There's peace when you finally accept your life and all the crap, all the good, all the bad, all the ugly. When you accept that and you want to change that, 
And I never did this. I never did any of this for praise. All these races, becoming a SEAL, Ranger. You know, I didn't care who knew about it, who didn't know about it. You know, my story just happened to come out. You know, it it wasn't about a trophy, like, you know, one of the chapters talk about. You know, this was strictly about, this was me against me. So this is what, this is what it all came to be. It's amazing that that acceptance, which which happens when you're when you're thinking you're you're facing your maker, and then the acceptance is there, um, and it's it. I love how that's the ultimate lesson of this book. That self acceptance has so much to it. There's the power to push you to do things you never thought you could do, and then there is the you know that, the acceptance of your story, the acceptance of your demons, the acceptance of your weaknesses, the acceptance of of your successes. All of that leads to the ultimate success. I mean, acceptance of who you are, your core, who. You, your entire story and the world as fucked up as it is kind of accepting that just at face value. You know what? And through this whole journey, I was looking for one thing. I was, I was looking for peace. I was looking for peace. And I say it all the time. I don't believe you can find peace without going to war with yourself. Hmm. You have to figure out who you are. People want to jump to peace before they go to war. And that's why, you know, all the monks and all the things that they did about running a thousand marathons in a thousand days, they were trying to find something. Mm. You know, they were trying to find more of themselves. Yeah. What's this all about? What's this journey about? You don't find it through sitting at home, flipping through the daggone, you know, you know, television channels. No. You know, you don't find it there. You find it going out there and trying to find more of yourself. And a lot of people look at my face and I'm a very stoic type of person. I have a very stoic look in my face almost all the time. Everybody says, why don't you smile, man? Why don't you smile? And they think I haven't found peace. They think I'm still battling with myself and you know, all these things. And peace isn't a look on your face. It's a feeling in your heart. Never judge a book by its cover, man. Never judge a book by its cover because I tell you right now, when you go through and you challenge yourself at every turn the way I challenge myself at every turn, trust me, you find peace. When you're constantly breaking down barriers and breaking down barriers and breaking down barriers and getting back up and getting back up and getting back up, at the end of all that, when I was laying in that bed and I thought I was dying, I found a shit ton of peace because mm. it gave me time for the first time in my life, it gave me time to reflect. I got time to reflect because I was going so hard. There was no finish line. I was like, come on, do more, do more. I would do something. I wouldn't even get my medal. I'd just go. It's time to do something now. It's, it's time to do the next very thing. What's next? What's next? What's next? And one of the best things that happened to me was I got sick. Mm. My body started shutting down. And when my body shut down, I had to sit there by myself and think. I couldn't run. I couldn't do push-ups. I couldn't do sit-ups. I couldn't do anything. I had to sit there and be alone in my own thoughts. And that's when I had time to go back through my resume. Everything I had accomplished... And the feeling of pride, the, the feeling of overcoming myself. And it wasn't like I had some trainer come down and help me out. It wasn't like I had some, like, like I said before, I did it on my own. Mm. And yes, I believe in a much higher power than David Goggins. And that also helped me out. Like I said, I don't know what's up there, but I know there's something that exists much, much bigger than me. And a lot of times in my life, that also helped me. Mm. You know, only the only thing I had to talk to was the power above. Hmm. And that helped me out a lot also because a lot of times I was very lonely. But at the very end, when I'm in that bed, laying there, it was a very, 
very peaceful and beautiful moment. And still to this day, if that was the end and I could never run or even if I died, I was happy as hell. You had one more story that you wanted to share, I believe, right? At 24 years old, if someone asked me to write a book about my life, would it change someone's life for the better? I would not have been able to write anything worth reading. For the past 20 years, I made it my life's mission to be able to change the answer to that question. But to truly be able to do that, I had to find my real self and all I was hiding from. There, under all the insecurities, fears, and self-doubt, was a scared and lost David Goggins, buried in the fetal position. Now at 43 years old, after turning myself inside out, I asked myself that same question, and here's my answer. While I don't know if this book will change your life for the better, I do know that if you want to turn your life around, I am proof that anything is possible. Through intentional practice, I develop a mindset that no obstacle in front of me is more powerful than the will I have to conquer it. I wasn't born with that will. I developed it by facing my own shadow. You must be willing to face your shadow. It's the one thing that follows you everywhere. Some days you can't see it and you think you've outrun it, but it continues to reappear. Don't be afraid to live in the grip of life. We all have the ability to create the life that we want, but to achieve that life, you must be willing to confront yourself and your demons. That's what it takes. There are no shortcuts on this journey. It all comes down to how much you truly want it, plain and simple. Until we face the truth about ourselves, we will always live at 40% of our true potential. We can have all the financial success and material possessions in the world, yet still feel empty and unfulfilled. I have lived a life of facing discomfort on a daily basis, and by doing that, I no longer want for anything. No material thing can give me the peace I found within myself. There are millions of people who are happy with the life that they have, and that is great. There are other people who settle with the life that they have. They are happy enough because they don't want to put in the necessary work to make their life better. And then there are those countless others who say they want to be more. They want to be someone different than they are today. So what is holding you back? You and only you are the one in control. It is your choice. We live in a world of hollow words, people who speak but don't do. There is no trick to it. You have to put in the hard work. How do you want your book to read at the end of your life? I'm going to end you all with this. I'm a big believer in something way above me, something much more powerful than me. And I don't care what you believe in or if you don't believe at all. I'm not here to judge anybody. But one thing that helped me out in life was this one bit of fear that I had. I truly believed that God knows everything. I believe in God. And if that's the case, my biggest fear was not living to my full potential. So I'm really big on visualizing different things. So I visualized when I died, you know, you go to heaven and there's a long line to get into heaven. And I believe that God is interviewing all of us. As we die, God has a chair, a chair for God, a chair for you. And God has this big, this big piece of paper with all of our names on it. And I'm in line, and I'm way back there, but I can see these different names on this big chart that God has. And he keeps on ripping the chart down. As people go by and God interviews them, he rips the chart down 
the next chart comes up for the next name. As I'm getting closer, I keep on seeing this happening. So now it's my turn. And I see David Goggins on the chart. So I sit down. And let's say I never changed my life at all. Let's say I'm still that 300-pound guy spraying for cockroaches. And I live to be 75 years old. And I'm sitting here with God now for my interview. And I look on this paper right here in front of me. And God says, take a look at this, at this chart. And it's my life chart. And it's the life that I was supposed to live. And on that chart, it has me at 185 pounds. It has me being a Navy SEAL. It has me being an Army Ranger. It has me going through all these different things I did in my life, or I was supposed to do in my life. Run these races, break these records. I was supposed to be a motivator to people. I was supposed to change people's lives. And I'm looking at this chart, and I'm this 300-pound man, and I died retiring from, you know, spraying for cockroaches. And God looks at me and says, this is the life that you were supposed to have. And I didn't have that life because I was not willing to suffer. I was not willing to go into the dungeon of my own soul to find more of myself. So when you get to heaven, and let's say that's true. Let's say God does know all. And when you get there, God has a chart. And the chart has your name on it. And that chart tells you what you should have been. And you missed the mark by a lot. So when you get to heaven, are you really in heaven? Or are you in hell? So my mindset now, with all that being said, is I do believe that God has a chart up there. And I know that God knows all. And that puts the fear of God in me. So how I live my life now is that even though God knows all, I sit back now and I work my ass off to the point where I want God himself, the one thing that knows all, to be up there in all of what I'm doing. I want him to be up there even though he has the chart knowing all about me, I want him to be up there writing more as I'm living my life because I want to exceed even God's expectations of what he thought I was capable of. I want God to be up there saying, I don't believe it. Not even I saw what David Goggins was capable of. That's the mindset that we all need to have for the rest of our lives. We need to shoot for more than what we even thought was possible. We have to go to a point in our lives where there is no finish line. There is no ending. And to find true pride in what you've done on this earth. We hope you have enjoyed this production of Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Read by David Goggins and Adam Skolnick. This program was produced by Dion Audio Services. Executive Producer, Jennifer Kish.